Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sheets, episode number 317. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, we have a new Patreon show to talk about this week. And it's uh, quite the doozy, I would say. Um, that's one way to put it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as we talk about Superstar Billy Graham versus the World Wrestling Federation where we go uh, in depth on basically his trials and tribulations regarding that company from 1990 1994. So uh, a lot going on there. Uh, we got lawsuits. We got various media appearances by him and others, including Hulk Hogan on Arsenio. We got the infamous Donahue appearance. We got uh, all kind of stuff regarding what Hulk Hogan did, allegedly. We got, st- you know, all Superstar Billy Graham talking about uh, the uh, the stuff with Mel Phillips and Terry Garvin and Pat Patterson and just so much steroids and, you know, just a lot of the, some, some bullshit that he was saying that was overshadowing his truth and just all kind of stuff his opinion on steroids and if he would still do them at that time, which is interesting to look at considering what he was complaining about. So, uh, yeah, quite the show, Bix, I would say. Hello? Sorry, I was, I was, I was muted and it was taking a second to turn my volume back up. Um, and uh, one of my favorite things is something that you had never heard before. And I'm try- I, I kind of want to hear you tease this, uh, the event that is Graham on live in studio on Pro Wrestling Spotlight the night before the Donahue show. Yes, uh, him, Dave, Barry Orton, Bruno by phone too. Bruno by phone, and uh, yeah, he just says some outlandish things that Dave just like was like, oh god. <laughs> Dave literally sat in the background. Sounds like Ric Flair during the Shockmaster skit. <laughs> so yeah, we don't want to spoil what that is, but uh Yeah. De- and definitely you know, to listen to it. Yes, and we have a free preview that's already up in the main feed and at the end of you know, on its own and also at the end of last week's show, and space permitting it'll also be at the end of this week's show as well. And that deals with Arsenio and the Fallout, that free sample. So if you haven't checked it out yet, we thank you. And also as we record this, uh leading up to the release and then the few days after we're back at five hundred patrons again. That's awesome. Let's go over that. Get the word out there. You know, the CM Punk see, show. Because I haven't checked in a bit. Oh, 502 as of this recording. Well, good. The CM Punk show, of course, came out last month. Everybody uh, listened to that. You listened to it already. Talk, Wait, why would they want to listen to it now? He's a hot topic right now. It's very timely. And, you, and, and now he's a very big ratings draw, unlike 10 years ago. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, what well, we have this month. And next month... The 25th anniversary of the New World Order. So all kind of stuff going on on patreon.com slash sheets. $5 a month gets you the access to uh, the audio archive, everything we've done in near five complete years of our Patreon. So get on that. And then on the other uh, tiers, 25, 50, 100, you know, that's all for requesting shows and sitting on shows, and which we have this week, actually. As our guest this week, put down the 
$50 to uh, sit in for a segment of the show. And uh, for the second time, right? Is this the second time? Yeah, yeah. For, for, for that particular, yeah. So, yes, we are joined this week by our dear friend Vera Thoris. Vera, welcome back. Hi. Hi. This is a momentous show, obviously. We're back to 1997, uh, which is, I think, in terms of years, <laughs> it's like the most representative on this show. It's the most eventful, I would say. Uh in terms of like volume, you know. Yeah, I mean, you got you got WCW, which is red hot. Yeah. With the NWO, and then you got WF, which is Just putting out great television at the wall. Yeah, yeah putting out great television, but it's not translating all the way to business yet. Like yeah, the yeah. next year. So they're they're getting momentum. They're gaining momentum as they go along, and. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, a time period where, yeah, I mean, ECW is, uh, you know, got a lot going on as well. You know, we got stuff everywhere. That's a, well, that's a charitable way to put it about ECW at this point. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. A little bit ago, yeah. Yeah, they just got a lot going on. So, you yeah. know, they're going through some changes. <laughs> sure. Around our time. In fact, you know, this is... We did uh, the week of our show here, which week plus actually is August the 25th through September the 3rd. The week later is when the the mole stuff hits. <laughs> so, which we've already done. Mm. We did we did that on show uh, 216. So, yeah. So we're at the calm before the storm, so to speak, when it comes to ECW and and uh, all the wackiness that's going to go on with the mole. But, but yeah. So uh, you picked this show. So what? What is the main reason why you picked this show? I have quite a lot to say about the Arn Anderson retirement and the NWO battle the next week uh, because there's so much. I don't want to get too much into it because obviously it's going to come up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing the show, but it's it, uh, the the Arn retirement promo is like one of my favorite. Like things I've ever seen, uh, and even though I don't think Kurt Hennig was the guy to be put in that spot, and I know that they, the whole thing got deflated within like a month, anyway, like completely made completely pointless, and the Horsemen <laughs> were completely killed for a year. It 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 still has exactly the the same impact. It's uh it, it for that moment it felt so genuine, you know, this like celebration of Arn, this kind of passing of the torch. And we're going to talk about that. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that, like, quite a bit more. But, like, the NWO response to that is... I kind of want to save a lot of my thoughts on that. For yeah, 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 exactly. When we see it, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, very, it's a very memorable moment. Infamous and rightly so. Yeah, a very memorable moment. And, and, the, and, and, and there's the politics surrounding this that is that are also... Uh, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of politics around it, absolutely. And on top and, of everything else, something that gets overlooked that we'll be talking about, they do some record ratings on that show. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Well, there's a reason for that too, but uh, you know, they're. Um, what was I going to say? I lost my train of thought here. Um, damn. But anyway, uh, it'll come back to me. But uh, yeah, so let's get going. August oh. twenty. 20- yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, 
but before I forget, uh, I did. I had the great Okarnak send me a hermetically sealed envelope. Oh, okay. I will divine the answer to the question written on the inside by holding it to my forehead. Boston cream pie. Boston cream pie. And now allow me to simply open this envelope. What Eddie Edwards gives Alicia on their anniversary. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but there you go. <laughs> um, but well, I regained my train of thought. And how uh, is the timing of this show? The fact of August 25th to September 3rd, we got both the arm promo and the retort on this show. So we didn't have to spread it out over two different shows, which actually works out for the best, I think, because I think mm. these needed to be together on their own deal. So, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Let's get started. As we begin with World Championship Wrestling and Dave Meltzer. Perhaps it was only fitting that the official announcement on August 25th of the end of the wrestling career of Arn Anderson was largely an angle to get someone else, in this case, Kurt Henning, over, because in many ways, that was the story of his career. Anderson, born Martin Lundy, in one of the best interviews of this or any other year, announced on the live WCW Nitro show from Columbia, South Carolina, that he recognized he had nothing left to give due to neck injuries and that he wouldn't be coming back. This announcement was confirmation of what nearly everyone has speculated since he had major neck surgery a few months back, which resulted in strength in one of his hands being so weak he couldn't even butt his own shirt. Anderson received an incredible standing ovation that overwhelmed even the reaction to staying earlier in the show. When he should have punked out with the first time since operation before fans won his old stomping grounds. And the fans who reacted that way had no idea of what he was there for. While longtime partner Ric Flair was in the background fighting hard to hold back the tears, Anderson labeled himself as an average wrestler with average size and skill and speed who achieved success through a lot of hard work. Although at his peak, Anderson was considered one of the best workers in the world. He was always low key in his particular talents and referred to himself as a solid journeyman wrestler. Oh, yeah. I mean, Arn, Arn was someone who wasn't going to you know, put himself over, so to speak. Um, he's not, he's not going to get there and, you know, talk about how great he was as a, in a, in a, in a not in a real setting like this. As if he's doing this promo stuff, then yeah, he'll put himself over. And, you know, toot my horn, toot toot. But, yeah, he's he's humble here. I mean, this is reality setting in. And... Yeah, yeah, he's... On, on, on his podcast, he's very self-effacing, very, like, completely downplaying his role, his... Uh, in everything, you know, I think... Uh, calls himself a good hand, that sort of thing. Yeah, when he was... He was tremendous in every way. Now, and looking back over a 15-year, nearly 15-year career of Lundy, 39 years old, asked the question of whether he was one of the luckiest or unluckiest wrestlers when it comes to his level of success. On one hand, while a solid worker, he was unspectacular, not the slightest bit glamorous or muscular in an era where that meant a lot more than ability, so you could say he came along in the wrong era for his strengths. But he was still a prominent star where he went due to the respect most of his profession had for him. He was one of the best interviews in history. The, the real truth is his break in wrestling came due to his looks, is a canny facial resemblance to Ole Anderson. The other truth is without a great deal of ability, that luck would have only taken him so far before the business spit him out like virtually all of his contemporaries. 
It was his non-glamorous look that made him almost a meat and potatoes wrestler. It wrestled with tremendous charisma based on the fact he looked and based on the standards of his era like he shouldn't have any charisma. But due to his ability, respect to fans, particularly in the Southeast fat for him, his long-time affiliation with Ric Flair, and perhaps most importantly, the Four Horsemen name, Anderson lasted longer as a major player in his profession despite being written off numerous times, and 90% of the pretty boys lavished with major pushes, and in many cases, bigger money contracts that he spent his career putting over. His career was made putting over a collection of stars of the past, and where are they now? And then getting on television next Saturday and doing such a strong interview that after a few years, fans actually forgot he made his mark while almost... Putting, always putting people over. Arn's most recent neck injury suffered nearly one year ago was far more serious, and he didn't come through surgery with flying collars. In large band knowledge, for a few months, that Anderson would be able to return to the ring, and every now and then ideas were thrown out, either being a color commentator or as a late 90s version of J.J. Dillon of the 80s, with the horseman that took advantage of his interview skills. Although the last word we heard was that the powers that be nixed the idea when Flair pushed for it. He currently and has been working behind the scenes with WCW's booking department. He wasn't supposed to steal the show on Nitro on August 25th. That was for today's Glamour Boys, who were just too sweet. But unlike the Glamour Boys, who 10 years earlier in the same position, this time Arn Anderson won't be still around in a prominent role while they become whatever happened to trivia questions. Yeah, Bix, um, Dave brings up an interesting thing here regarding Arn's uh, sustainability. If Arn wasn't, you know put in the horseman, you know, has the relationship with Ric Flair. How different is his career? Hmm. You mean if he's still Arn Anderson and has the Arn Anderson gimmick, but we don't get the horseman? Yes. I think he settles in Continental and is an indie wrestler after 1989. Unfortunately. I think he has like a career trajectory of a guy like a um, maybe like a Dick Slater, or Matt Bourne, or guys like that. Guys that they just bounce around from place to place. I think he, you know, he he goes to he maybe goes back to Continental, like you said, or he goes to Dallas, or he goes to Memphis. He probably goes different places. I don't and, think he has a WWF run though, for sure. No, no, he does not. Unless he goes into under a gimmick or a mask or whatever, yeah, or just a gimmick, yeah, a gimmick like a Matt, like Matt Borden did his doink, you know, some type of gimmick. The hillbilly brother, hillbilly brother, yeah. I mean, he could be something, but it's the cachet of the horseman and all that stuff, and that was his spotlight. They hit the interviews and everything, and being the workhorse, and that helped him, you know. And when they went to WF, I mean, it was him and Tully that went together, and they were the tag team champions. So, it, I mean, it wasn't like they came in because, you know, Flair got them in there. They came in because they wanted them in there. So there is that. But, and they were also stealing from Crockett, too. So well, that's yes. a little But, yeah, I mean, it would have been interesting to see where Arn how Arn's career would have gone if there was no full horseman. I think he has at least a few years in Crockett, though. Yeah, he's there. I think the question... I think here's the question. Does he end up staying until the sale if there's no Ric Flair association? I mean, who knows? Yes, that's the thing. I feel like if he gets to the sale, then... 
not that much changes. What makes it hard to think about is that Arn was pretty much always programmed with flares in some form in Crockett. Right. I mean, on TBS at first, not in the not in the syndicated world, but then when Flair turns and he's, I mean, it's from then on. You know? So, and you look at when, when Arn's most dangerous times were, you know, career-wise, it's when there's no horsemen, it's, you know, especially 92. And that was more of a cost-cutting thing from Bill Watts. But, you know, who knows what happens if Flair... What if Flair doesn't come back to WCW in 93? Does Arn come back? Probably not. Arn probably was smoking... Oh, you mean after wrestling. the injury? And stuff. Yeah. He probably worse smoking about wrestling. He's probably just like, oh, this is fun. Or maybe he stays under contract and... Well, no, because the Watts thing would have... Anyway, yeah. So, yeah, who knows? Was gonna, it, well, no, I'm saying if he was going to go to Smokey, he was going to have to stay in Smokey. Yeah, he wouldn't be there through WCW the whole time. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. But yeah, I mean, the, the neck injury. You know, he came back and worked. I mean, people always forget that he worked in '97. He kept working for a while after that injury happened. Yeah, it got to the point where he couldn't do it anymore. Yes. And he was thinking on TV. And you know? I think also something to think about with the Flair Association, also Arn's interview ability, is compare his career to Jerry Stubbs. Jerry Stubbs yeah. at one point had the much better body, you know, had the mass gimmick he could rely on. And I I don't know if I'd necessarily call him a better worker in the ring, but he was certainly a better athlete and more talented in the ring. Arn's last match was January 27th. Jeez. It was him and Mongo over the Amazing French Canadians. That's his last match. But anyway, but you get where I'm going with this? It's like... Well, Jerry Stubbs, though, Jerry Stubbs, it, it's easy to compare him, but... He had a part-time job. To, I mean, you know, a part-time. He had a job outside wrestling job. Oh, so that's why he ne- that's why he only rarely went to bigger territories. Yeah, he, he was a he was a uh, policeman. Hmm. Yeah. So he must. So did he go on like leave to do the mid south run or something? Um, I think the police police thing happened maybe after that. Okay. So we're talking like starting in like eighty four ish. Yeah, I'm not quite sure on the timeline, but that's, I mean, I know he was in, like, he worked for the College Park Police Department at no one point in time in Georgia. In Georgia. Uh-huh, okay. But still, yeah. you get where I'm going with this, though, like, even if he was, you know, a very good promo, he did have a stronger accent, but still, like, everything else... If you were going to guess between the two, just on paper, who would be the bigger star of the two nationally would be Jerry Stubbs. Yes. Based on skills and the presentation at the peak of his career and all that. Yes. So it shows just how much being this elite level promo and then the Flair Association, I think, helped on. Yes. So. All right. Um... We'll talk more about the Arn thing as we get to the segment. 
the record-breaking Nitro on August 25th at Columbia, South Carolina, also set that city's all-time attendance and gate record with a new sell of 8,048 fans, 74.57, paying 129.945. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty big because, I mean, that was a Crockettown every week for years. And uh, even during their hot business run in the mid-'80s. So, there you go. Wayne Bloom... A.K. Bo Beverly in some years back got a tryout and beat Bobby Eaton in a dark match. It was said to look lighter in his WF days. Well, just about everyone from that era should be look lighter today, Dave said. <laughs> yeah. That as we talked about in the Superstar Billy Graham thing. I mean, you look at some of those you look at those guys in the nineteen ninety one WF and woof. <laughs> some massive physiques there across the board. Yes, although the uh, the Beverly brothers they, they they were like, as the legend goes, they were like the first guys to get off the gas the first time the town was sold to, like the only guys. Yeah, I was gonna say the vast majority of their what run is under either drug testing or threat of drug testing. So I don't even know if that's the best example for Dave to use for something like that. But right, right, well, it's jacked. And Mike Guinness was the bigger one anyway. Yes. <laughs> um. Big now, it was dude, dude. Yeah, it was interesting to see Bloom back here, and you know, obviously he hadn't been putting in the time be- that Enos was, so he hadn't improved to the degree Enos had. But for a guy who'd been completely out of the business for like four and a half years, I thought he did really well in this WCW run. Yeah, absolutely. And WCW had quite a bit of that, you know, in, in this era. You know, guys, guys like that, you know, where they look. Very good in their short time there. Martel mm. is another one, you know, that we talk about. Yeah. The there Marty Gennetti makeover. Marty Gennetti, yeah. I was thinking about that. Perhaps not David San Martino. Uh, no. That was a good match, though. Yeah, no. Sure. No. All right, the show opened up with an Eric Bischoff interview with J.J. Dillon on the telephone. Dillon said he was going to sign Hogan and Sting which is still slated for December, by the end of the year. Bischoff said that would never happen. So Sting came out with a Hogan t-shirt and shoved it in Bischoff's mouth. So that lets you know where he stands on the matter. LaParca and Sakosis beat Ernest the Cat Miller and Glacier. LaParca hit Glacier with a chair, and Sakosis got the pin in 209. After the match, Parka, Sakosis, and Silver King all Ultimo Dragon for his match, including a pair of topes by Parka and Miller. Okay. I know Ernest Miller did two face. That so. sounds wrong. <laughs> That's got to be a typo. <laughs> I would love to see Ernest Miller do a tofe. It's it's like the time that Dave wrote that Hulk Hogan did the first Hurricane Rana of his career, and he meant that he took the first Hurricane Rana of his career. <laughs> yeah, that would be definitely one I would want to see. <laughs> oh, the, 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 the Hogan Rana was a lie? I... I, I... <laughs> The Hogan Rana. <laughs> Although, wasn't there also, um, I forget if it's either Nitro or Thunder, but one of the WCW PlayStation games, you know how the, that series of games, like, for some reason, if, if someone was under, like, a certain height, they all had the same moves? I but yeah. I think in Thunder, Hogan has a Hurricane Rana. That probably would be, that probably would be Thunder, Thunder for the PlayStation, yeah. Which, I guess, the, I don't know if they, I guess they evened out everyone's height, though, because it wasn't, I... If I remember right, Nitro did not have it to such an egregious degree. And then if Hogan didn't, Flair definitely did in Thunder, though. 
A couple things I need to mention here. Uh, so I pulled up uh, the Torch Nitro report to try to uh, fill in some gaps. Um, during the Bischoff thing, he called Dylan a fat tub of goo. So there's that. And Sting smiled after he shoved the shirt in Bischoff's mouth, which they played up as a big deal. So, um, yeah, there's that. Sting smiled for the first time. Uh, Raven promo aired after that whole deal before the psychosis match where he talked about people's futures looking like a reflection of funhouse mirror and shivani followed up saying i have no idea what he just said <laughs> so there you go all right um and the reason why they're attacking ultima dragon is sunny ono you know as dragon and sony sunny ono split so uh yeah this is there's that all right ultima dragon uh be Silver King at 519 with a spin in her Quran off the top rope and a dragon sleeper in a good match. With five and a half minutes. You know? It's a long match for some of these in the show, so there's that at least. Dave says 519 and says five and a half in a tour, so who, who knows? All right, next we get Scott Hall, Randy Savage, and Elizabeth. They came out, did an interview. Uh, Paul called the fans Marks. Always gonna love that. And he wanted to welcome the newest member of the NWO. He thanked uh, this person for helping him at the Clash, for giving Luger the Diamond Cutter, and revealed Diamond House Page. Page didn't come out, though. Savage said he voted no for Page's induction. He didn't want a weak link in the NWO. Fast Shannon Savage sucks. Shivani was wondering if Page really was a member of the NWO, but said, nah, I don't think so. So Gene uh, interviews Page in the rampway. Gene asked him if he gave uh, Luger the Diamond Cutter on purpose, make some statement. Page says, ridiculous. Why did he even ask that question? He says, ludicrous that he would join the NWO with Savage and Hall in there. Oakland said, well, Luke, Luger doesn't trust you. Page said he tried to talk to Luger after class. He was gone. He said, if Luger was standing that guy, he'd come out and tell him it was an accident to his face. Um, Vera, the, the whole teases of who's NWO, who's not. It got to be really ridiculous by this point in time because, I mean, really, DDP isn't really going to be a member of NWO at this time. Right, right. And it always takes the form of, like, members of the NWO, either either they're lying or they, they, they think that this person has joined the NWO without telling any of them somehow. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and they're not talking to them to see if, if, if they're on the same team. Uh, so it doesn't even make sense like in, in character. Yeah, I mean, it's not as bad as just all the Sting stuff where they just kept wondering about Sting until basically Starcade in mm-hmm. a way. But uh, it, the pace stuff was really bad. I mean, yeah. I do actually like the, uh, the this little program with uh, DDP and Luger because uh, and, and this has been talked about on the show before. Uh, baby faces having uh, issues with each other without anybody turning necessarily, you know. Yeah, usually uh, that happens I, in I, Memphis. You know, that's I know exactly, exactly. Uh, like I think this was really well done. As like these guys have these reasons to be suspicious of each other. They've got these these gripes. They have to work it out on the ring. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. So. Uh, and the thing is, is that Luger, picks, you know, we talked about me before, he's turned so many times that it's easy mm, to do this stuff. Hey, with him, 
because if you look at it, you would think that he would be the one to probably turn. There's going to be a turn. Yeah. This is all a red hair. Plus, they also just forget about all this pretty quickly anyway. Of course they do, because it's WCW, everybody. All right. Um, so Jeff Jarrett came out and wrestled Chris Benoit. Got pinned him with a small package off a of superplex. He finished from the Dynamite Kid and Randy Savage Wrestling Classic pay-per-view match in 1985. And 301, a real good short match. Yeah, somebody was watching videotapes, weren't they? <laughs> um, Jared had done the job of the manga four days earlier at the clash, so this is uh, his heat getting his heat back here over Benoit. Yes, M- Mongo beats him, and then he beats Benoit to get his heat back. Outstanding. You mean he competed in singles action to get his heat back? <laughs> Yeah, so to speak. <laughs> Bix, did you ever find out what the segment marker said uh, on that match? <laughs> on that match with uh, uh, Chad Austin and uh, and Benoit with Rock and Roll or whatever? It was. I think it was just Chad. Well, because the idea, I believe, was that it was going to be Rebel versus Benoit in storyline, and then Chad replaces Rebel. So mm. I believe it's Chad Austin in singles action. Yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> what if Rock and Rebel Chris Benoit wrestled each other? How would they? Uh, how would they get around that? ECW singles Exciting action. Extreme action. <laughs> action. It would yes. be like the Spider-Man pointing at himself meme of Family Annihilators. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. All right. Uh, next, we get the power. Powers of pain. The face of fear. Ming and the barbarian. You mean beating Rap? Your tag team. The faces of fear. <laughs> yeah, it's beating Rap and Mortis in what they called a real bad match. What? When Ming, when Ming used the tongue and death grip on Mortis in four forty two. Okay, wait a second, Vera. I'm, I'm guessing you rewatched this. I remember this match being really fun. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan, obviously, of. Uh, uh, Brian Clark, I actually got a he 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 just started a pro wrestling tease. I, I got a chronic shirt and a wrath mask, uh, not like a like a like a like a regular mask like we wear now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I think Dave was kind of cold on the uh, Mang and Barb and brian clark and he also didn't like mortis Mortis very much either i talked about this uh he he was really cold on candy for a long time so his blood ran cold on these guys huh yes yes he's like canyon he just does a bunch of moves (laughs) um basically all that i mean all they talked about in this match was uh sting basically from what torch said but today boy that jimmy hart was not at ringside and Dave noted that uh, Jimmy Hart was taken off a uh, televised role by Bischoff, although he's still working for the company backstage. So, there you go. Mort- Mortis came off the top rope, Ming got him a tongue death grip to get the win. All right. Well, here we go. It's time to uh, have our Horseman interview segment and Arne Anderson's major announcement. So with that, let's go to the clip. All right, welcome back to more WCW Monday Nitro. We're at the home of the Gamecocks tonight in Columbia, South Carolina. And over this noise, if you would turn up your television volume just a little higher, I want to introduce to you the members of the Four Horsemen. 
Assignment says RIC Boy, Rick Flair. Wow. <laughs> you look and you listen to this thunderous ovation. Well deserved in honor of the first man who's getting in the ring, and of course the U.S. champ in Benoit. Regardless of what the NWO will say, Columbia, South Carolina is horseman. Tony, I certainly agree with uh, that. As a matter of fact, it is the consensus. This is horseman territory. And Ric Flair, it's grassroots. I love it. Amazing! Let's cut to it. Let's get Kurt Henning out here right now. Either he's a horseman or he's not. Come on, Kurt. All right, Kurt Henning. You gotta face the music tonight. I don't think you guys can wait any longer. You gotta go on with your lives. We gotta have an answer tonight. We're in horseman country, and we gotta have an answer tonight. This thing has gotta come to closure. Week after week, the horsemen have uh, invited this man into the most prestigious group in all of professional wrestling, the Four Horsemen. Why don't you, you go ahead, Nate, do it one more time. Kurt, we've waited for two months, and tonight, right here on Nitro, man, we want an answer, please. Rick, I would love to give you and the other horsemen an answer, but I'm not ready to give you that answer tonight. This is unbelievable. Kurt... You're a special kind of athlete, a special kind of man, and that gets special consideration. So anticipating your answer, I invited someone down here tonight that wants to have a word with you. My best friend, the enforcers in town. Oh boy. Oh yeah. He's back. Oh man. You want to talk about a man who is a household Columbia, South Carolina. So we just had a WCW moment, everybody moment there because Gene announced Arn as being with them. I, I just noticed <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he announced Arn as being <laughs> with him, but he wasn't with him. Ah, uh, great. Greg just said, <laughs> WCW, everybody. All right. <sighs> <laughs> it has got to be the man who is coming to the ring right now. What are they all? to this great sport, the enforcer, Arn Anderson. A standing ovation. Look at that. It's a pleasure to hold the microphone, Mr. Anderson, up for you on this occasion. Well, Gene, all I can tell you... To get a response like this means what I got to say tonight mean that much more. You see, I'm a realist, and everybody knows I've got average size and speed and average ability, but I've parlayed that 
into what I would call a very successful career. And I did that on sheer will alone. But another reality is, four months ago, they took four vertebrae out of my neck. Consequently, I'm left with a hand, my left hand, too weak to hold a glass, too weak to button a button. But I thought in my mind, I knew in my mind I could overcome that too, through sheer will. And I was doing just like that. I think I've come back a long way. But the other day I had something happen in the gym that was like a cold slap in the face of reality. A guy about your size, Gene, came up and he slapped me on the back and he said, Double A, where you been? We hadn't seen you on TV. And just that slap sent a jolt through me and I dropped the water I was drinking and just for a second, my system shut down and it became crystal clear as I watched the few little drops of water draining out of that bottle, the symbolism that was involved. It was like someone had turned an hourglass over and the sand was running out on the career of Arn Anderson. Now the fact of the matter is, not only do I put myself in a suicide situation by trying to wrestle again, I endanger these two men's careers and I respect them too much for that. And other than be anything than the enforcer, in my best friend's eyes, I'd rather walk away. And for all you people out there that have ever bought a ticket to see Arn Anderson wrestle, whether you love me or you hated me, you knew that when that bell rang, you got all I had that night, whether I won whether I lost, I gave you everything I had. And you knew that. And when you did this to me, that was your acknowledgement. Well, the fact is, I got nothing left to give. And I want you to remember me as I was, not as I am. But being the man that I am, my last act, formerly as a horseman, I got one last challenge. And that's to you, Kurt Henning. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not for a fight. You got something special. I've seen you in this ring. Your skills, your maturity, your commitment to excellence makes you something special. And what my challenge is to you, Kurt, is stand beside my best friend, Ric Flair, and lead these two men back to the glory and the prominence that the four horsemen once had. And I'm going to tell you what your prize is. It's not a spot with the horsemen because this is worth a lot more than that to me. I'm going to give you the only thing I got left. Not a spot, not a spot. I'll give you my spot. Wow. Kurt Hennig. You know, I know every wrestler that's ever been around or involved in this business we call wrestling who would pass up the honor to not only be a horseman, but to come out and take Arn Anderson's spot as the enforcer of the four horsemen. I have only one thing to say. It would be a privilege. Officially tonight, Kurt Henning joining Steve Mongo, McMichael, Chris Benoit, and the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. What a glorious...
stay. It is here in Columbia. You have seen one of the most emotional moments in the history of this great television program and the history of this great sport. Just look at the face of Ric Flair. Not only did Kurt Hennig say yes, he has taken Arn Anderson's spot. A man who has lived and breathed. I have known Arn Anderson for 13 years. And for him to give his spot to Kurt Hennig is unheard of. That tells you an awful lot about Kurt Hennig right there. The emotion reflected in the face of the nation says it all. But the whole four horsemen may be at their strongest ever. And I would not want to be Eddie Guerrero right now, walking down in the face of... I believe this is literally only eating lettuce-era Eddie. Yeah, he's, he's jacked to the gills. But he's um, mean. This is, yeah. not, this is not, you know, later stage jacked Eddie. This is... Like, he is shredded. Um... You watch that, and you think, wow, that was... That was amazing and everything about it should have worked and of course they fucked it up <laughs> but here's also here's what really jumped out at me though watching this and knowing what we're gonna watch later just how much shorter than the parody it is yes this was not a long segment at all by any means no no yeah no it's just it's just a few minutes i if there if there's one thing and i and i've always kind of i've always found the if, if you're going to bungle the whole thing and make it mean nothing in a month anyway, I guess Kurt Hennig is as good a, ch a choice as anybody for this role. But, like, it, it, reading in the notes that Arn was 39, like, that kind of hit me that Kurt is the same age and the torch is being passed. I, I don't know. Yeah, but Kurt... Kurt, so, I mean, and, well, Kurt also was wrestling longer than Arn was, too, but he also had he had the time of inactivity. Where yeah, you know sure. you, you didn't see him around. He hasn't been a wrestler much. in five years. Or all yeah, that's four fair, years. Fair. But until and, yeah. and, 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 and obviously, and obviously, like in twenty twenty one, like a that's less of a thing than ever. Obviously, CM Punk is a big uh, coming back is a big thing. Christian Cage uh, and Edge are Christian Cage eight next years month. older than Arn retired. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I mean it's crazy. And then you know we got Flair and his emotions here um being in columbia south carolina i mean it, it just didn't get better than that and then of course again they just fuck it all up well you know uh, yeah yeah the emotion here was really was really real and like that well we're talking about arn's like next level like promo ability and like, his ability to just draw you in and like we said this was a fairly short segment that promo was like you know like a couple uh like a minute or two and it, i don't know like even without any context like you ex if you showed this to someone who didn't know anything about wrestling i feel like they they would feel it you know yeah go ahead Bix. any thoughts okay. or... something i always felt was kind of a flaw with this though it made no sense that if someone is getting our spot as the enforcer so to speak it makes no sense that he's not just offering it to Benoit and giving someone else a new spot in the Horseman. It's the, well, it's... Well, I mean, because character-wise, too. You know, because they try to put it over mm. the next few weeks until the turn. Oh, that's fair, that's fair. But, like, they try to make Hennig the, the enforcer, and it doesn't work. 
That's the the, the story though is I don't think the storyline is that he's a bad you know, bit though. No, the storyline is the only reason why he joined the horseman is because he's taking on Anderson's spot. Hmm. He goes. I mean, you saw. No, what you're he right said? though. If you're doing the turn, it has to be the new person who's taking the spot. Yes. But I'm saying. I mean, you saw what he. I mean, you saw what he said before. He said, "I can't give you an answer right now." And then Arn comes out. Yeah, yeah. He was he was waffling, and then Arn. Yeah, Arn gave him the nudge. Yeah, is that that's a good point. Yeah, that's the thing, and that that that's the hook to the hinting side of things here. But um, yeah, I mean. That was not a long segment at all. Was, you know, Arn streamlined it very well, and I think that's the reason. Another reason why it worked as well as it did. It wasn't dragging, you know. So yes, and well, and as we'll discuss in a few minutes, it also resulted in Eddie Guerrero versus Steve McMichael being the most yeah. watched match in the history of cable television up to that point. Well, Dave's talked about the, the, what's going on here, so don't know where they're going next. And with Kevin Sullivan returning backstage at this show, he and Terry Taylor said they have equal power when it comes to bookings. Me and the plans from last week have changed again. Dave doesn't even want to speculate. A Flair Henning singles match was scheduled to be announced in the Baltimore market already and probably has been for the September 27th house show. So they may still do an angle or the planned angle may have been nixed. Virtually the entire fall brawl car listed here last week's questionable. Eddie Guerrero versus Chris Jericho, Demon Lincoln versus Jeff Jarrett, now it's right versus Ultimate Dragon are still on the card. It appears they're going to do a triangle match. Has WCW ever done one of these that wasn't terrible with Bagwell and Norton, Steiners or Harlem Heat? And War Games now looks to be Horse versus NWO. Well, that's only a guess. Yeah, that that's another thing. You know, Sullivan had been gone and Terry Taylor was the main guy and now Sullivan's back and that's drama going on there. And now things are changing again. And I just yeah, you add something though. What? Cause we have the hindsight on this, the timing and the compressed timeline of everything and all this, it has to be going just to, it has to be that Flair made the call to get the facelift around when they decided to shoot the angle. Right. And then they decided, okay, we have fought, we have war games coming up, et cetera, right? It, it's got to be something like that, right? I mean, they, they had to do some uh, some way to explain Rick being out of action. So there's that. <laughs> so <laughs> interesting. All right. Anyway, Mongo p- beat Eddie Guerrero, clean with a tombstone, and three hundred seven to keep the U.S. title. Yes. United States Heavyweight Champion Steve Mongo McMichael. Yes. Gene interviewed Ray Mysterio Jr. on the ramp after this. Ray gave an update on his knee injury, say he tried to rehab without surgery, but he needs surgery after all. He blamed it on Conan. He said he would meet Dr. James Andrews dun, 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 in Birmingham, Alabama on Tuesday. Conan came out, told Ray to call tonight night and leave before he suffered an injury, threatened to hit mean Gene and send his dentist to the highest tax bracket. So he taunted Ray some more, and then the giant walked out, and Conan left the scene. Dave says the idea of Ray and Giant has uh, possibilities to tag team, and uh, Dave also knows that Ray got zero reaction when he came out, which shows how well the injury and symphony angles they constantly do with him work. I wonder if part of the re- lack of reaction to Ray is Ray coming out not in gimmick. I mean, he ain't wearing his mask, but he but... thought he was in street clothes with the crutches and stuff. Yeah. Yes. And by the way, I realized since it wasn't mentioned by Dave, we'd be remiss to not mentioning that it was not 
Just Mongo hitting the tombstone. It was Eddie Guerrero trying a moonsault body block and Mongo catching him in the tombstone. Yes. Which went about as well as it possibly could have with Mongo in that position. And with his experience level, too. Yes. Although, uh, although Wade noted that Mongo's timing was off, he screwed up taking a bump from a DDT off second rope during this match. Of course so. he did. That's our manga. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but did anyone ever figure out what the deal was with? Because like Mongo had said he had heard of and liked the Twitter account, and then when he got diagnosed with what is it that he had? That's probably a- why. ALS? Yeah, that's probably why. That makes sense. No, but that once he got diagnosed, but it was the sister or something that asked them to change it, right? Uh, I mean, it's understandable. It was a little under- weird, though. Yeah, unless, but it's not. Unless it's specifically it's, easy it's, as ALS. The guy, the guy, the guy is... It's somewhat interesting, Mongo. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, though, too, I wonder if it's also specifically that he has ALS and the Twitter is... A lot of the Twitter is about him being clumsy as a wrestler. It's it's just the fact that he's in bad shape. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's very visible. You know, I mean, you know, don't want to really be making fun of a guy like that. So no, but if he still liked it, that's why. That's well, why don't, well, yeah. Well, who knows? We may not know that for sure. That could be. Did Did, did Mongo take his fingers to hide the myth capsules? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm kidding, Lamuda. Okay. Okay. It took me a second to realize what you were saying. Mist capsules. I thought you said. <laughs> sounded, I thought you said meth, and I got really confused. Oh, yeah, I, I, that's what I thought you said. Like, huh? I'm sorry. No. Uh. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so Bischoff came out at this point. Today and Bobby left. So uh, Bischoff's going to announce uh, with Tony. He told Tony that he needs to start drinking diet drinks. <laughs> um, Shivani scared Bischoff by saying Sting was standing behind him. Bischoff was bragging about the 50 feet restraining order he has on Sting, so there's that. And they're going to announce the rest of the TV show. Oh, that's outstanding. So next we get um, we get Jericho versus Yuji Nagata. I just saw Nagata uh, last week at oh. uh, Resurgence. Yeah, there you go. Awesome. Uh, Jericho won with a boss scrum at 715. Dave knew that Bischoff and Tony were amused for about four minutes, but then their lack of chemistry was really annoying as the rating decline showed. So Dave is blaming the, the Bischoff announcing on the ratings going down the rest of the show. That's interesting. Uh, there was a sign. Someone held up Hogan Fear Steam. Bischoff ordered someone to try to get that sign confiscated. <laughs> See, and they, they, they using that as an angle on TV. That's something. Take that man's sign. Um, Bischoff did mark out for one sign uh, that somebody. Well, wait a second though. When when was Bischoff? What was the holiday show where Harvey Schiller suspends him? Uh, that was wasn't that uh, the what the March. That was earlier, yeah. That was in '97. That's what yeah. I'm saying. So he was never officially unsuspended, though, right? He just started having power again. Mm. Let me everybody. So Bishop marked off for a sign that said "Raw is a bore, meant man bites." So there you go. He did like that sign at least. Um, Jericho had one of his bad matches here. As Dave says, they were off on a lot. Day uh, Wade said it was a disaster of a match in terms of timing. So universally panned here, so to speak. All right. So uh, Gene interviews Harlem Heat and Jackie next. 
Paul Mina Steiner stepped aside from knowing contender position. They could take care of the outsiders. Steve Ray said they didn't have to go up north or to Japan to get their reputation. So they are in there. Who was that with Paul Well, they also went to New Japan, too. <laughs> uh, who was that you said was with Paul Jackie. Hmm. Yeah, she's not Miss Texas here. Um, you mean she's not Miss Texas over here? Yeah. Um, but it's funny that Steve Ray said they didn't have to go to Japan when they toured Japan the year earlier. But that's all done so Uh Steiner's walked out. Rick called Harlem Heat a pair of ham bones. Then uh, Bagwell and Norton walked out, said none of the teams could beat them. Everyone started brawling. So there you go. They set that up to build a triangle match. Next, we get Alex Wright and Dean Malenko, a TV title match where Alex kept the title. Uh, Bischoff said he liked Malenko, wanted him to join the NWO. Pretty much common in passing, though. Uh, Malenko went on to apply the Cloverleaf chair at Deborah, and Eddie ran out to attack him. So there's your DQ finish. And it's not a surprise, but now, you know, with having heard Bischoff on his podcast and stuff, it seems like this type of thing where he'd suddenly throw in a line like that in a non-heelish sounding way when he would step in on commentary in the NWO, it seems like that was just with people who he genuinely enjoyed watching wrestling. Because one of the things that co- that's really come through on his podcast is just how big a Dean Malenko fan he is. Well, yeah, I mean, Malenko was one of the best guys in the company at this point in time. Well, and also, wouldn't he have just placed number one on the PWI 500? Like... When that yes. had just come out, yeah. like within a week mm-hmm. or so before this, mm-hmm. that's correct. Um, so Luger fought Randy Savage in no contest in eight seventeen. Um, Savage beat on Luger most of the match, got the sleeper on him. Luger shook his fist, which drew cheers from the fans. Then suplexed out the sleeper. Bischoff called Luger a one move wrestler. Funny. Bischoff said Hogan was on the movie set till 5.30 the previous morning and offered to fly in a nitro to help the NWO clean up any messes. Bischoff told Hogan to get some rest instead. Luger gave Savage Tommy drop. Bischoff conceded Luger's a two-move wrestler now. When he hit the clothesline, Bischoff said, make that three moves. <laughs> Hall ran to the ring. Luger stood up for the rack. Luger threw Savage in the hall, but Savage bounced off the ropes, knocked Luger down. Page in the ring, and a groggy Luger mistakenly put him in the rack as the show went off the air. And uh, Dave noted after the cameras went off the air they end up hugging each other and made up so there you go as we got the luger ddp uh teases continuing here so it's interesting when you watch nitro in this era and there is no hogan it kind of you know hogan's hogan it kind of makes those shows seem i don't want to say less important but it's different you know, um, because Hogan was such an integral part to everything, especially with the Sting storyline going on here, that when he's not there, it just it just makes it different. Well, his segments had started to get so long in '97 too. Yeah, I so mean, when he's yeah. not there, it's a very different show because no one yeah. else is doing those big long segments. Excuse me, segments usually. Yes. All right, well, let's talk about the ratings. With Raw preempted due to coverage of the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament, Nitro devastated all the previous records on August 25th, drawing a 4.97 rating. 4.33 first hour, 5.48 second hour, 8.19 share, which made the largest audience ever to watch pro wrestling show on cable television, a total of 3,549,000 homes for an average minute during the show. 
The show peaked from 915 to 930, drawing a 5.8 rating, 4.153 million homes for the Eddie Mago match and the Ray Conan angle. Breaking the all-time quarter-hour cable record audience of 4.126, set on August 24, 1994, for the uh, Hogan-Flair match at Clash of Champions. At the Bischoff came out to cover the show and went to decline every quarter, finishing with a 5.1 for the Luger-Savage main event. While the total audience should have WCW and TNT thrilled, it's a precautionary tale for the idea of doing an NW-only show, which ranges from a strong possibility to a likelihood next year. Because like with the end of a pay-per-view in January, which had a shockingly low buy rate, which had nothing to do with it ended up being a poor show, NWO's cool to do a segment of the audience, but to the basses, see you get annoyed. We're just overdone. Our air fish off in large doses. And small doses, segments have done tremendously in quarter hours. In the so-called modern, post-1987 era of cable ratings, this is only the fifth show to crack a 5.0 barrier. 4.97 rounds up to the 5. First, it's the Clash of the Champions, on September 5, 1990, with Sting and Black Scorpion and Fleer and Luger's the main event. The all-time record cable rating was USC Network's 8.2 for the first Royal Rumble in January 24, 1988, although cable has expanded to the point where 5.0 rating a day actually delivers more homes than the 8.2 did back then, which is why it's so much easier today to break total audience records, because so many more homes are wired up. You know, the 5.0 rating in modern cable history was 5.6 for the first clash of the champions, Flair and Sting, at 5.4 for the third clash, Sting and Perry Wendham. Since all those shows were supposed to show, rating was the highest rated in at least modern history for an episode of a weekly wrestling television show. And so if I'm remembering right, as far as most watched match in cable history, before Eddie and Mongo, it was Flair Hogan. Before that, it was uh, Flair Luger and Sting Black Scorpion at Clash 12, Tide. Before that, it's Flair Funk. I quit. And before that, I think it's Flair Sting, right? Yeah. Something like that. So, I know they're putting on different cable products, but until the Attitude Era, or whatever you want to call it, WCW completely owned all of the biggest cable numbers. Until the next year. That's what I'm saying, yes. Yeah. I forget what's the what breaks the match record though. Is it oh I forget if something breaks in between. I believe the Goldberg DDP replay holds the record at one point, right? Yeah. And then, you know, that's broken, you know, eight months later with what's still the record holder with the Austin Undertaker the night after King of the Ring ninety nine. But it's really something to look at this because yeah, it's an unopposed US Open week. But the number peaked with the retirement of Arn Anderson. People, people tuned in to see uh, Austin and Taker to find out who raised the briefcase. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's very impressive. Absolutely, no matter how you look at it. And, uh, yeah, it kind of makes those ratings talks today seem kind of, Silly, when you look at these numbers. <laughs> yes, but we, then again, we're also coming off, we're recording this three days after a show that did a 70% increase over its first week. Yeah, but even then, that's only 1.12 million people watching, yeah. compared to 4 and 5 million people watching. 
but TV has changed since that. Now, we do need to remember, though, if we're talking about the total audience for the purposes of how many fans does a promotion have, we never get DVR numbers, and I believe AEW and the WWE shows all do pretty big gains with DVRs, right? Because wasn't... Even even before the recent boom, was an AEW doing something like 1.3 million every week if you included DVR normally? And then there's the YouTube, the YouTube numbers, too. For, for well, more so for WWE, yes. But, it, you know, AEW got a big bump, you know, hit on the punk one, too, you know, so. Well, and yeah, the I mean, there's, so many, there, there's so many different ways for people to consume the, the product now than it was back then. Back then, it was TV. Right. Because I don't know what the uniques on something like that would be, but now each of those punk videos on YouTube, on the AEW YouTuber, I think each at like more than four million now. Yeah, so I mean, there's so much different now compared to then. So, and I believe either the TNT or Bleacher Report Live YouTube also had at least one punk upload that did over a million. So it's a different world, yeah. but we still we still see some momentous t- swings, though, as we learn as we saw this past Friday. And you know we're recording this part of the show at least on Monday. You know, as you and I were talking about, and others were going into that. the The important number wasn't Friday. The important number is this Wednesday, Punk's first Dynamite, the first advertised appearance. So, going to be interesting to follow, even if we will never he- hit these heights again. No. Only the next time closer. Only thing that comes close to these heights is Fox News. So there you go. Well, no, they don't actually. Well, in total audience, I mean, they're doing better than most. Total people, audience. But they're not coming close to that either. They're not coming close to these numbers. Uh, three over three. Well, over three million's not not that far behind. Uh, well, but that's. Well, no, 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 no. Remember, though, the number we're looking at here is homes, not viewers. Well, we, but we don't know homes on some of these numbers either. We actually, do we have. Let me see what we have. I don't know if we do, but my point is, though, you got to multiply that number by at least one and a half to get what the approximate total viewers would be for the Nitro. But anyway, all right, so now let's go to the next week. September the 1st. This week's major controversy revolves around the skit that Kevin Nash as Arn Anderson, six, Six as Ric Flair, Marcus Bagwell as Kurt Henning, and Conan and Stephen Michael did on Nitro doing an imitation of the now famous Arn Anderson interview from a week earlier. As story goes, the deal was played out ahead of time where they would dedicate the show to Arn Anderson, and the NWO would make so much fun of him with the combination of the two things theoretically building up tremendous heat, which is what happened. We got more reaction, some very positive thinking it was hilarious, and some very negative thinking it was in terrible taste. Largely depending upon what part of the country people were from and who they grew up watching. Originally, the finish of the skit was going to have the horseman run out and totally clean house the NWO, with Arm watching from the stage area with his arms folded and a big smile on his face. Before the show started, Terry Taylor was told by Eric Bischoff to nix the horseman comeback and not let them do the run-in, which is believed came at the suggestion of Kevin Nash. Later in the show, Flair was supposed to instead do an interview. By the time Flair was so mad, he refused to go on because he felt that by not coming out during the skit, it made the horseman look so bad but there was nothing he could do to salvage the situation. Anderson wasn't as mad immediately after the skit, but was said to be furious later that night, including winding up in a conversation with Booker Kevin Sullivan after calling home and finding out how mad enough said his wife and 12-year-old son were. Yes, 
young Brock Anderson. And yes, Brock Lundy is 36. Yes. Flair wasn't so mad about the portrayal of him, but the portrayal of his best friend who he's protective of and the mocker of the very serious time interview he did the week before. There were even reports that Anderson wound up so mad he was thinking of quitting the company. Flair's contract expires in February. He has to sign an extension. Although WF, due to the lawsuit against WCW, is very leery about doing anything that would look like they were interested in WCW talent right now. You know, you know that that Flair, if only for primarily as a goodwill ambassador, more than a full-time wrestler. There are also reports of some or all of this behind-the-scenes controversy was simply a Kevin Sullivan, Brian Pillman angle. Although Dave's impression is that isn't the case. Of course, this only makes sense if the war games were to turn out to be the horse of the NWO, which isn't going to be the case. Plans change. The skit itself was absolutely hilarious in spots, particularly Waltman with the fake oversized nose, the clothes, the tears, and the dancing, and Nash was incredible. But it went on way too long, and realistically was so inside and biting since Arn Anderson's mother died very young due to alcoholism. That one could see if a, the former scenario is the real one, that it was designed that way by Nash to stick it to Arn. The heat between the horse and NWO was legit to a point that's silly because at the clash on August 21st, there was a bomb threat called the Nashville in the Flair match, and Nash was joking after the show that Anderson must have called it in because they wanted management to think somebody actually cared about Ric Flair. Wow. And there's a major level of discomfort of late in the dressing room regarding people trying to take all the credit for the recent success. Funny part is the TV ratings are still slightly lower for the years compared to the same period the previous year, before there was such thing as the NWO. How about that? Buy rates aren't all that different. And that's with hot-shotting guys like Kevin Green, Reggie White, and Dennis Rodman all over the place. House show business way up, but the most valuable person when it comes to that is Zane Breslau. The fact that the TV show Nitro and Individuals has become super hot as the rank-and-file house shows aren't put together with strong lineups to draw big houses to begin with, and tickets are being sold mainly for the name brand as opposed to any singular individual. Sounds like WWE. Now, the wrestlers and angles aren't overall hotter this year when it comes to drawing because they are. But WCW is at a point right now where any individual, whether it be Savage, Hogan, Flair, Sting, Hall, and Ash, could leave tomorrow and it'll make no serious difference in ratings, buy rates, or arena grosses. This is very interesting stuff there from Dave Bix. Well, it, it was something I thought about mentioning earlier, you know, when we're talking about, like, who and has momentum and stuff. There are a lot of areas where they and WWF are very close at this time. Yeah. So... It's really just TV ratings where they're clearly ahead. It's just this is the first time WCW has ever been ahead in TV ratings while being at least competitive and everything else. But their ratings are actually, what Dave says, lower than they were the year before at the same time. Well, WWF is putting on a better product than a year before at the same time. That might be part of that. But, I mean, the fact that, you know, any... I, I think Dave's kind of wrong, though, talking about anybody one of these people could leave and nobody would notice. Uh, no, I disagree with that. I, I, I get yeah. the point he's trying to make, but yeah. Um, now, as far as the you know the skit, we'll get to it in detail in a few minutes, of course. But we've already seen really what the two problems are with it. One the alcohol references and how they're used, which I believe Nash swears he didn't know about Arn's mom or anything, right? That's what he says. Which I can believe. And the and the political Nash says a lot of things about this. Well, 
but also the political machinations with the with the no run in at the end. If this skit happens and you don't have the you know seeming alcoholism references and you don't ha- and excuse me and you do have the horseman run in at the end, I don't think this is remotely controversial. I think the run in at the end thing is mainly they they didn't want to you know the, to somebody get the heat on them. Yep, I mean that basically, and but but there is those issues as Dave's alluding to with, with back with the horse from the NWO. I mean, there's some resentment that's been going on for a while. I mean, that stuff was going on with you know in the spring with Piper and all that. And we remember Nash and Piper had their little locker room deal. That stuff's been simmering for a while. The potholes promos. Yeah, there's that's been simmering for a while here. And, you know, I mean, who knows? Who knows what uh, what all is what, so to speak, in all this. And it's interesting that Arn and Kevin Sullivan are getting into it because they were friends for years. So, yeah, very interesting. All right. Nitro, September 1st, Labor Day. Pensacola, Florida, drew 6,043, 5648, fam, 11975. The show that lasted just over three hours. They had far too many tape features, so the show dragged in a lot of spots. Three hours came off as too long. Although the definitive word is whether or not the audience stuck with it, and we didn't have the ratings on quarters as of press time. Well, we do. We'll talk about that later. All right, um... So they opened with a well-done Anderson tribute and replayed the interview to start the show. Um, they, they, in fact, they replayed the entire thing. And uh, the reason why the three hours is this is the season three premiere picks. So they went three hours for the season three premiere. I forgot that they did two three-hour nights so close together. Yeah. Right, because it was... I forget. Luger winning the title, what was the... Like storyline reason for them doing a three-hour nitro? I don't remember. We did the show about it, but I don't remember. So yeah, they do a two in, wasn't two that, in August. Wasn't, then wasn't alone, that nitro like seventy-five or something. Nitro one hundred, maybe. Ma- oh yeah, it would be nitro one hundred. Okay, I so think. there you go. So, I mean, it's about right, but yeah. So they're doing two three-hour nitros in less than a month, and I don't think there are any more until they switch permanently, right? Yeah, it has to be because. Yeah, 100. That's right. Yep, that's what, that would be it. But anyway, all right. Because so it was four show, weeks before Labor Day. Yeah. So. Yeah. Show opened up with Mongo and Benoit. Go ahead. Mongo and Benoit beating Jeff Jarrett and Andy Guerrero when Malenko spent past Jarrett off the top rope. And Mongo scored the pin in 10 9 a very good match. Yes, uh, Dean Malenko came out to get involved in this. So teasing him with the horseman here as early as 1997. You know, they played at sea for a long time. Wait, involved they... as a horseman or involved with Jared and Eddie? Because um, isn't he part of the Jared and Eddie storyline with Tepper? Yeah, he showed Eddie off the ropes and then jumped on the Jared. Right, he's so, not being teased as a horseman here, even though they already had teased him as a horseman and then dropped it and then did it again. Yeah, but still he's involved in a horseman deal. Sure. But there you go. All right, uh, so next we get Hall and uh, Savage coming out uh, with Elizabeth. They had a conversation with Zabisco. Zabisco said it must be best friends with Hogan. 
It's because they got something on their nose. But if he can get away with the truth, good for him. <laughs> um, I, this is not a reference to cocaine. This is a reference to having your nose up somebody's ass. Brown nosing, so to speak. It, it's they, not a reference to the Tampa pipeline? <laughs> no, but again, as we talked about many times before, Larry Zabisco is the only one to get over on the NWO all the time. Yeah. Amazing much. how that works. Mortis beats Silver King in 331 with a flatliner. Samoa drop off the middle ropes. Yes, the flatliner good... was something else originally. Yes. Another good match. Silver King looked great. Mortis looked good as well. James Vandenberg challenged the face of fear to come out, which they did, and they clean house on Mortis and Wrath. So, yeah. We got that continuing here. Uh, Way know that Vandenberg sounds like Scott Steiner. <laughs> I never can see that. it. Yeah, never noticed that before. All right, next we get Yuji Nagata pinning Dean Malenko on 450 when Jared interfered in another good match. All right, get ready, folks. We're going to get a classic Dave Meltzer uh, diatribe here. During the match, my today brought up Nagata's legit amateur background. 1989 Japanese Collegiate National Champion, 1992 Greco-Roman National Champion. Zabisco made fun of it, and that like he was a real cross between Chris Shamrock and Dean Malenko as a shooter, saying how he let a wrestler take him down and then break his arm. Like some guy who survived the New Japan Dojo doesn't know how to shoot. Dave still can't figure out these bitter has-been wrestlers who think their jobs as announcers is to not get the new wrestlers or the product over, particularly when they were putting Nagata over as one of the company's top stars, even by a fluke. Anyway, it's a really good check when it comes to Larry Whistler. When Dave was in college in San Jose State, the athletic director was a good friend of his named Doc David Adams, who was a great college wrestler in the 50s and later coached wrestling at Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh, for many years. When he was a wrestler coach at Pitt, Larry Whistler was a high school wrestler in Pittsburgh. Dave figured from being a pro wrestler fan how he was billed when he turned pro at Pittsburgh. They had to choose between going to college or a wrestling scholarship, for a wrestling scholarship, or turning pro into a Bruno. They must have been a hotshot high school wrestler. The truth of the matter, Corn Adams, who knew him well, is he was a slightly above average high school wrestler. Adams would always point out he wasn't a good high school wrestler. It was nowhere near the caliber of even being someone that would have considered having college potential. <laughs> Boy, Dave really got upset about that line, didn't he? <laughs> Don't you love, by the way, just how many things relevant to pro wrestling are able to be linked to Dave's time at Stan Jose State. <laughs> he, he knows Mill. I'm not saying he's lying. I'm just saying it's amazing. You know, Mill Mascaris being a legit judo player because a lot of guys who had been on the Mexican national team trained at San Jose State and told him told them that, that he was a legit high level judo player. Um, what else is there? Watching tapes between classes. And the uh, the the professor in that room in that lecture hall had been one who had always talked down about wrestling, and then I think it's Harley Race is going after Scrappy McGowan, and he sees it on the tape, and he's like, "Hey, why is he why is he going after Scrappy?" As if someone who hated wrestling would know Scrappy McGowan by name. <laughs> yeah, so, I'm sure there's more. I'm forgetting, but. San Jose State is to Dave Meltzer is, uh, I guess, how Seminole County, Florida is to the universe in me these days. 
It's funny, though. All that, just get that ran out. <laughs> I mean, he's a national champion caliber wrestler from a good wrestling country, so I, I, I kind of get Dave's point. Well, it's also, I think he's putting it there because he's right about Larry as an announcer here. I think if Larry... I think if Larry just made a comment about his theoretical background in a different context, I don't think it would have bothered Dave. I think the fact that he's undermining someone he's supposed to be getting over is what's bothering Dave and led to him pulling out the story. But I mean, Vera, didn't Larry do that all the time as an announcer to... Yeah, yeah, like you, like you, uh, like what, like, like whatever, like, uh, Lexi Kozis does a goddamn leg drop. Like Larry is saying that he's gonna have a short career and he's not smart like, not smart like me, Larry Zabisco. And I mean, like Larry retired when he was like thirty eight, and and Cicosis is probably having a match tonight, for all I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure he probably is. Um. And today noted during the match that Yuji Nagata should know English as his mother was the an English speaking teacher at junior high school in Japan. She taught English. Oh. There you go. So he All knows right. so he knows more words going into wrestling than probably the other people in the dojo who just know hello, goodbye, arms dragon motherfucker. You know, I I would think that you know somebody like him that knows more than, they, than people would think they would they would not let that on, you know. Well, especially coming through New Japan, especially as a shooter through New Japan, where your boss and one of your mentors who owns the company loves kayfabing people about his fluent English speaking. When all you have to do is watch the television and watch him uh, conversating with all the English speaking people, <laughs> like. Well, like he's really speaking Japanese and they know exactly what he's saying. Come on now. All right. Ultimo Dragon beat La Parca by drop kicking a chair into Parca's face at 437. Another good match. After the match, Dragon puts Sonny Ono on a Dragon Sleeper. So, and uh, Wei noted that Ono has turned into a good manager given the parameters of his role. I will say this for Sonny Ono. He definitely did improve and he became, you know, fun for what he was. Once he had a distinct mm. character and he had attributes beyond weird Japanese tourist parody, like, he he did get pretty good. Yeah, I mean, the that promo where he drops the accent and starts talking about how he thought he did it because it would help him get ahead, or how he did it because he thought he would help him get ahead, like, they didn't really follow up on that. But, like, he, there's there's times he did some good work. Absolutely. Yeah. Buff Bag will beat Glacier in Series 24 with a blockbuster. Great finishing move. Match is okay. Bagwell has the presence. Guess they've given up on Glacier. Um, you watch. This is this was uh, Buff ending Glacier's winning streak, too, as Wayne notes. Oh. And, uh, Vera, you look at Buff Bagwell at this point in time, and... The guy's been in the company for five, oh, well, almost six years, five and a half years at this point in time, and it seemed like this was his time. He was he was breaking out. He he was going to do something. Yeah, yeah, he was he, like Buff Bagwell, like his heel character, this like really obnoxious, annoying goofball. Like this is a really good, amusing character. He had become really good in the ring. I. I 
was this the match where um uh he he did this like mocking kata to to the camera and did then did a wink and then like glacier did a little comeback uh like 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 there was this really i, I, I don't know like i, I i'm th- i'm just thinking about both wells a really great character uh, this was kind of the time to do something with him, and that was accomplished by putting him in a team with Norton, but then tag teams were just kind of being phased out completely. Like, Bischoff was about to completely dismantle the tag team division over the next year until it's nothing but, like, disorderly contact and high voltage and uh, public enemy on pro. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like that's what they ended up doing with Buff Bagwell until he uh, until he broke his neck in a, in a little bit. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, he showed the definite potential here. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, like he had, uh, he he really had that. I'm not gonna say he's like this super talent, but like the, the there's a little bit more that could have been done with him. Absolutely. They get a video on Piper. Who uh, is coming on his way back in, in the next two weeks? First time they mentioned him in a while. Then we get Lismar Jr. beating Viano four. When he actually pinned Viano five, he did the switch at four ten. First time he did the switch, the other three announcers even noticed it. Second time today noticed it. It had to call attention to it as Tony and Larry were asleep. Lismar Jr. was pretty disappointing, although the crowd was chanting boring from the start. Yeah, uh, uh, these two guys, uh, they. They had their issues. Plus, it didn't really help the cause that during the early part of the match, they had Raven walking through the crowd. Uh, uh, they're the backdrop. Also, their- it just hit me. When you consider how he looked in WCW versus elsewhere, boy, did Liz Mark Jr. have bad timing. He's a guy who, if he comes along, like, 15 years later as this legacy luchador who's athletic and fairly tall and all that like he has much more of a career in the united states and i think he was generally a better wrestler in the united states in the first place i think if he had the 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 different mask he he would have 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 had a better run Oh, if he had the long hair sticking out mask earlier yes yes (laughs) i was just thinking about that yes I mean, that's was, a really good look. Yeah, absolutely. He was so generic here, and, and you know, he had the upper body and everything. I mean, he, he bulked up. So yeah, he did all this stuff after he was gone from WCW. Bad timing. All right, next Gene interview Luger. First live interview tonight. Luger said he and DDP have to team up later on the show, even though they aren't seeing eye to eye lately. Luger asked Paige to come out right then and there and bear the hatchet. Oakland said, "I did this last week with Paige, and you weren't. You didn't come out." So patient come out either. Luger said, I guess I'll get my answer in the ring. Nitro girls were dancing, and then Disco Inferno re- came out in his return and danced with him. I was right, they came out. He began dancing. Right and Disco shoved each other. Sh- Shivani slightly suggested, won't they beat each other into an oblivion so we don't deal with them anymore? When uh, when, when does the, the, the Tokyo Magnum join the Dancing Dildos? Uh, that's a year later. Uh-huh. Uh Right, help the right be humorous. Did anyone keep... ever actually call them the dancing dildo? It was, it was, what was it? it was Shivani yeah. meant to say dodos and someone misspoke and said dildos? Or was that an RSPW? Shivani called them the dancing dildos. It sounded like, you know. Yeah, that that was something that was never actually said. It was an internet thing. Dancing dildos. Yeah. 
So Ryby Hugh Morris at 544, they retained the TV title. At 445, Morris caught right on the top rim, pressed to the mat. Thought it was splashed in the corner. Disco then came to the ringside, and rather than hit Alice Wright, he punched Hugh Morris from behind. As Morris turns attention to Disco, Wright rolling for the pin. So uh, they were doing these arm tributes, uh, these little bumpers, and we have Bobby Heenan up next with a bumper and saying he wished he had more than 10 seconds to talk about how great arm was. I'm sure he was right. Uh, so then we get a third hour Nitro. Uh, they interview on Sting, which led to uh, Stevie Richards <laughs> against Damian Say Say Say. Um, Stevie wanted 25 seconds after Raven DDT Damian at ringside before he entered the ring and threw him in the ring. Richards looked baffled. He checked for a heartbeat, formed CPR, gave him mouth to mouth. Raven slapped Stevie, insisted he pin him. Raven did, I mean, Richards did, so got the easy pin. Richards wore a shirt that said, Stevie Richards equals ratings. <laughs> he celebrated. There you go. Um, as Dane noted, he's doing the clueless putts gimmick. Uh, he, was, he did an ECW, um, you know, the year or so earlier. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, who knows how different Raven is if him and Richards continued their deal here. At WCW, have not Stevie got hurt? You know, I think that kind of changes Raven. The whole Raven thing. They split it'll, up it'll, before Stevie got hurt, though. Did they split up? I can't remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Stevie's Stevie's gone like very very quickly. So they had split up before he left. Okay, I don't remember that because I thought they were still together when Stevie got hurt. And they're already split up at this point. Oh really? Well, shit. Yeah, the clash match happened already. That's right. Yeah. It all runs together in my head. So there you go. It's understandable. Especially those last few clashes. It's hard to place them at the right moment in time exactly. Well, we mentioned a clash earlier in the show, but still. Well, other than that, yes. It's just things happening in this company. Mm. There's so much. I should start asking you you quiz questions about the Clash of the Champions. (laughs) Yeah, we've already done that. That didn't work out so well. All right, um... So D. Malenko had a bumper on Arn. Uh, he said Arn was a tribute to the business. So there you go. All right. Uh, so we had the third hour Nitro starting up. Oakland interviewed Big Bubba, who went off with the NWO. Aaron Air Bischoff presented him a pink slip, kicked him out of the group when he needed him the most, except he suffered an injury. He said he wants to be known from now on as Ray Trailer, his real name. And then he's not Big Bubba. Yes, not Big Bubba. And then he squashed Prince I.K. in three minutes. <laughs> the, the boss band slam became known instead as Trailer Trash, I believe. <laughs> the Bubba Slam. And uh, Dave knows that he's going to be one of the 90 other wrestlers WCW has heading to an oblivion. When, <sighs> this, when I remember watching this and thinking, okay, we're about to have John Tenta part two here. All I think of is, I'm not a fish, I'm a man. You know, that whole deal. Yeah. And boy, that worked out well for him. And also, by this point, Bossman is already physically shot. Yeah, well, he's about to get him reemployed. So he'll be going to WF soon, so... Well, he, he, he lost enough weight to make it look like he was not physically shot for a little longer. Yeah. Alright, so here we go. It's time... Well, we have a bumper for... But right before this happened, the NWO deal... They had the J.J. Dillon tribute to Arn. So you come back from that 
to this. So let's go to Mean Gene and the NWA. And Gene oh. happens to be holding up the four fingers uh, when this chapter starts. Mm-hmm. Four. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to introduce to you the Four Horsemen. All right. Oh, thank you, award-winning WWE Network. <laughs> uh, let's let's press the refresh button because that's usually what fixes that. You mean that's the international award-winning WWE Network? Remember, we don't have that anymore. You're using Viper VPN. A tiny well, which by the way, this is a network issue. This is not a Viper VPN issue. We had the same problem at times before when we were still using the network over an American IP. I know, but I'm saying this. This is still the international version. This is not yes. Peacock. Yes, and I had to turn... For some reason, it always tells me to... Excuse me, it always has it as if I have captions turned on when I don't, but all right. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to introduce to you the Four Horsemen. All right. Oh, wow. Get your ass. Uh, oh, wait a minute. You've got to be kidding. Wait a minute. So we start with wait the a minute. What are you saying? It's like so close to the exact. Just a second. I take exception to this, gentlemen. I know exactly who you are. To think for a minute that I'm going to sit out here and condone anything you're doing. We are paying tribute tonight to one of the all-time greats, Arn Anderson. I will not stay here and let you desecrate his good name and fantastic reputation. You got anything to say? Talk to yourself, pal. Yeah, whatever, Gene. Beat it. Woo! Kurt Henning! Come on out here, Danny. We need to settle something right now. Come on, Kurt Henning. This is, this is really Come on! Fuck in a polo with a towel and a ponytail, huh? <laughs> and chewing gum. Okay. You sure wore the bag. Straight to our sport. You know, why do we... Come on out here, daddy! Why can't we just... Woo! I mean... You know, I'm not here screaming at the top of my lungs and I don't even know why. Woo! <laughs> Kurt! I don't mean to put you on the spot here, brother. Woo! What? Do we have to listen? But everybody's dying to know. It's been two months and we gotta know. Are you in? Are you out? Woo! They're making a whole mockery. Well, I tell you, Rick, you have put me on the spot here a little bit. Woo! You know I got a dog named Spot. Woo! Just to sum it up, you put me on the spot. Woo! But as bad as I hate to say it, 
Woo! I can't give you or these people an answer tonight. Woo! You know, last week was was one of the greatest moments. You know struck. something, Kurt Hennig. <laughs> and this has gone right. I knew that you were going to give us that answer, impression. so I took it upon myself oh. to give all these people a big surprise. Right now, what I'd like to introduce to you, my best friend, the enforcer of the Four Horsemen, Arn Anderson. Woo! You know, I, and I can think of all the low D, the, the things that this group has done. Guys, this is the lowest form yet. <laughs> wow. All right, Paul. All right, so... You know, supposedly, R never spoke to the guy who made the prosthetics, that makeup guy who made the prosthetics that Nash is wearing again. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Uh, Bix, you want to talk about what, what Kevin Nash, as Arn Anderson, is carrying with him? A styrofoam cooler. Now, wasn't that Arn's specific cooler? Uh <sighs> That, doesn't what? that end up be? Oh, oh, no! That's what Nash claims, isn't it? That's what he claims. That—that's what I believe. Yes, that he. Oh, and I forgot to turn the volume back up after it reloaded. But, uh, I believe that's his claim. Yes, and he also has a neck brace on. The makeup guy did a very good job, though, with the bald cap and the thinning hair on top of it, though. Yeah. Which is probably also another reason why Aaron was very pissed at him. Yeah. Alright. <laughs> this is this is not Come on, double A. I know you're having a hard time getting down can, here. Come on. Can some producer, My best friend. Can some security member stop can, can anyone put a stop to this? Would anyone look at me? What am I talking about? I'm get it. This is a total disgrace. Everybody make a little noise for the enforcer. Come on. Double A, Danny. You're looking great. I know you were taking care of more important business for, for a second. I was taking care of horseman business. Before I go any further, let me let all the horsemen out here know one thing. Guys, the beer's on ice. All right, Daddy! Woo! <laughs> Gong them. You know something that's pretty ironic? That on Labor Day, WCW would decide to honor me because anybody that's followed my career knows one thing. Y'all was wondering when I was going to go into labor. You know, I sat back there today and I watched that highlight tape of my career and I said to myself, you know, I'm a guy of average size, average speed, average quickness, 
average looks, average intelligence, average carpentry skills. But you know what? I parlayed that into a wrestling career that, if I may say so myself, was quite excellent. But you know something? This is not right. Four months ago, I had a neck injury. Subsequently, I lost the feeling in my hand, my left hand. The significance of that, that's a hand I open beer with. But you know something? I willed myself back from that injury. I got in the gym. I didn't do anything. I walked around, but I got to the gym. And you know what? I started to come back. But about a week ago, I went to the neighborhood bar. I bellied up against the bar like only I can. And a fat broad, that's right, a fat broad, came up and smacked me in the back and sent a chill down me. Same fat broads have been following the horsemen for 20 years. But as I looked at that long neck laying on that cheap industrial grade carpentry, I said to myself, how ironic. Now, it wasn't so much the fact that I was out $3.75. What it was to me was sand ticking down through the hourglass, and everybody knows, so are the days of our lives. You know, one thing you could say when Arn Anderson was coming to town, besides the fact that I left a lot of unpaid bar tabs, was Arn Anderson was coming to town. And you knew if I was on the card, I was going to give you 100%. No matter how drunk, how hungover I was, I was going to give you all I had. And back in those days before the NWO, you eight people that bought those tickets got one heck of a show. But you know what? As I come out here tonight, I ask you people, don't remember how I used to be. Remember me how I look right now. <laughs> We've reached the lowest point Good ever Mongo. On, this, on this program. We have. So, Kurt, that puts me and you and I got a challenge for you. Wait a second. I don't want to fight you because I ain't won one in 20 years. What I got for you is a challenge. Because as much as I want to be a horseman, I know if I come out here right now, I not only put him in danger, but I put my best friend in danger. And I can't do that. So what I'm doing tonight, 
because I got a challenge to you. And I ain't got much to offer you because the beer's spoken for. But what I do got is I got a spot. A spot with the four horsemen. Not just a spot, not a liver spot, not a spot like your dog spot. No, not just any spot, but my spot. So I need to know right now, do you accept it? My spot, not their spot, liver spot, dog spot, anybody's spot, my spot, to become a four horseman. Not my spot, anybody's spot, dog spot, liver spot, my spot. (laughs) As much as I want to say I'm a double-A fan, as much as I want to say I like to be a four horseman, it's hard to say because I don't like you and I don't like the four horsemen. But I tell you what, it would be an honor. <laughs> and it has been a total joke. Now, it's not funny anymore. No, it's not. I, not when you know Aaron Anderson like we do. I, I ask about security. I, I do understand security. They've had their hands full this, in, oh, this entire time with holding Ric Flair, Kurt Hennig. I wonder if they ever sold those shirts. Mongo, all the horsemen back. Maybe the most pathetic display of all from the NWO. Let let me say this, too. You NWO fans, you look at this one long because, and I do have a hand in some of these television programs during the weekend, because you're never going to see this again, ever. Everybody in this building is in shock the world when they like Arn Anderson flare at their worst what these people are all responding to is they like somebody that says what they're going to do and then they do it <laughs> oh my goodness yeah. you know the, the the MVP of that whole thing is Walton I mean he 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 cracks me up throughout the stuff is so great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He cracks me up. They overdid the pulling the mic back to say woo again, but other than that, like it was so perfect. Like hitting when the ropes to do the stride. His dancing on the stride. Exactly. His fake crying. I mean, he's the total MVP of this whole thing. This I mean, is uh it was a market step down when he had to play Mark Henry a little bit later. Well, for multiple <laughs> reasons. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so before we talk about this some more, I have this. I want Bix to play. I'm about to put it in the chat for him. All right. All right. Um, we're not – I mean, uh, Arn talking about it. You can go do that. Uh, Bischoff's talked about it on his show. I want to go way back. Let's go to Rick Flair. This is on Rick and Conrad's original show with Mark Madden as the guest, and this comes up. So let's go to Ric Flair, Conrad, Mark Madden, and Ric Flair, uh, he shines some light on what's, what happened here. So let's go to the Nature Boy. 
podcast, Mark, you've always got a fun take. We've never talked about the horseman skit that the NWO did. You were with the company at the time, and Rick, we've never got your two cents on that on the show oh, either. It was Let's brutal. talk about the horseman skit. Everybody remembers the NWO comes out. They're kind of dressed up. They're mocking Arn Anderson, offering Kurt Henning a spot. Not any spot, but his spot in the four horsemen. It was a big emotional time, and then not too long after, the NWO spoofs it. What were your guys' memories of that, and what was the kind of fallout behind the scenes? Well, it was way too tough on Arn. That was what I didn't like. There were elements of it that were funny. Nate, I don't know if you agree with this, but and I know you two have talked about it, but what was your take on Waltman's imitation of you? You know, I didn't care because I, it, it didn't affect me. Uh, what I what I didn't like was the fact that we did that that and we did that in Columbia, South Carolina. Right. Okay. And that was legitimate between Aaron and I. The emotion of a relationship. And when the doctor told me he couldn't wrestle again. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. To yeah. me, it was real. And I think it was real to him. And I think it was real to Kurt at that moment. You know, even though Kurt was kind of a prankster, he was getting the rub. You know what I mean? It was, it was, a, it was a cool deal. It was a big-time spot. And I was very emotional. When I came out of the ring, and I'll give you an example, Sting came over to me and said, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Wow. I mean, no, I mean people that get it and really care about people's careers and really care about the business and the irony of this thing, you know whose idea that was to do that? Who? Uh, he knows, don't you, Mark? To, to do the NWO skit? Yeah. No, I don't. I think I know. Who? Kevin Nash. Terry Taylor. Oh. One of Arn's best friends. I didn't know. That was his gig. Yeah, Arn, Arn, was, Arn was furious. And you know what's funny? You know what the sad thing about it is? What, 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 I, you know, me crying, okay, fine, I'm an emotional guy. There's nothing about that. And I don't mind being emotional, it's real. Um, it certainly hasn't affected my career. I mean, I'm very, no. emo- I'm very emotional about Ashley wrestling right now. Sure, um, but um, you know when you no, no, and I, and I agree, Rick, and I think that's actually a strength and far from a weakness because it adds to your legitimacy. Well, no, but I'm saying that what what cracked Iron and what hurt everybody's feelings was his son is watching that at home, right? And they're picking Iron as drinking beer all day long, right? I mean, it was a direct shot at Iron. Sure, you know that me crying, okay, fine, didn't you know? But but the what the worst thing was though, man. I go I go. I'm watching that and I'm going, man. When are we up? They never put us on the show. Oh, I didn't realize well, that. Wait, that's the thing. No rebuttal, man. That to me, never, after the fact, was no the worst. Rebuttal. You guys, I said, I'm watching Ooh, the for baby Arn. faces. Don't forget. Yeah, I said, where I, I said, Iron, watch this. This can be so easy. We just gotta go out there with these guys. Are you kidding me? Never a rebuttal. Think about that. And that's what was hard. Yeah. And that took place in Pensacola, Florida. And I could tell you a hell of a story, but I don't want to get anybody else. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it was more to it than that. Really? Darn Anderson's a tough guy. Oh, yeah, but my, my yeah, big Jesus. thing about that was I thought it was too tough on Arnrick for the reason you've mentioned. You know, in that era, well, he's, got, he's, he's got a he's got a twelve year old son. How old is his son is a two year or a year older than Ashley? I mean, nobody wants to see that. You know, right. I, you know, I mean. Yeah, I mean, we, it's not that we all don't get beat up once in a while, you know, but this is, you know, it's okay if you can go out and get your two cents in, right? But not to be allowed to say anything to follow something like that where it's really taking a shot at you? Well, that's interesting to hear because that goes against what was reported that Rick refused to go out, doesn't it? This past Friday. Uh, no, no, no. He refused to go out if they weren't doing the run-in. No, Rick just yeah. said, you're a bottle. 
No, he said it was going to be come out and do. You know, I think by rebuttal he means. No, he was not talking about promo. No, he talked promo. He said it was easy. You know. Mm. I mean, that's what he just said. Well, also one thing I forgot until we played the clip. I had forgotten that the storyline excuse is that security was holding them back. I remembered it being that they weren't in the building in storyline. Yeah. Right, and then, and then like when we were running out of the results, like at the top of the show, it's still like Benoit and Mongo had a match. Yeah. And I, and also wasn't interesting that there was no NWO member portraying Chris Benoit. Right, and then yeah, I wondered in, about uh, that. In a minute. <laughs> That's another interesting part of this, but um, the and glaring in the omission, yes. Terry Taylor's idea, huh? <laughs> One of ours best friends, huh? <laughs> when does Terry Taylor leave for the WWF? Ninety-nine. Uh, they it's were... not earlier. It said ninety-nine. Hold on, let me check because his Wikipedia, thankfully, uh, keeps very good track of this, as Rover often tweets uh let's see i think you understand where i'm going with this right okay third return to wwf they say 1998 uh, okay man. and then he's there through around when russo leaves and leaves yeah with so him. yeah just from 98's right yeah so there's a much greater than zero chance that the dx parody of the nation is his idea then he wasn't there then. He wasn't there yet That's, in June, that, whenever that was? That would be too early, yeah. So when does he leave? Uh, prob- I think, like, the fall? Or, or late summer? Okay. I mean, that... I think that's too early. Um, I'm trying to think. Where, when would he have gone into the... No, we, we talked about it before on the show. I'm, I'm pretty sure, so... I don't know, but... Yeah, I mean, we'll have more on this in the aftermath, so we'll just discuss it then. All right, Chris Jericho was supposed to wrestle Chavo Guerrero Jr., but it wound up with every wrestler backstage that they couldn't figure out how to use on the show running in and doing a mismatch of suicidal dives for no reason. Among those running around was the debut of Super Astro, who could have made a less auspicious debut and he had the job in 15 seconds. They make your debut uh, just diving around. <laughs> Isn't this quick? Let's actually, I'll, I'll skip the promo, but I want to watch the impromptu uh, Cruiserweight well, what, Battle Royale. What started, the brawl, what started the brawl was Eddie told Chavo he's tired of him disgracing the family name. Scotty Riggs then stepped in and told Eddie to cool it, and then it became a wild brawl. So. Oh, that's right. Scotty Riggs is in here, the only non-Cruiserweight for some reason. <laughs> Billy Kidman already in range. Here comes Super, Super Astro over the top row. Super Astro. Another of the luchadors from Mexico City. First time we've seen him. Well, the locker room is emptied. What about this? This is an impromptu battle royal with the cruiserweights. Well, you're never going to get this thing stopped now. Let him go. Absolutely let him go. Now, you know, the only thing I can think of here is how unfortunate for Chavo Jr. I mean, he had a shot at the cruiserweight belt. Eddie Guerrero started it all. And the referee has completely lost control. Well, why not? I mean, when the NWO came out, we lost control of the show. Why not the referee? Here come the Vianos out of the locker room. There must be a dozen competitors in the ring. Oh! This is the, well, this is the last thing we expected, but hey, 
You never know what you're going to It's live. It's live. It's unexpected. You know, in the midst of all this, Chris Jericho. Look at this. Was that Chavo from the top? And he nailed Billy Kidman, it looked like, on the floor. Billy Kidman's out there? Anybody else? Is this his base? Oh, yeah. oh. yeah, why not? Head first over the... Alex Wright, and he's a champion. What's he out here about? It, was that the Ultimo Dragon out there too, Mike? It was Ultimo Dragon and Alex Wright who are going to have a world TV title matchup at Fall Brawl. Silver King. The direction. Has he come down yet? He really is a super astro. And now Damien. Suicide died by Damien on Silver King. And Silver King's up. There's only five left in the ring now. This is this is gonna go down as the darndest, most bizarre show we've ever had. I've never seen anything like this in my life. We're not done yet. Hogan still has to come out and speak. Oh, that's good. I'm sure they'll be yucking it up. Scotty Riggs with the slingshot cross body block on, I guess, Super Astro on the yeah. floor. To- well, we've had All Super right. Astro, so that's enough. Yeah. Um, and of course, Super Astro never appears in WCW again. No. Yeah. He's right, not even so... on the Festival Day Lucha taping, right? No. <laughs> so uh, after this, John uh, has his thing, the Arn, said Arn deserved his retirement. I mean, deserved you know, the send off that he got. So uh, Bischoff comes out, and Wayne knows that he sounds more and more like the guy that uh, does these secrets to making money in commercial every week. He <laughs> means Matthew Lesko. Yes. So he, uh, Hogan comes out. Hogan's about defending more, the title more times than last year, any champion in history. That's funny. You can get Hogan a government grant to join the NWO. <laughs> Hogan said he wanted to sting. Called Stan to come out. Bischoff said, no, let the champ, we, we won't sting. Shivani says Sting was going to come up at that moment, and Bischoff and Hogan need a new pair of drawers. Hogan says Sting was in the building every week, so they had they knew where he was hiding at. Bischoff then called J.J. Dillon to come out. J.J. Dillon sprinted to the ring. Fans said, pop as much as you would have expected. Hogan had the answer for Sting, knocked Dillon on his back. Bischoff held D- Dillon's legs. Hogan leg dropped him twice, choked him, and then Bischoff spray painted bite me on the back of J.J.'s white shirt. And uh, Dave notes that Hogan gave J.J. some of the lamest punches of the 20th century <laughs> before all this happened. Good brother, uh, then, brother. Yes, right. And Savage and Hall defeated D.P. and Luger in a rematch of the Clash, if I'm not mistaken, where uh, Hall pinned Page 1026. Page and Luger, had, you know, they came out separately. They stared each other down. I mean, just all that stuff going on here. Um Luger hit Page with a flying forearm by mistake when Hall dug. Luger got savage with a torture rack. Hall covered Page. Referee got Page's shoulders down because apparently the ref was ruling Page as a legal man in the ring. Luger celebrated for a minute before discovering the actual decision. He told Nick Patch that he tagged Page in, but Patch said he never saw the tag. Wade said, This is a really strong show. The whole Four Horsemen's Week was a classic segment, all timer. And he thinks the Luger Page saga is being well done. So that's what Wade Keller thought about that. So interesting. All right, well, the Unopposed Nitro drew a 4.73 rating on September 1st, 4.48 first hour, 4.83 second hour, 4.90 third hour, 7.64 share, making the second most watched Nitro in history on Labor Day behind the week before. 
The movie Overboard, which finished with a 4.7, gave them a tremendous lead-in. So the movie before Nitro on Labor Day drew a 4.7 rating. Good God. Which is why the first hour was so strong. Ratings only grew slightly and actually ended up in the final segment almost exactly where it started. Segments saw growth and loss of significance for Silver King and Mortis, point three up. Parka Ultimate Dragon, point three up. Richard's Damien, negative four, point four. Horseman Parody Skip, point three up, which drew the peak audience at a 5.1, 3.687 million homes. And Luger, in the main event, Luger and Page because Hollis Average dropped point five. A drop that size from the main event had been built up throughout the show says a lot. Combined with surprisingly weak, rapidly declining replay rating. 1.61 rating overall with a 2.53 first hour, 1.33 second, 1.10 third, 4.41 overall share. Seems to indicate that three hours was too long that week. Well, yeah. And plus it was a holiday, for God's sakes. Um, oh, God. I just, I just had a nightmare while I was awake. I just imagined Nick Khan running WCW. <laughs> Eight-hour Nitro. Well they, well, they might still be in business. Um, so, <laughs> again, what does this say, though? I mean, you have a main event, but Hogan's not in the main event. Sting's not in the main event. I mean, you got Savage here, and you got Paige and Luger and Hall, but, you know? I don't know. It's interesting. All right, so... We're going to skip ahead to the next week's Observer. So, yes, this is te- technically out of our week, but it's the... It's the it's all dealing the, with stuff from in our week. It's the aftermath, yeah. yes. So, the aftermath of the NWS skit where they did the parody on Anderson's retirement was an interesting piece of curiosity. The angle of much of what was said and done was known ahead of time to all the particular parties being mocked. However, from all accounts after the show in Pensacola, the heat was really bad between the two sides. Suppose because Kevin Nash in particular went too far or hit too close to home on certain subjects, in particular drinking when mocking Arn Anderson. There was supposed a lot of heat from the horseman's side. Originally, the parody was supposed to end with the horseman hitting the ring and cleaning the house, while Arn never appeared before the cameras on the show, designed a tribute to him, stood on the ramp, and watched a spot on his face. However, just before the show went on the air, Terry Taylor told Ric Flair that that was being next, and it said Flair was supposed to do an interview as his comeback later in the show. Okay, so there you go. As is well-known, Flair at the segment air refused to do the interview. There's that. There's a lot of concern because of heat with Flair and Anderson after he called home based on the parody hitting home. How much of that was a work, how much of that was New Japan-style shooting angle becomes a question, particularly in the current wrestling environment. Okay. The phrasing here, I think, makes more sense out of what you were trying to figure out earlier. That the call home happens before Flair is scheduled to go out. Obviously, and that's and that's why Flair really decides not to do it because Arn has gone home and heard about his wife and Brock's reaction. I should mention, by the way, that like Nash has always painted it as like Arn was you know yucking it up. He loved it, and then and then he called home, and his family convinced him that he hated it and that he should be mad and that he's an idiot and that he needs to do a repeat of the Sid Vicious situation. I believe is the verbiage. <laughs> Uh, in the in, in the notes here, uh, <laughs> whatever. Like uh, that's that, that's one of the things that that really like upsets me when like when like this whole issue comes up. Oh, supposedly Nash is the person who who uh, kiboshed the uh, horseman running into the end and getting their heat back, you know. And then he's also all these time later saying, you know, I loved it. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's Nash, so I mean, who really knows for sure? I guess, but anyway. Um, so Flair and Anderson's reactions were an angle done in conjunction with Kevin Sullivan. They kept between those three with virtually nobody else knowing about it. Everyone else in the company was being worked. We know for certain in NWO with the other wrestlers were at the angle. If it was a work, it's more of a work on the wrestlers involved in the skit than it was anyone else. But Sullivan likes doing those things, such as attempting to work the boys and his angle with Pillman and his wife having a fair Chris Benoit, and the two even having a fake bar fight in front of nobody but the boys at their night show in New Orleans. In fact, the heat from the other side, because of what they believe was heat from the horseman side, and it's reached what could be termed scary proportions later that night, to the point there were people thinking another Arn Anderson said bitch situation. Not severe, but that basically could take place. We've learned this to be a case that Sullivan and Bischoff, stemming from last year's Pillman angle, get off on working the boys on their angles, even if it never pays off in traditional wrestling storyline fashion. And in the long run, it only leaves it even more mistrust in the natural wrestling day-to-day business produces naturally among the employees. In addition, sources close to the situation claim that Flair and Anderson's acting was too good and emotions too real for it not to have been legit. Flair's comeback angle on the September 8th Nitro, which we talked about on the Show 217 was his best interview in a long time, and nothing short of yet in a three-week of classic memorable stuff to from this angle. This brings two other questions to mind. If Flair's actions and not doing the interview on September 1st were legit, how come there's no disciplinary action taken against him for refusing to perform on a live television show? Oh, yeah, because there's no discipline when it comes to the behavior of any top star in wrestling. Not that if Rick was truly as upset as he appeared to be with the manner of the mocking of the injury force retirement of his best friend, then his actions weren't somewhat understandable. And how could the main event was changed for the September 14th Winston-Salem pay-per-view to the horse versus NWO to fit perfectly into this storyline? This change supposedly made midweek at WCW booking meetings, stemming from the reaction so strong, both positively and negatively, to the parody that the main event change was an obvious business decision. The fact that it wasn't something planned out in advance could be confirmed by the fact that Benoit was booked in Japan starting September 11th for the New Japan Tour, and neither he nor New Japan were informed that his debut would have to be delayed a week until the end of the past week. Because WCW was going to need him to stay for the pay-per-view. However, if there really was internal fear about problems occurring, changing the main event wouldn't take place. In a situation that was legit, like the Bret Hart Shawn Michaels backstage problem at Raw, because of those problems, WF was forced to keep two apart for several months rather than put them against each other as they've been planned and already been built up in the storyline. And speaking of Benoit, the angle of the NWO was supposed to bring a mannequin out to play the part of Benoit. Several reasons we're given that day as excuses as to why that was next. It was pretty clear from Nitro on the 8th that the real reason was because Hogan and Bischoff were going to use a mannequin in the skit that week. So there you go. That's the one the who was involved where... was surprised Cowboy Lang didn't play Benoit. Uh. <laughs> Cowboy Lang. Um, yeah. But uh, the mannequin the next week is the Sting mannequin fall- going through the ring, right? Yeah. Or one of the Sting mannequin angles, at least. Yeah. It's easy to see where people in wrestling would think that this was all the work because it's wrestling and it's WCW where this type of shit happened. A lot. But it wasn't. Flair and Arm were legit. Yes. So, uh, any other thoughts about this whole thing? Vera, I'll go to you first. Uh, I, it, 
to me, I mean, I, I think like creatively, like we don't really know who like the creative brain was. Well, no, we do know, like to an extent, like it, it was Terry Taylor who came up with this, but like, like the execution and the, uh, <clears throat> the like refusal uh, to let the horseman get any, uh, get anything back on the NWO. As they do a bottle promo the next week, and that was obviously also a really great segment, but. It just all that stuff that like Nash in the Arn characters said about how like they never drew any money and like it's just like a it, it, it all feels like such really like bitter sniping like, from that sort of Nash and Bischoff coalition about this goddamn like southern wrestling product that we have to make mainstream or whatever you know well it's Nash. it's nash it's really nash with anything else you know or the end of this company wasn't shit until the nwo was formed yeah i mean yeah. that's been which you know that should piss hogan off in a way because <laughs> hogan did did the best <laughs> business when he came in the company <laughs> well you know hogan should should take exception to that but Anyway, Big C, any final thoughts before we get to the rest of WCW? Uh, I think we covered most of it. All right. I think well, of anything, I'll blur it out. All right, so they tape, they tape Saturday night. Uh, they aired during our uh, time here, uh, the August 30th and September 6th, on uh, August 26th in Augusta, Georgia, for 4000 paying 49760 In key matches, they aired on August 30th. We have Ultimo Dragon beating Sakosa in a very good match. Silver King and Sonny Ono and Sakosa beat on Dragon afterwards. Glacier and Ernest Miller beat Ming and Barbarian by DQ and Rafa Morrison in a fair did a three-way. Mongo, who was over like crazy, beat Jeff Jarrett by DQ and Alex Wright and Andy Guerrero in a fair and Benoit and Henning made the save. Eugene Nagata beat Silver King in a great match, but the crowd really wasn't interested. Stevie got back together with Raven Bix. And uh, Benoit beat Bobby Eaton with Joy Mags again watching Eaton. So we were both right. Yeah. And this is the beginning of the Bobby Eaton-Joey Mags uh, relationship. High Voltage beat Johnny Grunge in a handicap match by Nick and Rocco Rock interfered and third referee Mark Curtis over the top rope. And Steiners beat Vicious and Delicious by DQ when Harlan Heat ran in and tapped both teams. September 6th, Alice Wright beat Chavo Guerrero Jr. which had been a great match. Glacier and Ernest Miller over Raph and Mortis thanks up in the face of fear. Chris Jericho beat Hector Guerrero. Scott Norton over Hugh Morris, public enemy over high voltage in a match filled with weapons. The current hang over Conan by DQ when Vincent interfered. Delightful. All right, ratings for the weekend of August 30th. Saw main event at 1.1, Saturday night 2.4, Pro 1.2. On the weekend of the 6th, main event did a 1.0, Saturday night 2.1, Pro preempted. Clash replay on the 28th year at 1.3 rating. A 2.7 share, which is well below what most Clash replays do. Was a push hard on TV, but the replays never are. So, there you go. All right, weekend house shows on August 30th in Columbus, Georgia. Drew 4,315, 73,518. And August 31st in Mobile, Alabama. Drew 3351 and 67,410. Mobile was reported this is the hottest house show for any promotion in Alabama in years, with Flair and TDP particularly getting the big reactions. They even went nuts for Scotty Riggs. <laughs> hey, good, good for Scotty Riggs. He's over in Mobile, Alabama. 
a town that was pretty much burned dead <laughs> by wrestling in <laughs> 10 years earlier. So there you go. I know weekend ratings of Villa Press Talk. We, we, we talked about that. We gave the ratings. Uh, the first episode of New Thursday show will be on uh, January 7th in Daytona Beach. So there you go. Thunder. Which hasn't got a name yet. Well, enough to certain it appears in one of the two shows, likely Nitro will be in the NWO show. Thursday show will probably be WCW show. And focus on history and tradition with features showing things through the years like they did with the opening of Nitro and Arn Anderson. Vera, could you imagine how this would have went if we would have got the NWO show and WCW show? I I think about this quite a lot because I don't think, like, this is an idea that Eric had for a long time. And I don't think we've ever really heard what that would even mean. Because the NWO is like 12 guys who are all friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what do they do if they have a show? Yeah, who are they wrestling? <laughs> I mean, is is this why like there was a Wolfpack faction that split off? You know, like that. Uh, the, That's what I it would have led that. to. That's what it would have right. led. Right. And it's exactly what would have happened. I mean, you would have had your NWO against NWO stuff there. Yeah, I know, and it because this is like a an idea that it, like Eric was like on the TV talking about like uh, the NWO is going to be the number one wrestling brand. And then WCW will be number two, and that you know what I mean. Uh, it, 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 having its own show was always the plan, and like the concept of this kind of was you know piloted and failed and sold out. And then like yeah, and I I think that they were trying to trying to give that another go by splitting up the NWO and creating his eels and faces within the group but i i, I don't know it, it's just such a tough like like if you run wcw off to thursdays to thunder like who's gonna watch this show with like the losers of the wrestling war you know yeah right? yes absolutely yeah it, 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 it like it, I, I feel like the like this aspect of the nwo angle was always like very deeply flawed and and despite the fact that it was like one of the driving concepts that eric had always been pushing for well i mean wayne wayne expounds on this it says the plan right now is for the nwo to come nitro thursday become wcw to do that the nwo will end up recruiting quite a few wrestlers doing that will help wcw avoid overworking wrestlers since top wcw names can skip most mondays the nwo wrestlers nwo wrestlers can skip most thursdays so that it would have been more WCW guys going to the NWO, and that's an interesting that, uh, and that's sort of like an interesting uh, question to to ponder. Like, who would fit? Like, Im- imagining what the NWO uh, solo like show would be like. Uh, what kind of like? Because uh, yeah, I'm imagining something not unlike the the original like Shotgun Saturday Night, except you know in like bigger venues, something like gritty and very like y- you know what i mean like shaky cam kind of music video cinematography yeah uh uh that graffiti aesthetic that sort of thing like who would fit in with that i'm i don't think they were in them black and white though no not no not of course so, but yeah i i know not how much of it also would have been doing the end of the nwo split earlier too oh that's what that would definitely would have happened earlier 
I mean, it was yeah, being teased. Yeah, it was yeah. being it's teased in January. Lay the yeah. seeds of that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were already teasing it. I would have thought. I mean, you would think that Hogan and Savage be on opposite sides, and you know, I mean, mm. that, I mean, yeah, that stuff was going to happen no matter what. Yeah. All right, uh, I put this in for picks. Chuck Tashe, the trainer of WCW, finished up on August 26th in Augusta, Georgia, to take a similar job this season with the NBA Sacramento Kings. Now you're heartbroken. Tashe to be replaced by Danny Young. Yes. So there you go. Legendary Chuck Tashe. You said you said Danny Young like the Barbarian there. <laughs> yes, he did. Um, so a great WCW employee gone. All right, there's a decent chance that Ice Trail will be returning. That does not happen at this point. He, he did not at this point. No, no. And and sadly, uh, like when he did return, it was not in like a significant role. I mean, it, I don't know. Like, is am I smooth remembered as much as that that original run? I wouldn't say so. No. No, not at all. So, there's that. All right. Um, Las Vegas did about 2,800 tickets and $130,000 for state tickets when I suffer Halloween Havoc. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Not bad at all. Um, among the wrestlers from Mexico expected in this month include the first round of CMLL wrestlers, which will include Apollo Dante, Dr. Wagner Jr., and Shocker, probably on September 8th or 15th. From Azteca wrestlers, El Tejano, Kendo, Salsero, Mr. Aguila, Black Warrior, and Jared Estrada are also likely in this month. <laughs> okay. If only. So, on this we'll list... Have, we'll, we'll have a lot more on this later, by the way. I know, but... The drama on this. You know, but of this list, Salsero is the only one who ever wrestles for WCW. Yeah. And it's only on the Festival de Lucha tapings, which is like 18 months after this. Maybe more. Um, and then, let's see, Aguila goes to the WWF instead, and no one else shows up in either promotion. Well, Dante's eventually does in WWF, but that's about it. Yeah. So. Of that list, and based on what the fans expected out of Lutadors at that time, um, I'm guessing that Choker would have done the best. In WCW of that list, right? Yeah. You know, and this is Masked High Flyer Shocker, but that's part of the reason I think he'd do better than the others. Yeah. Black Warrior could do well, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But the others... Kendo, if he was younger, probably could have. But, you know, Aguila was still green, and... A lot of the other guys are, you know, like solid Rudo, great Rudos who are great hands, but are not going to be flashy and impressive to hold on to, you know, full-time WCW contracts or anything like that. Oh, and uh, I did some snooping on Chuck Tasha. He passed away in 2014. Oh, that's terrible. He was 72 years old. Older than I would have thought, I guess. I think he would have been 55 here. He was a well-preserved 55. Yeah, he was the Air Force man. There's a, he got all kind of stuff going I on. I would have thought he was younger than Arn Anderson. Yeah. Remember, Mr. Jr. met with Dr. James Andrews, who's examined his knee and said it wasn't bad. He's being fitted with a brace. Should be back in action probably on September the 8th. Or good for him. 
Wade notes that Kevin Sullivan is working on a new Terry Taylor, reversing their role from before Sullivan's hiatus. Problem is, Taylor's paid quite a bit less than Sullivan at this point, which could lead to problems. Well, it's WCW, so of course it'll lead to problems. <laughs> it sure would. That's that the type of thing always do. Imagine to ask Scott Hudson. Yeah. Imagine 10 years earlier hearing that Kevin Sullivan was working underneath for Terry Taylor. <laughs> yeah. All right, the August 31st Charlotte Observer, also for the Torch, made a brief mention of the fate of Kevin Green's wrestling career in 1997 with the San Francisco 49ers. 49ers didn't make Kevin Green totally happy with the contract they gave him last week because the steep place he can't wrestle. Bummer, said Green, who was allowed to wrestle by the Panthers. I guess Rick Flair would be on the phone with the 49ers about that. Speaking of Flair, word is that Green sold him his Carolina P- PSLs. On August 27th, columnist Tom Sorensen and Rick Flair apologist wrote about Green leaving the Panthers and acknowledged that Green strut belonged to Ric Flair because Tom Sorensen is a Ric Flair apologist. Yes. Tom Sorensen's the one that wrote the column asking for fans to boycott WCW, right? Yeah, and and PS makes you know what a PSL is, correct? I feel like I do, but I'm forgetting. It's a real sports thing. PSL's is personal seat license. For uh, a st- you know the football games in the stadium. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You buy the seat, and basically you own the seat, so to speak. Hmm. Yeah, that's how the, that's one of the big hooks that to get these new stadiums is to get these PSLs, where the you spend this money on the seat, and then you ha- you own the seat. And basically, if I'm correct, and somebody please, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you own the seat for any event that happens in that building. So oh, stuff like that. When I when I went to SummerSlam '98, my dad got those box seats from a friend who worked at CBS because it was CBS's syndication division, and they had like a permanent box at MSG for every. Yeah, event. well, love, well, luxury box for sure. I'm talking about this is like seats inside just an individual st- seat. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, but luxury box definitely, but this is like in seats. Interesting. So, all right. Um. Also from the torch, Steve and Deborah and Michael are friends of Harvey Schiller. Hmm. The head honcho oversees WCW, who Mary Bischoff answers to. Because of that privileged relationship and Mongo's cushy schedule, pretty much only major TVs and pay-per-views, he has heat in the locker room. Wrestlers are less apt to forgive him when he makes mistakes in the ring, and wrestlers get upset when he pins wrestlers who have much more experience than he does, such as, just in the last two weeks, Jeff Jarrett and Eddie Guerrero. There was locker room heat because Deborah didn't go on the road with Jared at recent house shows where Jared main evented. It's customary for a manager to be in ringside, at least for the top bouts. In fairness to Deborah, it isn't her decision not to go on the road with Jeff Jarrett. Jarrett actually asked that she not go on the road anytime her husband, Stephen Michael, isn't also on the road. Jarrett apparently feared accusations coming up with them on the road together and realized with him and Michael's relationship with Harvey Schiller that Jarrett would be the odd man out if controversy resulted. Deborah agreed to that step, so she wanted her character to be linked with Jarrett rather than her husband. Well, if you ever wanted a taste that's not from his current podcast of what kind of guy Jeff Jarrett is, especially compared to other wrestlers. And Jeff, I mean, Jeff was, I mean, Jeff and Jill were married at this time, and Jeff loved Jill. Oh, they were high school sweethearts. Yeah, I mean, that was the love of his life. You know, and he's been married, you know, married Karen, and they've been together for all these years. But I mean, Jill was his his love, you know. And of course, she died of cancer, and all that went on there, sadly. So, 
And Jeff knows what the wrestling business is regarding the situations like this. This is a woman married to another man, uh, putting her on the road without her husband. Whether I mean, it would be Jeff himself, but all those other wrestlers, you know. And we also need to remember, I don't know how close they are as friends yet at this point, but Jeff and Deborah would become very good friends, too. Yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. But I think Jeff was all about protecting that marriage more than anything else. But also, also, compared to other wrestlers, would be like, oh, I get to do this. That's I mean that's what I'm saying. It just it, it's all one on top of the other, and he also knows that even if nothing happens, it could still make him look bad. Yes. So. Yeah, Jack Jarrett. Oh, I mean, good intentions. I just realized something though. What? Um, year and a half or so later, is the proposal of the angle where Owen gets the crush on Deborah that he nixes. While he's teaming with Jeff in their unit, you can see how yeah. Owen and Jeff got along very well. Yes. Well, it, it a lot of similarities with those two guys. Owen and Martha. I mean, His high school with- sweetheart, sons of promoters, yeah. started young in yeah. wrestling. Absolutely. There's a lot of simpatico there. Yeah. All right. Well, let's close out with this. And of course, it's WCW. Everybody moment. Satellite Direct Magazine in September issue has a photo of Randy Savage with the cut line saying to check out Randy Savage every Monday night on USA Network's Monday Night Raw. Love you, everybody. I really hope that wasn't going everybody. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> every day. I, 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 I mentioned this before, like on Twitter and stuff, but like my favorite incarnation of this is one or two articles that, uh, Mentioned the WWF twice, once as uh, the New York office and another time as its rival in Atlanta. <laughs> uh, like, 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 like those have been read on this show. You know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I can't believe it's. They, well, uh, I've said it before. They, they never got respect for the national media. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I remember watching sports center when Hogan, you know, was you know, in WCW and, and or, or Kevin Green, perfect example. They would talk about WWF, you know, yeah. Green got his WWF yeah. on or something it, like that, you know? Yeah. And, and, and we talk about how like Vince having the, the New York market really like uh, allowed him to expand nationally. It also but, like allowed him to yeah. like just imprint his the WWF as like the synonym for wrestling. It's like the only kind of wrestling that exists. And, and, and that's, and that still goes on today. I know that's, exactly. That is, a, that is a battle that, that AW is going to be fighting for, for a while. Continued unabated, even through like the period where it was not the biggest wrestling company, even in the country. No, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Just like here, but it's a battle. I mean, they're, they're going to fight because they are what they was perceived as wrestling. Yes. Yes. So, well, Vera. Anyway, you're uh, you're going to be leaving us uh, now. Uh, you're only part of this segment. So, uh, if there's anything yep. you want to plug, go ahead and plug away. No, I don't really have any other projects I'm doing. Uh, that's about it, really. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at at Still Your Ghost, uh, but I'm not really too active on there right now. Uh, I'm you know I'm working all the time. Um, other than that. 
Glad to be on. Talk to you some other time. All right. We appreciate that. And me and Bix will be back right after this. Well, me and Bix will take it the rest of the way now as we go into the land of the rising sun. And we'll start with All Japan Pro Wrestling, where the big show of the week was August 26th at Nakajima Sports Center in Sapporo for near sale of 5,800 fans. The double main event saw Gary Albright and Dr. Def Steve Williams retain their double tag titles, beating Mitsuharu Masawa and Junakayama in just 8.42 when Albright scored his first pinfall ever on Masawa using a dragon suplex. The other bout was first singles match ever between two of the great workers of the past decade, as Kenta Kobashi handed Hiroshi Hase his first defeat since joining the company by pinning him after a lair in 32-49. The results of the card, you have Shoshi Kikuchi of Masao Inoue, Kataro Shiga and Yoshinari Ogawa over Daisuke Akeda and Satoru Sako, Johnny Ace over Timon Honda, Giant Baba, Rushkamur, Miso Momoto over Juna Zamita, Haruka Egan, and Masafuchi, Kamala Tu and Monokia Mossman over Stan Hansen and Johnny Smith, Toshiro Kawada and Kiratawa over Takao Mori, Excuse me. Toshiaki Kawada, Akira Tawe, and Takao Mori defeated Tatsuo Nakano, Yoshihiro Takayama, and the, the Cross, Wolf Hotfield, then uh, Kabashi over Hase, and then Doc and Albright over Masawa and Akiyama. I haven't seen that Kabashi Hase match in forever, so I can't even remember it that good. Um, you would think with that match with these two guys, that would be one of the more memorable matches. But again, I don't really remember it. I remember it being good, but if I remember right, it's... And I'm not saying this in a negative way. It's kind of your Hase special post-retirement match. Where... It's on YouTube, so I'll, I'm going to check it out. But you get what I'm saying where it's like a very solid Hase-style technical match. Yeah, the full match is on YouTube. You got the TV version and the full match. So The full version from the Kabashi DVD set, I'm guessing. Yeah, so I'll just check that one out. It's been a while. I, it's been a very I mean, that's time. a dream That's a dream match right there. Right. I mean... The two big singles... that be an all-time were, class? ...were Kabashi, and I think he did one with Kawada, too, around the same era, right? Yeah. Never with Masawa, though. Or Akiyama, I don't think. No. Yes, Hase builds this honorable career outside wrestling. The selfless great wrestler and booker in you know in wrestling, and then it turns out he's a pervert. Oh yeah, Akiyama. Oh, he did do Akiyama. That's right. May May first in Tokyo Dome at ninety eight. That's right. Akiyama right. beating him. They're, they're the you know the great amateurs. But and he had Ka- and he had Kawada the next year, in ninety nine. That's right. So only myself. Pervert, huh? You didn't hear about that? No, I missed this one. It was within like the last year or two that he did something with a school and a bunch of girls have accused him of being inappropriate. Uh, hold on, let me see. Well, he did have a mustache. He had a fairly creepy mustache, but he pulled it off. Okay, here I go. The first English, you know, Google result is from uh, Mainichi, okay? Or Mainichi, I guess it's called. A uh, group for troubled teens in Japan alleges sexual harassment during visit by legislators. This is from April of last year. So, easy to miss given everything that's going on at the time. Yeah. A group supporting teenage girls suffer. Oh, God, it's worse than I remembered in that sense. Uh, suffering from abuse, poverty, and other issues through temporary... Supporting them through temporary cafes has sent a protest to five ruling party legislators and Tokyo Shinjuku Ward assembly members alleging sexual harassment and other problematic behavior by lawmakers during a recent cafe visit. 
The group Colabo is demanding that Hiroshi Hase, a legislator in the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, who formerly, excuse me, formerly served as education minister, admit he sexually harassed a teenage girl and apologize. It's also seeking reflection and apologies from the other legislators who visited the cafe. Um, it happened a few days earlier on April 22nd. Uh, it's a formal protest and request. Um, I don't remember if they actually what the if there was a specific allegation, but I don't remember if much came of this since then. But yeah, sexually harassed. Um, according oh here we go. According to the support group, uh, when the girl was setting up a light at the cafe, Hasi came from behind her, saying, "Move out of the way a bit," and placed both his hands on her hips. The girl immediately ran away, and afterwards, she reported to a Colabo staff member that the incident had her. Okay, so he... The absolute best-case scenario is he has bad boundary issues. That's the best-case scenario. So, there you go. About people's personal space and bodily autonomy. So that's uh, not great either way. But I believe but, it, 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 if just because no one's going to make up an allegation that's just that. Yeah, but it could have been... It could have been... It, an innocent move on his part. I don't think it was a sexually related thing. But it's sound. also, but also, don't touch other people if, unless they ask you to. Yeah, but so, again, you know, there's some. Well, Japan's never on, met before, <laughs> and, and Japan, you know, that's kind of a different place in ways. So, you know, who knows? Hmm. But anyway, it's, yeah, it could it could have been worse, but that way. So, all right, New Japan Pro Wrestling. Shinyashimoto's run as the longest reign heavyweight champion in Major League promotion came to an end on the same day that Kira Maeda stepped foot in the New Japan ring for the first time in more than 10 years. Kesuke Sasaki captured the IWGP title from Hashimoto before an overflow crowd of 18,000 fans on August 31st in Yokohama Arena. Maeda, who started his career in New Japan before being fired from the promotion in 1987 for his infamous shoot kick on Riki Choshu, and in some ways contributed to making him one of the more enduring lasting legends of Japanese pro wrestling history, Showed up unannounced in the ring to congratulate Ricky Choshu in his retirement ceremony and got a huge reaction from the crowd. Obviously, it was on a lifetime ago in the careers of both wrestlers as Maeda and a shoot kicked Choshu hard in the eye, breaking his overall bone during a six man match while Choshu was basically defenseless as he was holding a wrestler in the Scorpion Deathlock. Maeda was fired from New Japan, not exactly from that incident, which caused both wrestlers to miss the important tag tournament that year, but for refusal to accept his punishment, a fine. A tour in Mexico and had to return and put Choshu over clean. The fine that was by New Japan. Instead, Maeda got the financial backing and started his own promotion, UWF2, which became the hottest wrestling promotion in the world for a short time. In many ways, it was revolutionary and paving the way for groups such as K1, UFC, Rings, and Pack Race, which all catered and garnered interest in Japan from a fan base originally created by Maeda's UWF, which split into several promotions a few years later. On July 6, Maeda, who himself will be retiring next year, Surprisingly, showed up at a major war show, his first time at traditional wrestling show events since 1987, to congratulate Tenyu Gurichiro, who was celebrating his 20th year as an active pro wrestler. Yeah, that's a big fucking deal for Maeda to show back up in New Japan and to congratulate Choshu, of all things. So, when do we think he originally buried the hatchet with the. With oh, the... probably in the, in the 90s sometime, you know? It got to the point where, hey, you know, we're doing different things now. Time's fast. You know? why? And a lot of that, a lot of that at the time was professional jealousy. Yeah. You know? 
there's a lot there was a lot of egos in that company at that time. And uh, Maeda, I'm sure, was definitely pissed off that Joshu came back and him and his crew were starting to get the big push. You know? Yeah. So. Well, especially that he came back right as Maeda and company were finally kind of out of the clutches of the UWF versus New Japan view, too. Yeah. But the, the Shingun didn't return really through a wrench into New versus Now. Um. Well, Joshu was back before then. Wait, so when did they start it? When did they start? When did Choshu return? When did Choshu return to TV? And when did New Virtue Leaders Choshu's Now first match start? Choshu's first match back was in June. And when did New Leaders versus Now Leaders start? Uh, after that, I think July. Okay. So when do they so, go back to UWF versus? Don't they brief? Don't they end that and briefly go back to UWF versus New Japan too? No, it's all kind of all clustered, so to speak. Because okay. Maeda. Yeah, Maeda and Takata were on separate sides, but then they they would team back up together. It's so it's so weird the whole thing. So weird. Yes, I mean, in general, New Japan in 1987 is very complicated. It's hot as shit, though. Oh my god. Well, the TV show isn't, but other businesses. My god. Sasaki, who in August won both the IWGP title and IWGP Tag title with Kazuo Yamazaki. On August the 10th at Nagoya Dome and the G1 Climax Tournament beating Hiroshi Tenzan in the finals, August 3rd at Sumo Hall, is being given the biggest push in a long time within New Japan's organization. He was also put over the tournament in September 96 and followed the top names for both New Japan and WCW. Sasaki captured the IWGP title for the first time in his career on a show honoring his mentor, who will be retiring on January 4th at the Tokyo Dome. After winning the title, Sasaki immediately challenged Choshi for what will almost surely be the Tokyo Dome main event and be a sure sellout. Sasaki was generally considered the worst worker, at least over the big four who were programmed by Choshu to dominate the New Japan single scene. Hashimoto, Sasaki, Muda, and Chono has never beaten Choshu in a singles match. Originally, he was supposed to get his first career win over Choshu in a 96 G1, but injured to Junji Harada screwed up the plans and made it necessary for Choshu to beat Sasaki to get the necessary points to reach the finals. Since the end result of that tournament was for Choshu to go over. Hashimoto had held the IWGP title, New Japan's belt, which created in 1983 as being the championship considered one step in stature above a World Heavyweight title. Since April 29, 1996, when he defeated Nobuki Takata, the Tokyo Dome for 65,000 fans and a $5.9 million game. Second largest crowd in Japanese wrestling history, and second largest gate in all of pro wrestling history. While the title change describes a good match in 1654, once I got the pin with his wife's patented finisher, the Norman Lights Bomb, was the main event, there's little doubt it was Choshu who drew the house. The match took place just one week after a well-reported tragedy in the Hashimoto family, where his mother-in-law died at being hit by a car and protecting the life of his two-year-old daughter. Damn. What do you think about what, I mean, what do you think about Dave's thoughts on Kensuke here? Um, at this time, was he really the worst worker of those four guys? You know, the I mean, Musketeers plus Kensuke? I don't think, I don't think so, because, I mean, it at depends this time, on how you're, It really depends on how you're viewing Chono and Muto. Very. I mean, I've watched a lot of their '97 stuff recently, you know, uh, from the commercial tapes, and uh, very hit and miss, and a lot of gimmick. I mean, a lot of gimmick stuff because it's NWO time. Yeah. I mean, when it came time for Chono to have his big major match stuff, and yeah, he was better. But and Muto now doing the Muta gimmick in Japan, so you know what goes on there. 
Chono so, was decently consistent, though. I would say he's a lot more consistent than Mudo in this era. Yes. So, but Kensuke was, Kensuke was not bad. No. The biggest problem with this Kensuke singles push, though, which we've talked about before, is that they went way too far into making him over as a straight-up Choshu clone. That's the problem, yes. He was better off as a bicycle shorts, uh, funny haircut, Kensuke. Yes. Whereas here, he switches to the Choshu trunks, switches to... He doesn't wear the same colors, but he wears the Choshu-style short boots. Gets it's the black. Cho- yeah, it's black instead of white, but he... He gets the Choshu-style boots, gets the Choshu-style hairdo. The only difference is the uh, is the goatee, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it just made him... It made him look like Choshu Jr. Yeah. And he couldn't be an individual. Ama- amazing, isn't it, that as soon as, soon as he, he extricates himself from uh, Ricky Choshu is when he finds his charisma and his love for wrestling and everything. Yeah, when he had, I mean, in, in this time period, but right before this, he's, you know, either Kensuke or, you know, a Hellraiser or Power Warrior. So it's a marked shift in his career. So, but anyway, regarding Choshu, the crowd went crazy for Choshu as it has in all of his matches as he announced his farewell series. All Choshu merchandise sold out in record time at the show, which likely drew the biggest non dome or outdoor stadium show gate ever in Japanese wrestling history. Choshu was putting the old generation superstars versus NWO six-man tag team with Tenru and longtime rival Tetsumi Fujinami against Muda Tenzan Hiro Saido, taking the place of an injured Chono. Muda's face was painted with black lettering that said, Bye-bye, Choshu! That's fantastic. After Choshu pinned Saido with his lair in 856, had a retirement ceremony in the ring. Among those honoring Choshu were Tenru, Fujinami, Maeda, longtime tag partner Animal Hamaguchi, and his daughter, current world champion in women's freestyle wrestling, Kyoko Hamaguchi, along with Antonio Inoki. During the ceremony, Choshu said emphatically that unlike virtually every other wrestler who announces retirement and then comes back, he will never wrestle again after January 4th, to the point that most believed him. It's generally expected that after retiring in January, Choshu will, when it comes to duties, will take over president. Maybe not name right away, but eventually name as well the company for Seiji Sakaguchi. That does not happen. He's the booker, but he's never the president. Saguchi's the president until he, until he decides to retire, and then that's when Fujinami takes over. Yes, and okay, let me make sure I have this. Now, right. now, now, Kasuji Nakajima Nakashima gets put in charge at one point somewhere in there, and he was Choshu's guy. So Choshu may have not have been president by name, but. He had the voice of the president, put it that way. Yes. Now, do you recall how long he's out after his retirement match, before he returns, and then before when he returns full-time, or closer to full-time? I mean, he comes back in 99, doesn't he? Comes back in 99 for the one shot with Onida. Onida, yeah. And, and then, then full-time in 2000. 2001. 2001. Oh, no, yeah, excuse me, Onida's 2000. No, 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 he doesn't come back in 99. No, yeah, 2000, that's it, that's it, yeah. So he's out for... He's out for two and a half years. Yeah, and he co- and the reason why he comes back in 2001 is because they lose Hashimoto. Yep. So. So the deal is here is what? He's doing a big retirement c- ceremony on like every major show until the 4th, till January 4th? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Okay. 
and the people here is just like is Maeda is at this one because he lives in the area or something, I guess. Um, I mean, it's a big show. I mean, it's the Yokohama Arena. So, I mean, or is this the first match of the countdown? Maybe too. I don't know if it's the first match, but anyway, it's early in the run. All right, besides Choshu match and WGV title change, the top matches of the show saw Naoya Gawa beat Scott Norton with a triangle choke and Achilles tennis submission combo at 625. Nerf restart the match. After the match, Anoki, working on Gawa's corner, got into it with Chono, who's in Norton's corner, and will be returning from his ankle injury on the next tour. Shinjiro Otani retained the J-Crown in what was reported to us as the best match on the show, beating Koji Kanemoto in 2020 with a dragon suplex. The two slapped each other after the match, and Kanemoto asked for a rematch, and Otani agreed. Jushin Liger reestablished himself as number contender for the J-Crown, painting Tatsuto Takeiwa in 17 minutes with the show tape. The other top match saw Tiger King, Sayama, and Kunao Kobayashi, his main big rival, team up to beat Kendo Kashin and Kazuya Yamazaki in 852 and Kingpin Kashin with a Tiger Suplex in a so-so match. All right, the rest of the card here. Kazuki Fujita over Yutaki Yoshie in the opening match. Osama Kido and Takashi Yuzuka over Tadao Yasuda and Junji Harada. Satoshi Kojima and Manama Nakanishi, bull power, over uh, Akira Nagami and Kengo Kimura. Yatari King Kobayashi over Kashin Yamazaki, Liger over Takiwa, Otani over Kanemoto, the uh, Shoshu Six-Man, Ogawa over Norton, and then Kensuke over Hashimoto to win the IWGP title. And this is the seven-belt J-Crown, right? Uh, yes. Because they've returned the WWF belt, but War has not pulled out yet, I don't think, right? No. Well, because also once War pulled out, they just gave up on it, if I remember right. Yeah. Loaded show. Yeah. I enjoyed the Tiger King run here. Like, I just like seeing Sayama back in the New Japan ring. Even though, I mean, it wasn't the great matches, per se, but it was just fun seeing him back in there with his contemporaries. and well, guys also, because yeah. this is the first time it really looked like he's having fun. Yeah. He's a little thicker in the body, but still, I mean... He's into it here in a way he was not in his previous 90s comebacks. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Fun show. Kanemoto Otani, everybody needs to see that match. It's fucking awesome. All right, Battle Arts. They ran Sapporo on August 30th. We have Nehiro Hoshikawa over Mamoru Okamoto. Watoru Sakata over Ikoto Adaka. Hiroshi Ono over Carl Greco. Alexander Otsuka over Katsumi Yasuda. Yuki Shikawa over Minoru Tanaka. And, and I think Hiroshi Ono should be Takeshi Ono. And Daisuke Akeda over Victor Kruger. And yeah, that should be Takeshi Ono. Because no way Deadly Fred's on this show to beat Carl Greco. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Also, holy shit, is this a loaded top-to-bottom show for early battle arts? Oh, yeah, man. Absolutely. Ba- I mean, I watched the battle arts show from uh, TV from 96 before we recorded this, and... I mean, yeah, I mean, they were having all kinds of people on those shows, man. They, were, they had a nice group of talent, both the regulars and the guys that were bringing in as outsiders. Like, well, Toro Sakata's here, you know, he's not a battle arts guy. He's a ring guy. Yeah. FMW held a press conference announced their September 28th show at Kawasaki Baseball Stadium and announced the main event being billed as a super real explosion time bomb death match between Asushi Onita and Wing Kanamura. O'Neill at the press conference said that if he lost to Kanemura, he'd retire from wrestling. 
That one takes a lot of nerve. Well, he is the big dog of the World Wrestling Federation and the Tribal Chief. <laughs> um, Hayabusa, Masato Tanaka, Koji Nakagawa won the FMW World Street Fight six-man titles on August 31st at Corken Hall. From the Gladiator, Mike Awesome, Hitsukatsu Oya, and Mr. Ganasuke. On the same show, Gato beat Ricky Fuji and won the Rocky Mountain Mid-Heavyweight title. Love it. FMW's led with injuries, including Oya, blown out knee, Hido, bad neck, Flyke Chihara, bad knee, and women's wrestlers Yoko Ikeda and Rie, bad necks. Eh, not great. So, in this era, Ricky Fuji is making regular trips to his friends in Calgary, I guess. Well, that's the belt he had. Yeah. Uh, Hall, that's August 31st show for a 21.50. Ricky Morton and Tetsuhiro Kuroda over Mr. Pogo number two, Kasaku and Hayato Danjo. Crusher Mayo Damari over Kero Nakayama. Gato Ifuji for the Rocky Mountain Midway title. Aja Kong over Miwasato. Wayne Kanemura, Hideki, Hideki Asaka beat Shocker and Super Leather. And then Hayabusa Tanaka Nakagawa over Gansuke Oya and Gladiator for the six-man titles. Quite the interesting show there, Bix. For what it's worth, the only Canadian result that Cage Match has for Ricky Fuji is from 2004. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. Interesting All right. shows here. Yeah. As we continue with our uh, FMW-based stuff, the continuous feud with women, uh, Koto Fuyuki, Gato, and Jado have signed with women's promotion JD. Gato will have singles matches against Jado most of the time. Fuyuki is going to work as a special referee. They're doing an angle where Fuyuki has been at their dojo learning how to ref. It appears they're going to build up a singles match with Fuyuki against Jaguar Yakota, and if Jaguar loses, Fuyuki can run the company. Sports entertainment, brother. <laughs> oh, man. Sounds like a hoot, doesn't it? What do you think Fuyuki thought of the actresses? Oh, I'm sure he loved them. Yeah, he loves sports entertainment so much. And here, they, they're taking models and, and actresses and training them to wrestle before WWE did. That's right. Trendsetters. I, innovators there at Yoshimoto Pro. Mm-hmm. IWA Japan. Negotiation to send Paul Barlow's IWA fell apart. Aww. So they didn't have their own Missy Hyatt, I guess, to uh, seal the deal, huh? Well, she didn't actually do anything. <laughs> I know. The the whole urban legend story, you know. Well, hasn't she said that she, that she said she participated in the scheme? She just said she had no intention of providing any sexual favors to Paul Verilands, I believe. Who follows me on Twitter, so... Missy or Paul, Ver- Paul Verilands? Yeah, so props to him. Okay. All right, Michinoku Pro. Super Dolphin appeared, but didn't wrestle the Michinoku Pro show on August 31st in Sendai, so he'll be returning to the group. He showed up without his mask, wearing sunglasses. Apparently, this is an angle to build up the October 10th show. It's his first match back, which will be Sumo Hall, their big show of the year. Michinoku Pro signed both Chris Candino and Sonny to appear on the show, along with The Undertaker. Yes, and... It's interesting how, like, you know, especially if you watch the Samurai TV version of that show, it's clear from the recap video, like, all this has been angled. This is mm-hmm. the, this is the fallout from the angle where Kai and Tai makes him crawl between uh, Togo's legs, all subservient and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's all this is. And then, uh, at the Sumo Hall show, Delphin shows up looking uh, 
in the words of I forget who did the Death Valley Driver video review of the show, looking Steinerized. <laughs> yes, he got jacked. Yes, no shirt all of a sudden. And it's hilarious, too, because he is doing the most suck-in-my-gut-I-am-a-muscle-man walk slowly to his entrance music. <laughs> he looks oh, like Will Mascaris with confidence issues. <laughs> well, the Soa Sendai drew 1438. Will Wilkins Jr. over Masato Yakushuji. Jensei Shizaki over Nehara Shikawa. Grand Amada over Shoichi Fanaki. UWS Super Welterweight title, Mince Teo, Retain over Tiger Mask 4, and Dick Togo over Great Sasuke, your main event. I always liked how they kept going as long as they were there. The Teo-Tiger Mask feud, kind of separate from the rest of the Kai and versus Psychic Gun stuff. Yeah. You know, you didn't necessarily have, like, consistent mid-card feuds like that in, or like, maybe not mid-card, but like, members of the squads who reach other's opponents, I guess outside of Togo and Delphin. But other than that, they didn't pair off in big singles feeds that much. No. Pro Wrestling Crusaders. Ooh. They ran August 27th at Haneda Tokyo Hotel Garden Place from 100 fans. We have a different style fight. Matsukatsu Nagasi went to a draw with Ryu Ito. Red Crusader number two beat Toshiki Maria. Shatoru Kamoi and S Rush defeated Masaru Tobita and Mongolian Man by referee's decision. That would, of course, be friend of the show Survival Tobita. Survival Tobita, yes. I know he follows Shun- me on Twitter. Does he follow you on Twitter? <laughs> no. Aww. And Shunji Takano and the Great Sasuke beat the Mass Falcon and Switch Fanaki. Wait, he's teaming with Sasuke. Why isn't he Giant Zebra? <laughs> it's pro wrestling crusader so he's got to be himself yeah. he's a top star i hadn't realized that Adeki until the stuff after he died that Adeki osaka kind of started out with them yeah he, he his main training was in their dojo yeah and apparently training under uh shinji takano was not fun oh i'm sure it wasn't it got much better once uh mr hito showed up uh tokyo pro wrestling Takashishikawa's new Tokyo Pro Wrestle Corporation up in October. Wait, new? It's a so new version. A this, is a, this is not the Tokyo Pro that had just run. Okay. This would be, um, I think this is what, Oriental Pro? No, Oriental Pro was a room ago. Okay, whatever. Tarzan Goto and SCB joined the group and few with Vishikawa on top. Also announced on the first tour, Banyan's Allen and Ken Johnson from Calgary and that Shepay Jerry Barrow would come as a referee. Okay. Allen, who won a bronze medal in 1976 Olympics in judo, issued a challenge to Naoyo Gawa. Uh, okay. in, all in fairness, they were only three Olympics apart. That would have been something. Too bad that never happened. Yeah, they got more indie scum though. Wet Wrestle Dream Factory. I like how you almost called it Wet Dream Factory. <laughs> At Sanyo Electric Baseball Grounds on August 30th, Makoto Saino and Masashi Motegi of a Cosmo Soldier and Kamikaze. Gokaku Imibozu and Shinichi Nakano over Masakazu Fukuda and Takeshi Sato. And then an eight-man battle royal with those guys all in it, and Takeshi Sato was the winner. Kind of a uninspiring Wrestle Dream Factory show. Kingdom. Former UFC fighters Patrick Smith and Mutti Horenstein. Excuse me, both... the first Jewish UFC fighter. The actual <laughs> first Jewish UFC fighter. Both debut in pro wrestling on the September Oh, wait, 30th. no, that's later in the show. Sorry. 
Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, both TV and Pro Wrestling on September 3rd uh, for Kingdom at Cork and Hall 4 Sala. 2,300 fans doing jobs respectively for Yoji Anjo and Kazushi Sakuraba. For results of this show, Shizuki Matsui, Daijiro Matsui, over Wayne Haas. That is Daijiro Matsui? Yes. Okay. Masita Kakihara over Masao Orihara. Yoshiro Takayama over Billy Scott. Mitsu Kanahara over Yui Sano. Kadichi Namimoto over Nicholas Starks. Sakuraba over Hornstein. And Anjo over Patrick Smith. Any idea who Starks is? Or has? Probably Probably just some, uh, you know, MMA type guys. I don't know. Who knows? All right. Joshi. On Japan Women. They ran Tokyo on August 31st. Nane Takahashi over Miho Wakazawa. Yuki Shina over Miyuki Fuji. Saya Endo over Tiny Mouse. Tiny Mouse. LCO. Esko Mita and Mima Shimoto over Momonakanishi and Tomoko Watanabe. Mm-hmm. Shafrita Sari over Yoshiko Tamura. Mm-hmm. And Yumiko Hoto and Karu Ito over Manami Toyota and Misai Genki in the main event picks. <laughs> you still have a very talented roster in 1997. And you're inventing yeah, you... with Masai Genki. Yeah. That's is, talent. Is she wearing the armored gear yet? <laughs> Who knows? She might have been. Kyoko anyway held a press conference on September 2nd and said that unlike Aja Kong, when she left All Japan Women, she'd have a play I worked out. <laughs> well, that explains Neo then. The word is that she's offered her services at a very low rate to the different indie groups. Yumi Fukawa, who also quit All Japan Women last week, isn't garnering any interest. Which is interesting because she ends up going with Aja Kong Tarasian. Mm hmm. So. Well, at this point, Ange is just being a freelancer, right? Yeah. Because there's no Arsene in the pipeline yet. No. When does Rossi leave? 98. So he starts Arsene basically right after he leaves. Yeah, I guess. Okay. All right, Gaia. They ran Cork and Hall in front of 1500. Sonoko Kato and Shikai Nagashima over Rina Ishii and Sakura Roda. Sugar Sato and Toshi Yamatsu over Makai Namao and Meiko Satomura. Then Nagashima and Sonokokata beat Maiko Matsumoto and Omikado. Sato and Imatsu beats Kato and Nagashima. Then Sato beat Umatsu. And in their main event, Chikusa Nagaya and Akira Hokuto over Karu and Toshio Yamada. Is this the most Gaia washouts we've had on one show? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so as far as people who don't stick around, we've got... Sonokokato Kato has gone, gone before long, right? She yeah. lasts longer than most, but she's still not there very long. Uh, Rini Ishii, Maki Numao, Maiko Matsumoto, Amami Kato. So that's five. And four if you don't count Sunoko Kato. Yeah, that's the most I remember seeing. Yeah. And, you know, there would be more later. Saika Takauchi, probably being the most famous, because she's the subject of the Gaia Girls documentary. Which Yeah. I remember Meltzer pointing out when he reviewed it, like how, am I confusing with something else? No, I'm not. I think that by the time the movie comes out, she's done, if I remember right. But they didn't really change the uplifting ending to the movie or anything to be like, oh, she quit wrestling. (laughs) But you know what? And by the way, I'm not saying any of this as an insult. My point is like, what those women went through, well, women and girls in some cases, went through 
in that dojo? Do you blame any of them for just giving up on wrestling? No. Oh, me neither. And JWP, August 31st in Yanai, Mazumi Ozaki of Sumi, Bolshoi Kid, and yes, it's spelled as the way that it would be said. No. <laughs> well, because I see you copied and pasted this from the Observer. Over Kanaka Matoya. <laughs> um, Kyuri Suzuki over Tomoko Miyaguchi, Dub Masami over Tomoko Kazumi. Hikaru Fukuoka and, and Daimai Kanso or Miami Osaki and Reko Amano in your main event. Uh, you know, it, for all of people making the LR jokes and stuff, the actual best translation and transliteration error in the history of the Observer is Big Ben Vader. Excuse me, Big Ben Vader. <laughs> that's one of them, yeah. You know. Like that, that to me, that's funnier than Jushin Riger or anything like that. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you. Something else. All right. Uh, on that note, it's halftime. So after some great 1997 commercials, we'll pivot to the halftime seven of the show. We'll, we'll talk about Patreon. We'll uh, talk about ABTV, hit plugs, and then come back with other North America, including a. Uh, impactful show in Canada and uh, a wild meeting among major talent brokers in wrestling in Mexico. You won't believe this. All that more after the break. Hey, bubblegum blowers. Now the flavor of extra classic bubblegum lasts longer than ever. So you can enjoy blowing lots of extra bubbles. Try extra classic bubblegum. Why? Now the flavor you love lasts longer than ever. Hey, look, she's sniffing new Rain Clean Clorox bleach. What's that? Clorox bleach's new scent. They say it smells fresh as the air after a spring rain like morning <sighs> dew. Like ah, shut up. Ow. New Rain Clean Clorox bleach. Nothing makes a summer party come alive like McDonald's Chicken McNuggets. They're wild, they're cool, and right now they're on sale. Get six for 99 cents, nine for $1.59, and 20 for $2.99. Nobody parties like McNuggets. So get down and go wild with McNuggets this summer. Only at my McDonald's. What's smoother than satin? Silk. The silky skin that comes with Caress Moisturizing Body Wash. Experience its rich moisturizers. The way it leaves skin silkier than anything that touches you. Caress Moisturizing Body Wash. When I get a headache, I just want it gone. But not with Tylenol. On tough pain, two Advil work better than any two Tylenol. Nothing is proven to work better or last longer than Advil. Nothing. Advanced medicine for pain. We don't have sales. We have the best prices all the time. And if, if anybody beats our price, we'll meet it. And beat it. Guaranteed, no questions asked. We're not in the business to be beaten. Under no circumstances, we will not be undersold. Never, never will a competition come in and beat us in price. So some people want you coming back, want your friends to come back. They want you to be happy. Modernize your home with Armstrong No-X Vinyl Flooring. It looks great in any room, and it's at the guaranteed low price every day at the Home Depot. 
Stay close to your TV. You're only seconds away from a sneak peek at the new ABC Family Tuesday. Here we come. First, Dan Aykroyd's back in Soul Man. Tim Curry and Annie Potts are over the top. Home Improvement hammers out another great season. Acting like some tyrannical fascist. Did he just call me a dinosaur? All topped off with Kevin Nealon and Richard Lewis in Hiller and Diller. There are my seedlings. Soul Man, Over the Top, Home Improvement, Hiller and Diller. The new ABC Family Tuesday, coming this September. Searching for Bobby Fischer will continue in a moment. All right, we're back. I've been told us we're in 1997 commercials. As we've to the halftime step of the show, we'll begin talking about Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And yes, we had our month of August show go up earlier than normal. Normally, we would probably have that coming out around this time, but we got it done and got it out there. So, hope everybody enjoyed it as we talked about Superstar Billy Graham versus the World Wrestling Federation and all stuff, crazy stuff going on there. So, if you haven't listened to it yet, you need to listen to it. Now, next month, we will go 25 years in time or I believe it's been that long as we'll talk about the birth for the new world order so we'll begin with Hall and Nash making their WCW debut and we'll go all the way until Eric Bischoff joins the group and they start recruiting everybody else in the WCW basically so should be a very interesting show as we'll cover uh Cover quite a bit of ground there as the NWO was uh, very newsworthy 25 years ago to all the stuff they had going on. So it should be interesting. $5 a month gets you access to listen to all of that that we're going to do and what we have already done in our near five complete years of our Patreon. So you definitely want to be, uh, be a part of that because it's a really tremendous audio there. Covering all sorts of different topics from all sorts of different promotions and different eras. So, great stuff we've done over the years, I think. So, I think. So, I hope you uh, can be a part of that and tell everybody else that you know that's not part of it to uh, get on there and listen to this great stuff. Dollar Muff gives you access to the uh, Discord and thanks to segment, which we'll do in just a minute. 25 allows you to pick a show for the week. Now, make sure you pick a show we haven't done already. And if we have done the show or somebody else may have the show picked for their Patreon pick, make sure you have a backup choice handy so you can be prepared just in case. Then uh, get that information in the picks through the Patreon website, 30-day rules in effect as far as getting the information into them, 10-year rules in effect for the shows, Wednesday to Tuesday, all that good stuff. You know the deal. $50 to sit in for a segment of that show and 100 for the whole show if you choose. That's patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Biggs, who do I think this week is our new and or returning patrons? All right, we would like to thank Matthew Amos. Thanks, Matthew. Anthony Stock. Thanks, Anthony. Lee Malone. Thanks, Lee. And Grant Padre. Thanks, Grant. We thank all you new patrons, returning patrons, old patrons, everybody's been there at least some point in time over the last five years for being uh, supportive of us. So, uh, good deal. Like I said, tell the people about it. Patreon.com slash between the sheets. 
All right, INWTV. Now, over the weekend, there was a big match that took place, which I haven't watched yet, but I plan on watching it. Which same that says a lot. That says a lot for me because I am not watching a lot of current wrestling right now. Very, very little. So if this is getting me to watch it, then you know it's important. As uh, Steve Carino will face Col- faced now, past dance, Colby Carino, his son, on the PWF show that took place uh, of the weekend. That's on IWTV. And uh, just from the videos alone, the hype videos and everything, it was tremendous stuff. Mm-hmm. The storyline of father versus son, all the, the, the history and all that stuff that's going on there. Um, and just seeing people talk about it. Uh, Chris Hero, dear friend, says uh, one of the best matches he's seen this year, maybe the best match he's seen this year. So, yeah, it sounds like a definite must-see. So I will definitely recommend that for everybody who uh, who's listening to the show. Because Steve Carino, of course, he's been a very pivotal uh, person on our Patreon shows uh, this year. <laughs> and just, you know, a great man in general. So, uh, and Colby has turned his life around and doing much better now. And yeah, so definitely cannot wait to see that. So I will suggest that. Bix, what do you suggest as, uh, things to look out for this week? All right, let's see. So real quick, because I have not watched that yet either. I am amused that it's called Colby Carino's 25th anniversary show. It's his 25th birthday. Yes. I think that's a bit because... Because his first match was when he was four years old. Yeah, he's that been wrestling almost twenty years. Yes, he's only been, he's only been an active wrestler of sorts since two thousand nine. <laughs> only, well, yeah, oh, only, only since he was thirteen. Uh, but yeah, um, it's it's been great to see just how much he's turned his life around and all that lately, and that he's doing so well and. He really is a hell of a talent. He really um, is. It's in the genes. It. <laughs> yeah. It's in the genes because his dad was, and uh, he's definitely a chip off the old block. Yes. And well, also, I mean, his, his aunt, Allison Danger, I mean, a perfectly fine wrestler for the era, but someone who clearly has an incredible mind for wrestling, if nothing else. So, yeah, I guess it's in the genes. Yeah. So definitely going to try to check that out ASAP, probably tonight after we finish recording this. Maybe not right after, but later. But other stuff went up this week. AIW had a show, Touch of Evil, featuring Dan Housen, which Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that was live streamed or not. But that one up includes Dan Housen versus Derek Dillinger, the former Derek director, a title match with Joshua Bishop defending against Philly Collins. Uh, What else do we have here? To Infinity and Beyond in action against Bulking Season, Lee Moriarty against Chase Oliver, Tom Lawler against Ethan Wright, and more. Oh, Kaplan back as a regular again, too, against uh, Mance Warner. So fun looking show there from our dear friends at Absolute Intense Wrestling. What else do we have here? A lot more uh, CZW fake UTV went up. From the earlier days of CZW, culminating in, let's see, what is this, episode 20? I'm curious what's on this. Aired December 1st, 01. We've got 
Chris Cash versus Menace, Jeff Rocker versus Fake Tie Street. <laughs> Don't remember that. And a TV main event of Quiet Storm with Pastor Jim versus Ruckus. Pastor Jim. There you go. That's a blast in the past. And of course, various promos too, including our dear old friend, Towable Eric Tuttle. Oh, yes. I'm sure Zabar is probably on there somewhere too. So there you go. There's that. Yeah. Anything else? Oh, uh, let's see. Well, I know there's something I'm forgetting. Uh, some upstate stuff went up. Archival footage. Uh, new Freelance Underground episode, of course. More Trisha Dora content on this time on it. The uh, interview series that the former Dasher Hatfield does. Stan Styles had his latest intergender bonanza show. And there's something I'm forgetting that I feel like I saw earlier. Oh, yeah, latest action show. Was that up yet? Last I don't think it was yeah, up we talked yet. About that. We talked about that last week. Yeah, I think we talked about it, but I'm not sure if it was up. It was up. Okay, it was? Okay. Mm-hmm. You're right, because the AA and then right after it was the C4 mixtape, which we did talk about. So, various interesting things up there. Definitely looking forward, though, to watching the Carinos match. And, you know, cool that it was able to happen. You know, the backstory is that Steve kind of realized that, you know, he had gotten himself into good shape. I, You know, kind of healed up the back injury and all that. And realized now was pretty much the only time he could make it work if he and Colby ever wanted to have a match together. And WWE gave him permission. Yeah. And then coming up on the live schedule... Uh, let's see what we got. We've got Freelance coming a week from Friday on the 10th, uh, as well as a West Coast Pro Show that night. That weekend, also, Pro Wrestling Magic's got a live stream on the Saturday. So does, uh, Paradigm with a Haas-themed heavy hitter show. Uh, also a No Peace Underground show. It's a busy weekend. (laughs) Next, uh, not this coming weekend, but the weekend after, there's uh, Asylum Wrestling Revolution on Sunday. I don't know what Sean Henderson presents is, but they've got that too. And and so, how many? Oh wait, no, that's a week later. I'm sorry. So it's one, two, three, four, five, six live streams the weekend of the tenth. Yeah, a lot going on, and I mean more coming. More coming. Yep. Yep. So I'm going on on IWTV. I'm just I'm just wondering when they're going to have to take that strap off that uh, that signed fellow they have the belt on now. Well, who knows? All right. Um. So that's that. By VPN, of course. Got oh yeah, we didn't that. give the way. We didn't give the details. Yeah. So if you sign up for independentwrestling.tv, use code BTSPod because then we get a little. Referral fee that lasts as long as you're a paid subscriber, although you don't get any coupon code benefit from it right now. But coupon code BTS Pod, all this as well as everything else is in the show description. You can buy her VPN. Yes. Tinyurl.com slash BTSVPN. Um, the question was asked the other day regarding BBC stuff. BBC iPlayer. Uh, uh, my general rule of thumb with that type of thing is just look it up on, you know, VPN guide sites. I believe, my understanding is, is that iPlayer is fairly easy to futz with if you have a VPN to, to get working. So that's my understanding, though. 
But generally, there are all sorts of guides for all sorts of popular streaming services about how to use them with VPNs and all that. But I'm fairly sure iPlayer is one of them. I just haven't looked into it that much myself. All right. So the yes, URL.com slash BTSVPN for the uh, wonderful $60 for three years deal, which is less than $1.67 a month. So tinyurl.com slash BTSVPN. I almost said it wrong. tinyurl.com slash BTSVPN. Now, where were we going? Well, we're going to talk about next week's show. Uh, we will go to 1998, so it's a full calendar year. And we'll have our dear friend Al Getz back on with us. And they showed that he's credited as a source on. So that should be interesting. Like, we'll in, about thanks to, or in, or like, he sent story. stuff. He sent, he sent stuff in. So we'll okay. we'll talk about that. WCW. We have uh, the call before the storm of Ric Flair, and what's his current status? As we're going to be a week away from Greenville, South Carolina. Fire him. He's already fired. And we have news on Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Ultimo Dragon, and what what their career may look like. It ain't looking good for either of them, plus all kinds of other stuff. We got Power Pro Wrestling running some shows in Memphis, and an interesting TV show, which Dave Brown was disturbed at. Al will, t- will talk about Muta City Wrestling as they're getting ready for their first anniversary show, and we'll talk about Burt Prentice as Burt recently passed away, so we'll... Uh, We'll get in discussion about Bert and all the stuff going on here. Uh, we got all kinds of other indie stuff. ECW will have news from their tour of uh, Louisiana, which God bless all those folks in Louisiana, Mississippi this time as Hurricane Ida is pounding yeah. down on them. I'm wa- I'm been watching the Weather Channel coverage of it uh, off and on today, and it's just horrible, horrible there. My uh, my brother's wife. Uh, got family over there in Homa, and Homa's really getting hit right now. And mm-hmm. they couldn't leave because, um, like the the oldest member of the family is in like uh, almost like hospice care, so they could not leave. So if, if they pulled her out, she'd probably die en route. So yeah, it's not good, not good right now over there. So we'll have we'll talk about ECW in Louisiana. We got Lucha stuff to talk about, uh, including um, uh, Bossy Lucha reporter getting uh, roughed up by a referee in a Lucha promotion. So we'll talk about that. We got all kinds of uh, Japanese news from all the uh, promotions, including a great Kabuki retirement show. Asusha Nita threatened to quit FMW. Ha ha ha. Road Warriors uh, going to make their debut in Battle Arts. And World Wrestling Federation, we'll talk about Jerry Lawler and getting ready to do a movie. So we'll have that. What's the story on Abu and Babu? And we'll have uh, Ross Saturday Night, which features uh, Jim Ross uh, interviewing Al Snow and Jerry Lawler saying something he probably shouldn't have said. Probably. all that, Yeah, well, definitely said something he shouldn't have said. All that more next week on Between the Sheets. It is on some levels the most offensive thing ever said on a professional wrestling show. And, you know, he probably didn't mean it that way. He was, you know, but it's just how it was said, what it was talking about and everything. So and is it discussed exactly what he's talking about in the newsletters? Um, yes. OK. It is. So all that more next week on Between the Sheets. 
Or you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zona, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper at BTC Spot. Bix at David Bix. And Bix, anything going on in your world this week? I don't remember. Oh, well, that's encouraging. Well, I'm 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 doing my efforting on my secret projects. Um, although the Mel the Mel magazine story may be coming this week, it's been, we've been editing and all that. Mel's coming. Well, that's good to know. Um, well, not that Mel. Uh, um, there's one thing that I've seen that that has been misconstrued in in the Twitter uh, discourse about WWE. And their stance on independent wrestlers that I kind of want to get out there, as I know we've talked about current wrestling in this segment. Um, they're, from what I've gathered and taught and heard and talked to people, they're not like 100% against signing independent wrestlers, which I think has basically been reported in that way by people. What they're looking for is people that are really young that's young in the business and have a look the look that they want i'll give you the perfect example of of a guy that they're looking for and on the independent wrestling scene carmelo hayes christian Casanova. well the former look at what, what yeah look, look at what's going on with him right now he just won that nxt future deal whatever that is they do he won that tournament and he's the type of guy he's got the look he's got charisma he's young He's he's got good size. I mean, he's somebody that's he checks off the boxes that what they're looking for. So yeah, while they may be definitely going more towards non wrestling athletes to try to try and sign and put it in developmental. If you're a young independent wrestler, like a real young independent wrestler, and you have a look that would be conducive to what they're looking for and the charisma and you got like i said you check the boxes they're gonna look at you or if you're even just if you're younger they seem more likely to hold on like you know they they're they kept play christian it doesn't seem like they have plans for him but he's still there yeah i mean it's just the fact that i see people say well if you're an independent wrestler you know your dreams of working for WWE are dead. And it's not the case. <laughs> it's they're not good. They're not gonna. They're not looking to necessarily hire good hands. Well, they're, they're not, not looking to hire people that are like probably over thirty, and people that are like size deficient. Which is them. insane because you need good, experienced hands in developmental. That's how you make people better. But yeah, it's not like they don't have any now. But still. The, I know what you're saying, but I just I just saw that a lot this week, and it's like that's not necessarily the truth. I mean, they're not they haven't put a, a full embargo on on hiring independent wrestling talent. Yeah. It's just they're looking for certain types. So correct. But, that I new mean, logo is terrible, though. The NXT logo. Yeah. Um, it could have been a whole lot worse. It could have been. <laughs> did you see that video of someone like taking apart just how like impossible it's going to be for wwe's graphic designers to fit it into stuff because it's not centered yeah it's it's definitely a different type of logo for them because normally their their logos are always that centered logo and it's not the same even when the logos are different there's a very there's a link design language between them that is not there with the new nxt logo yeah it's it's definitely an interesting look 
So, who knows? I mean, it's colorful. Yeah. No, I like the. I actually like the <laughs> which, color scheme. Which I, I, which I think that what that means is the days of the black NXT are over with. And you know what? Good. Yeah. They've needed to it do is. that for a long time. Absolutely. Now. On that and, note, and the, oh, and the rainbow color, the rainbow colors are, you know, I mean, you can, I mean, it looks good. I mean, as far as color scheme, I, I kind of like it. I mean, it's not the best thing in the world, but it's, I, I kind of like it. Yeah. Um, might as well talk about it for a minute since we're, we were talking about NXT and this is certainly inside baseball enough for between the sheets and maybe in 10 years we'll talk about this. This NXT spoiler bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I don't know why there's such a paranoia well, about that. Well, to recap that. for people who didn't hear, so it was, was it? It was a few weeks ago. Okay, was this? Was that at a live shoot or was that a taping when JJ uh, Williams got kicked out? It was at a taping. It was not okay. live, so that was also a taping. Okay. Um. So if I remember correctly, yeah, it was a taping, not a live shoot. Yeah, and then they and so then. But he had heat anyway, you know. I mean, they they were. JJ Which is hilarious because why would anyone have heat insane. with JJ? <laughs> it's insane. It's totally nuts. It's to, it, It's it's because I think it's mainly because JJ had the connection with the Figure Four Observer website. Which is because they were attacking like, him. They were going after him, and there were other people there that were doing kind of the same things, and they weren't going after them. It's just he had heat with with people, and it's stupid because JJ's a great dude. I love JJ. I've t- talked to him numerous times, and he doesn't deserve that 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 type of treatment from anybody. Right, and you know, I don't know Trent Osborne well, who got kicked out this week, you know, from BodySlam.net, but I know Cassidy, who's the main reporter and you know, the owner of BodySlam, and Cassidy does good work. So, you know, I take everything Trent says at face value. Well, what makes it extra stupid is like, okay, you don't have a big crowd there, even for a small taping. You have a much smaller crowd than Lucha Underground did. Actually, maybe not that much smaller because they're on different, because they're all on one side on Lucha Underground, but still. Just, just have them sign NDAs. It wouldn't necessarily be good, but you'd be upfront about it. I, I don't I don't get why they're doing this. And then when he asks what the reason he's being kicked out is, do you, did you actually see this part? This is my favorite part. Did you see what the justification for kicking him out was? No. That the no photos and no recording policy included writing down the results. Oh, to good post Lord. online. All while see, various people, including, I believe, an Orlando Sentinel reporter, were tweeting videos of entrances and stuff. Well, here's the thing. Orlando Sentinels are major newspaper. But it was I, I, it, it was I think it was stuff that did kind of contain minor spoilers, but But still the, again, that's a major newspaper. They they're going to get by because they're a major newspaper. I mean, it's not it, like they're actually what I don't even know what Orlando Somebody that works for a wrestling with that. Anyway. I, I I think there is a, there is a directive against wrestling media. Obviously, I'm sure. I just don't understand what the point is. Now, Grant, I don't either. Well, my best guess is to the underlying issue is that what Andrew Zarin, our friend, reported about USA being upset with these taped shows, which apparently may just be for while they're remodeling the CWC at the PC, the Capital Wrestling Center at the Performance Center. I'm speaking out loud. Why do I need to abbreviate them? Um, 
but still, the USA was pissed about not having live shows. This isn't what we paid for. WWE certainly is reactionary with that kind of thing. Yeah, well, look at SmackDown. <laughs> you know, they, they, the Fox was upset with SmackDown. And here's Becky Lynch and Brock Lesnar. And Brock apparently on a, like a couple days notice. So, I mean, they're try, they're trying to appease their TV masters the best they can, you know, and NXT, I mean, they, it probably should be a tape show. But if they promise USA Live programming, they're kind of in a tough spot there. But, I mean, if USA Network is sending directive down that they don't want spoilers out, then what can you do? You know, everyone, like just just be upfront about it. That's the thing. Yeah. And and don't be dicks about it. Like I tweeted this example. I didn't tie them together, but I think people understood what I was getting at. A couple years ago, the the had their first concert tour in God knows how many years. I had never seen them live before. And at the beginning of the show, and I believe he did this at every date on the tour, Matt Johnson politely asks the audience to not to basically, if not, not take out their phones then keep their phones tucked away as much as they possibly can during the show. And not even as, like, something about bootleggers or anything, just that he found it distracting. And for the most part, people kept their phones away. Well, let's be honest. I mean, uh, the the fan base compared is a... will, will, like, take heed and stuff like that more than, like, a wrestling fan base would. Sure, but still... <laughs> Let's be honest about that, Pix. These are people paying good money to go to a concert in, you know, 2019 or whenever it was. And in the smartphone era, it's kind of accepted that part of going to a concert is that you'll take clips on on your phone. Yeah, but still. I mean, how many people were at this show? It what was kind of building? a sold-out or nearly sold-out Beacon Theater, so fairly big. I mean, it's just... Again, it's, it's a different thing. You know, wrestling fans are not known for their coofness <laughs> in a lot of ways. But they'll respect so, it. But they'll respect it much more if you're just upfront with it. Some will, and then some won't. Some will well, do it just to, if you're t- if they're told not to do it. That's gonna make them want to do it even more. That's every walk of life. Like I'm watching this hurricane coverage. You know, at one point, you know, they tell people not to go on the streets, and there are people walking down the streets, one of them naked. There's a naked dude walking down the street and, you know, 70, 80 mile an hour winds. I mean, it's just it's like people do shit just because they're told not to. And it's like kids. Although, you know what? We should also have like in a way, the worst part might not even be what WWE did. It was these. I don't even like to call them fans who were taking like creep shots of Trent. Yeah, well, like, look at look at this dirty motherfucker dude with the spoilers. Like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah, that that's that's too too much. That's over the line. It's just sad that we have people that are like that. You know, in in, in anything in life. You know, good God. Oh, it's, it's just crazy. Did you? Who was it? Boss Moz, maybe the quote tweeted one of those tweets with like. Hello, police. I'd like to report someone tweeting NXT spoilers. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's that's not cool. That is not cool. I mean, it's just that's ridiculous. So, yes. Also, notice. I mean, I gotta think USA is part of this, but and I hate to make the comparison, but AEW doesn't care that spoilers got out for Rampage the first week it's taped. 
No, well, I mean, AEW has a different mindset. Anyway, regarding fans, mostly. They do. So, it's just, it's, it's, again, they're two totally different, two totally different promotions, two totally different uh, mindsets on the business. I mean, you, I don't think we've ever had a totally, you know, well, as much of a distance between mindsets and, and promoting wrestling among national wrestling promotions as we do right now. No. And that's the man that calls it Nick Khan. So, because WWE was always had somebody in charge that was more of a wrestling mind, or if the people that weren't, that were in charge, that weren't wrestling minded, were still, you know, Vince still was. They the, were still kind of kept away from certain things, or. They didn't have the power that Nick Khan has, put that way. So. I'm not sure any non McMahon has ever had the power Nick Khan has. We've already, we've said that. I've said that before. No, none. Zero. None. You think George Barrios and 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 uh, and all those people that was in, you know in power at different spots? No way. No way in hell. So it's just a, it's a totally different mindset. Maybe right trusted now. confidant Basil Devito. <laughs> oh, he didn't. You know, Vince was still heavily in charge, and Vince makes all the calls now. But, but he just you know it's more of signing off on a lot of things too. So it's. It's just a different time and place, you know, and I mean, we'll see what we'll see how it goes, you know, as time goes on. But, uh, yeah, AEW's, you know, carving out their niche and they're getting their their fans mobilized and everything. They got a big show coming up in the, the next week. So we'll see how that goes. But who knows? We'll see. It's going to be interesting, especially as COVID's still flaring up and what's going to happen there and. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting rest of this year, for sure, in many ways. So, All right, well, that's it for this segment, so let's get back to the rest of the show. Well, let's move on to other North America now, and let's start with IWA out of Canada. There was a show in MRF Manitoba on August 29th for the 89 fans, and this has quite the lineup here of talent. Our opening match was Christian Cage over JT Atlas, Adam Impact, Adam Copeland, Edge, over Champagne Jerry Morrow, Glenn Kalka over Bad News Allen, and Rip Martell in the natural. The supermodels, Don Callis the natural, over Christian Cage and Adam Impact. What a show. (laughs) Boy, is there a lot going on here or what? Yeah, you got uh, Christian and uh, Edge working twice. Uh, you got Glenn Kolka, Bad News, the Supermodels, Champagne Jerry Morrow. Being that everyone else on the show is a recognizable name, I'm curious who JT Atlas is. Probably just a local. One of the local guys that's working, you know, the area at the time. Also, I'm just... Right, G- Go ahead. JT Atlas, uh, Andy Anderson! IWA Puerto Rico, Andy Anderson? Yeah, he, yeah. Lobo. Huh. There you, so go. there you go. So, how often do you, I mean, granted, it's it's a death tour show with a limited crew. How often do you come across an indie show from this era where you've heard of every single person on it? From Canada, yes. Especially Canada, yeah. Well, that's, that, this promotion had 
more named people than others did. Well, most of these are future names, though. Yeah. But still, I mean, Kolka was a CFL guy. Bad News and Champagne Jerry Morrow, of course, Stampede. Martell was Martell. Cal's mm-hmm. been around a while. And then you got young guys like uh, Adam and Christian and uh, Andy Anderson. Mm-hmm. So you got quite the mix there. Okay, so I pulled up his cage match. His main name listed on cage match for some reason is Ayatollah Anderson. He was doing some sheet, sheet gimmick somewhere, I guess. Of course, we've also got Andy, Andrew, Buff Anderson. I wonder what promoter gave him that nickname. Uh, <laughs> Deja Vu, JT Atlas, Lobo, and Lobo Blanco. And where was he, Lobo? Puerto Rico. Wasn't he also Andy Anderson in Puerto Rico? He was Lobo in IWA Puerto Rico, too. I think he was both in IWA Puerto Rico. He was both. Yeah, he was both. Okay. But Lobo was the military gimmick, right? Yes. So was he, like, was he at one point Andy Lobo Anderson? I think so, yeah. Okay. But he worked as just Lobo, too. Right, I see that. Um, also, boy, was he younger than I realized. He's 46 now. Yeah. And he started in June 96, so he started as soon as he could drink, basically. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those guys started young, man. So. Yeah. All right, so as far as what else we have on this show, you know, we have this going up, you know, days after uh, WFWA slash IWA and many of these fellas and their backstory were featured on AEW television. Yeah. It's kind of neat, and I, I appreciated that they followed up on the weird line about how Don Callis stopped booking Christian Cage because he said he found this new kid, Kenny, who could take his spot. And then Tony Candela saying something like, uh, and then I learned that Kenny is 10 years old. Yeah. So they did close the loop on that, at least. But um, I b- believe the supermodels against, uh, oh God, what were Edge and Christian calling themselves then? Because Sudden Impact was Storm and Jericho, right? Yeah, although Edge is working as Adam Impact here. Right, but I feel like there was another... Oh, was it Sex and Violence? Sex and Violence. Sex and Hardcastle. Yeah. Yeah. That's when he was in that gimmick. Yes. They might not have a team name here, but I believe they might have taken that match with the supermodels a bunch of places, because I believe there's a handheld on YouTube from from the Maritimes, too, from the summer season. Yeah, they went... They went across Canada. Yeah, that's... That's almost kind of, uh, well, more from the wrestlers and the promoters, but that's all, it, it kind of reminds you almost of what uh, Danny Dugan does now with his CWE tours. You know, up yeah. and down all these, you know, reser- you know, reservations and stuff in the country. Um, And, you know, I guess we should tell the story, because I don't know the last time it would have come up, and this is among the times it's been most relevant. Martell and Callis are going to go to the WWF together as a tag team. Martel gets a much better money offer from WCW as a singles. Explains to Don he has to take it. WWF still wants him, but then, at least according to Callis, so, are you familiar with the Truth Commission? Was the pitch <laughs> he was then given. And that's how things went, which I, I can buy. Martel's making his comeback. He's clearly trying to prep this gimmick with a younger partner who can take, you know, some of the load off of his matches. So I buy that he was looking to get signed as a tag team with Don, and then the WCW thing came up. 
I don't think that's out of the question. So that's kind of what's going on here. Um, Glenn Kolka, not in WWF developmental yet, I don't think. Former CFL player. Uh, basically retired. I think he had a few more matches after a bad knee injury in a match with Don Callis. Yeah. And bad news, of course, is on his last legs in ring here. But interesting looking show. But enough of that. Let's move on to the focus as we go to Lucha Libre. All right, we got TV taping for AAA here on August 29th in Arena Lopez Mateos. We have Arachnophobia, Boomerang, and Flying over Angela Dick Angelo Jr. and R-15. We got uh, Los Space Cadets, Discovery, Luxor, Supernova, and Venom over Electroshock and... Uh, <laughs> What a team here. Electroshock and um, the Sartores. One of these things. Not like the other. (laughs) Then we got Babyface, Negro Navarro, and Shua Guerrero of Aranya Negro, Blue Demon Jr., Mascara Sagrada. Latin Lover, Tineblas and Tineblas Jr. over El Inquisidor, El Nene, and The Killer. And Cybernetico retained the Mexican National Heavyweight title over Kanak. Wow, Triple A. <laughs> Triple A's in some kind of way here in 1997. Yeah, I'm guessing that Babyface is just paying you panic booking, trying to bring in anyone who has name value. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, when that was a quick, uh, quick downward spiral for this promotion. Uh, when most of their talent dipped out of there, their top talent. And uh, they had to bring in some older names, push some younger names, and uh, this is where we're at in 1997 AAA. There's just no depth. No. Oh, no. And that's a problem when you had been possibly the cheapest promotion in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we move on to a story that's related to not just something we talked about earlier, but the promotion with the new deepest roster in the world we, we start with cmll here and uh, in the wake of an unsuccessful meeting between eric bischoff conan and paco alonso which was an attempt to put together lucha libre style pay-per-view shows in 1998 the war between promo azteca and cmll heated up again over the weekend with cmll heavyweight champion steel sean couples aka sean morley sean couples that's what it says here. The Headhunters and Kevin Quinn, no showing the August 29th Arena Mexico show, and instead did a run-in on the Promo Azteca show in nearby Nacopan. The meeting was held the day earlier in Marina del Rey, California, on August 28th. Said so Conan and Paco were cordial at the beginning, but there ended up being a disagreement, and things got worse, and they were yelling and swearing by the time the meeting ended on a sour note. The basic reason for the split between Victor Quinones and Paco Alonso, and Quinones sending his talent on August 29th to promo Azteca, when they originally booked for Arena Mexico, stemmed from international politics. It's a long, involved story that started with a meeting Quinones set up with Paco and Vincent Man in Connecticut in April, where Alonso agreed to supply talent for Deus' proposed light heavyweight division. The deal fell through in June, when Eric Bischoff and Alonso spoke, and Alonso decided to work with WCW. A few weeks later, when Bischoff's deal wasn't concluded, Alonso gave Quinones a green light to book Seminole Town himself for WF. Can I just point out that I know that as far as we know this is true, but reading it and hearing you read it, just how un-Paco Alonso this story is. 
Yes, very unpopular answer. One of, if not the primary reason WS doesn't done this like heavyweight title tournaments because the problems of getting the expected talent from both Japan and Mexico, they were expected to be the backbone on the division. Quinones claimed he was going to send Dr. Wagner Jr. as Shocker to WF for TV tapings on September 8th and September 9th. Paco agreed to it. But after the meeting with Paco, Conan, and Bischoff in California, Paco pulled Wagner and Shocker from going to WF and said he was going to send them on September 8th to Nitro instead. In retaliation, Quinones pulled his four wrestlers, the Headhunters, Steele, and Kevin Quinn from the Marine Mexico show on August 29th, telling Paco about it at 2 p.m. the day of the show and had them do a run-in on Pro Mesteca's TV tapings at night instead. His feeling is that Alonso was using both he and WF to get Bischoff back interested in a working arrangement. He also agreed to a business truce with Conan and the Pro Mesteca promotion and sent Pantera of, of Aztec along with Hysteria, who scheduled to wrestle in his former name of Super Crazy, to the WF tapings this week along with four minis. Wagner and Shocker were supposed to debut on the Nitro on, show on September 8th, we're not sure what happened except they weren't there. So we jumped ahead of our week here, but there you go. The run-ins were the public confirmation that Quinones, the FMW booker, and WS foreign talent liaison, and Conan had put together a deal in which Victor was in this talent to Azteca instead of working with Paco with CMLL. In exchange, Azteca talent not booked with WCW we made available for Quinones sent to the WWF. With Conan and Quinones working together, it solidifies both of their power base as they're supplying the cheaper working for a talent for both WF and WCW. In addition, all the Lucha-style wrestlers that the WF were to sign the contract will likely wind up working for Azteca instead of CMLL, which would mean the Hysteria will be jumping to Azteca from AAA. Okay. <laughs> so Conan, a WCW-contracted wrestler, is uh, helping... A promoter, the WS foreign talent liaison, send talent to his promotion and to WWF. And being that Dave's two best sources in the Spanish-speaking wrestling world that we know of were Victor and Conan, I think we have to assume this is coming directly from them. Yes. Huh. Here's the thing. With that in mind... Do you buy the story of Paco's role in this? Um, I mean, obviously something happened. Oh, clearly something happened. It's just, it, it's so unlike him. He's so much more conservative than that. But there was a meaning. I mean, they, they actually yeah. had the meaning. So yeah. there, who would have thought that would have happened? Do we know if this came up in the magazines in Mexico or not? If If there was reporting on that there, maybe? Well, it wasn't reported in the Observer anywhere, so... Yeah, that is true. Usually Dave would say if something was coming from one of the Mexican magazines. And there is no uh, Dr. Lucha at this point in time. So. No. Was Hurricane Rana a thing yet? I have no idea. Uh, John Molinaro's newsletter? Which, yes, by the way, Rob and Rob, go find your copies and scan those, please. Or the floppy disks you have the text versions on. But anyway... It, Hold on, let me... Okay. I'm, I'm just trying to figure this out. Okay, wait, so... In April, Victor sets up Paco and Vince to have a meeting in Connecticut. He agrees to supply WWF talent then. In June, Paco talks to Eric and decides to work with WCW. Then when that deal's not done, he gives Victor the green light to book EML talent to WWF. That doesn't sound like it. Also, because it's... <sighs> 
It's Paco Alonso. He has the most turnkey company in pro wrestling history up to that point. And see, you got, and then the other thing going at the same time is Victor is fa- having his falling out with uh, with Carlos and WC because on the September twelfth, Morley was supposed to work against uh, Ray Gonzalez. He no showed that show hmm. because uh, they failed to pay uh, to Jerry and Yum and Yuji um that when when they made their trip to Puerto Rico. So he pulled Morley from that from uh, WC show, and he worked as Tekka. Oh, and we know that Victor just hated it when promoters mistreated young Japanese wrestlers. So yeah, so they pull he he pulled him from two shows in three weeks to work for Promo as Tekka. Hmm. So okay, what's the timeline with Victor's falling out with Double Double C though? Because the first IWA Puerto Rico right case, here. No, no, no. We're, the reason I ask is that the original IWA Puerto Rico pilot taping that didn't go anywhere was in 94, I believe. Well, this we're in 97. He's still working with WC, so. I know. I'm, I, I'm curious if maybe that's in his Observer obituary and I forgot about it, but I don't know. Do you, you, you agree with my feeling that there's something we're missing here, though, right? Well, I mean, he's, ha- he's having issues with everybody, so... But this just doesn't sound like him, and, and the story is clearly Victor. coming from the other... Oh, Victor. Yeah. No, it sounds like totally sounds like Victor, and totally sounds like Conan, but it just doesn't sound true to any other story we know about Paco Alonso. Well, all we have is what we have, and that's what we have. <laughs> so, we know what... I mean, we know what, what didn't happen. Dr. Wagner Jr. and Shocker didn't appear on Nitro on September the 8th. So we know that. They didn't appear on Raw either. Yeah. They appear for any American promotion. No. And uh, no CMLL Town no CML Town would appear for WCW until ninety eight. Really. Also well, okay. Now As I'm far as like in my either Charlie's Jr., those type of guys. Well yeah, I'm starting to think also if there's just anything else to this. Shoker's American born, so he wouldn't need a visa. He's still masked though, yeah. Wagner Wagner speaks fluent English and has for a long time, but I don't like I don't think he spent any significant time in the States. His brother's over okay. here. It's well that's true. Yeah. So Well also I just realized though the, the, if anyone that needs a visa though it's through Victor, it's not through WCW. So there's that whole other issue to it too. But I don't know, I feel like there's something missing here and I, I just get this feeling that a lot of it might have to do with the fact that the story is coming from Victor and uh, the other Carlos, our Carlos. Yeah. Well, anyway. Uh, is there a wrestler who we personally like and respect and admire as much as Conan, who we also think of, talk, speak of as being as full of shit as we do? Well, I mean, it is. Look what he's doing here. I know. I mean, he's a WCW contracted wrestler that's helping WS Foreign Talent Liaison. Yeah. We also really do need to talk about how he's very Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. and that whenever he's in power, the Mexico section of the Observer is much deeper. And much like Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. likes his his style of wrestling, Conan definitely pushes his style of wrestling when he's uh, in charge of promotion, so... Oh, what do you yeah. mean? It's not like when he started 
promoting and booking Tijuana himself in 1996, like he was suddenly DDTing valets and starting triple A chants to try to make his new ECW or anything. Mm-hmm. All right, now we don't have much in the way of details for August 29 Remetsko show, which La Fiera be best yes of and a Caballero Coach Caballero match for 3,500 fans. Uh, wow. The big... Make a similar attack titles would be decided in the match where the headhunters would wrestle Dr. Wagner Jr. and Emilio Charles Jr., but the headhunters no show. So Wagner and Emilio being Atlantis and Brazil de Plata for the vacant titles. Now, let me uh, move that over to Azteca. I didn't notice that was there, so I'm going to slide that in here. And we'll go through the results of Arena Mexico show. I Ciclocito Ramirez and Mascarita Magica defeated Guerrero Ito de Petoro and Tritoncito. Alco Negro, Calafagari Jr. and Herba Canero over Mascara Magica, Olimpico, and Takamichinoku, who is one of Victor's guys here, too, by the way, who worked the show. One of Victor's uh, guys, not to be confused with one of Victor's boys. Well, he's one of his guys. He's, he's booking. I know. Uh, Mr. Niebla, Solar, and Ultimo Dragon over Apollo Dante, Satanico, Scorpio Jr., with the last two subbing for Steele and Kevin Quinn. And then the Wagner and Emilio uh, match, of course, a default. They won the uh, match of Enlantis Brazo de Plata. Uh, refunds were offered for the subs. So there is that. That's a rarity. And then La Fiera over Best of Ajay Caballero, Coach Caballero. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you don't hear much about that with CMLO offering refunds. No, um, by, by August 97, they're doing a lot better. So La Fiera versus Bestia Salvaje, hair versus hair, doing 3,500 fans. That is bad. Yeah. Especially with a pretty marquee semifinal, at least advertised underneath it. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot... Walk up is a big thing there, and there were May I Got Out, which you know it's 1997. I don't know how fast it would have got out about what was going on with these guys no showing. So, but even uh, if you didn't have that that semifinale there, I would think those two are big enough stars that a hair match in Arena Mexico on Friday night is gonna do a good bit better than 3,500 at this time. Well, it didn't. How were they All doing, right, per- like, leading up to this in the summer, though? Um, as far as you know. can remember. Go back. I'm going to have to go back. I mean, they did well when Santo was around. He's not here. Hmm. So, makes a difference. Santo and Costa's hard there. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, Pro Mazteca. Across town in Nakapon. Wait a second, wait a second. Ma- Does, doesn't Dave realize that that's like saying, across town from Madison Square Garden at the Nassau Coliseum? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, from my second TV tapings were headlined by Conan, Tidemus Jr., and Dismar Jr., and Tarzan Boy, going against Petoff, Black Magic, Norma Smiley, Jerry Estrada, and Black Warrior. They were the first Silver King, Danny Tejano, hitting the ring to help Petoff. Los Vianos then attacked them, followed by Ninja de Fuego, Katakan Ling, and Salcedo hitting the ring doing a tri- triple topaze. Steel and Quinn then showed up attacking the Vianos, and then the Headhunter shockingly ran in and squashed everyone. Uh, okay, real quick, before we get to the full... Gee, report. I wonder who's booking! Oh, well, <laughs> that too, but... Um, so, are the Teeny Ableses just independents at this point, who everyone's using? Pretty much. Triple A's that desperate. They're bringing in independent talent. 
and they worked they worked both the same or Junior worked both the same night. Well, Rina Lopez Mateos and Nakapon are not extremely far away, so that's an easy drive they can make. So well, you mean, you mean anyway. Yeah, but well well wait, I was reading I was sorry, I was looking at the Oh no, that was all Friday, yeah. So still interesting though. Especially that they're having him work the semi finale with his dad on the triple a show and here he is it's 25 minutes Bix. it's a 25 minute drive i'm not talking about the drive as much <laughs> as the politics yeah but still i mean triple h desperate yeah. they need help yes they are at least they got a lucia <laughs> yeah all right so the results of the tv taping lagula and los reos tapatillos over colt el mariachi and jurassico Halloween, Nigma, Otomo Guerrero, Otomo Rebelde, over Katakanin, Ninja de Fuego, Pantera, and Sosero. Mr. Aguila, Super Astro, Super Kalu, and Zorro, over Damian CCCS, Pantorito de Ring, Pirata Morgan, and Psicosis. Then for the Triple A Americas Trios titles, whatever that is, Los Vianos uh, defeated El, El Dandy, Silver King, and El Tejano. And then he ended this Mark Conan and Tarzan Boy and Jr. over Black Magic, Black Warrior, Jerry Shard and Petoff by disqualification. And Cuz fan notes that Tinebus jumped. He jumped here. Oh. And this was the debut of Black Magic in the promotion. And then Kevin Quinn stealing the headhunters uh jumped jumped here as well. So a lot of stuff going on in this show. An action packed TV taping, so to speak. And uh and Dave notes expect Steel to feud with La Parca. In hmm. promo tech. So there you go. Well, I was going to say, too, that, you know, one of the patterns we've seen from when promo tech is around is that so much of the core rosters in WCW that the lineups are always way less appealing than you'd think promo tech lineups would be. But this is maybe the least depleted looking promo tech results or promo tech card we've seen. I think we maybe have ever covered on this show. We got a lot of jumps on this card too, so that helps. But whether it's from name value or work or anything, like this is a much more complete card than we're used to seeing from them. Now that that Tercera is possibly the most, excuse me, the least appealing match full of great workers I've ever seen on paper, just because it, it's it feels like they'd match up really oddly. But it's it's a you know pretty complete show and you know it, we're also in the very short uh span of time where ultimo guerrero's in promo azteca young boy but yeah 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 and various interesting talent on here you know locals in the opener uh always fun to see laigila there katsumi kanai who for those who don't know was japanese guy i forget if he already had wrestling training but trained lucha in mexico Stuck around Mexico on and off, you know, and also worked scummy Japanese indies, including doing a straight up lucha style match in SPWC on mats and no with no ring. But you know, this is just a much more balanced card than we usually see from them. You know, even even the main event where Conan's clearly trying to do it AAA main event style, you have enough, you know, quote unquote good workers to kind of keep the action going for the people who are looking for something other than like the triple a main event brawling style. Yeah. All right. Now we talked about this story. The, when we did the week before this week, uh, last time we did it. A yes. Years Dave's so. phrasing here is hilarious, by the way. 
and, and we actually read this in particular because we had to get we wanted to look for the closure to it. So we're going to read it again. Carlos Mañez was released over the past few days from his kidnapping. Newspapers were very quiet about how it transpired, so we don't know if it was ran- if the ransom was paid or not. Carlos Mañez was the former UWA boss and was a promoter. Yes, and the he got nephew, yeah, the nephew of Francisco Flores. And he was allegedly kidnapped. And uh, then he got set free. Wasn't and there also wasn't there also some drama with the um, why am I forgetting his name all of a sudden? Corrupt union boss. Well, oh, Manny was, Guzman. That, that was that, I don't know if that was involved in this one or not. I don't remember that, but I mean there were, he had his own issues. Um yeah, they were both kidnapped after a show Minas was promoting. I, I Googled it, so this is a you know, Reddit summary. Um after a show Minas was promoting, as a press time ten days later, both men are still missing. This is the August 11th Observer. Someone used Minus's ATM card and withdrew all the money they could the day after his kidnapping. There have been no ransom notes and no evidence that it's related to ongoing wrestling wars in Mexico. But it hasn't stopped people from pointing fingers. Blah, blah, blah. Was the top promotion in the country. Black promoter. Excuse me. UWA had been the top promotion in the country. Um, I don't know. What do you make of this? It, the fact that many... Guzman was mixed up in it makes me think this is more than just you know typical Mexican cartel kidnapping extortion type of thing you know what I mean well we talked about this like I said before so I can't remember what I said um, but yeah it's, it's all shady you got what I'm saying, saying like if Manny Guzman not, wasn't also not, kidnapped it would be one it would be one thing but that he's there and basically ruined the trust of the entire Mexican wrestling business and ever having a real union again. And up on top of everything else, like who knows? There's a zillion things that could have led up to this. Yeah. It's all shady. So, all right. Uh, Tijuana, all we've heard about the August 29th show in Tijuana was that you're at 3,400. It wasn't a good show. Io De Santo and Rey Mysterio being Negro Casa Cifalino by DQ almost have been the best match. The finale was La Parca, Super Parca, and Pandillero number one of Io De Solitario, Mysterioso, and Phobia. And uh, we have the other results. Mandor over El Chacal, Estucia, Magico, and Fantomos over Medico Asesino Jr., Mr. Tempest, and Genghis Khan. Santo and Rey over Negro and Polino by DQ. And the Parca, Pandillero over Solitario, Mysterioso, and Phobia. And we should note that Dave does that weird thing here again where he refers to Baja California as Norte California. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, this is, yeah, it's from the Observer. Yes, you're right. So, yeah, Norte that's, Cal- I noticed the formatting here. Yeah, that's the Observer. Yeah. Norte California. D- Dave knows enough Spanish in 1997 to know how that makes no sense. <laughs> Dave, you're from Norte California. <laughs> That makes it even funnier. What are, you, what are you drinking as we're recording? Is that some cheer wine? No, that was a Coke I had okay. there from, from my dinner. But there you go. Real it's sugar no longer... or high fructose corn syrup? Oh, no. I mean, it's from a fast food restaurant. So, yeah, okay. it's going to be the, the, the standard. Uh-huh. All right. So, double C. We're going to put the Rico Oregon Castillo, Jesus, so the W. Periquist team. Returned on August 29th in Bayamon, the headline challenging Rey Gonzalez for the uh, Universal title. 
And that show drew 600 fans at La Cancha Pepin Sestero in Bayamon. We have Vampire Warrior, Gangrel, over El Profe. Herbert Gonzalez over Scovon Crush by disqualification. Golden Boy over Lale. Puerto Rican heavyweight title, Rica Santana defeated Mohammed Hussein, Luke Fabiano by the DQ. Fabiano you, retained his title. You mean the uh, Shinji Sasazaki of Double Double C? Yeah. Uh, Carlos Colon, invader number one, Jose Gonzalez defeated Los Pastores de Nueva Zelandia, Butch Miller and Luke Williams by disqualification. And then our Universal Heavyweight title match, Ray Gonzalez and Ordo Castillo Jr. went to a 60 minute draw. And Ray retained the title. 60-minute drama between Uracan Castillo Jr. and Ray Gonzalez. That's interesting. Very interesting. It is. You didn't see a lot of 60-minute draws in Puerto Rico. So. No. And certainly Ray Gonzalez is someone who could pull one off. Yeah. So. Now, those pastores, the sheep herders, bushwhackers, whatever, I mean, they were legends in the uh, in Puerto Rico. Luke Williams booked there on many occasions. And Invader number three. Johnny Rivera returned on August 3rd to help Invader n- number one in his feud with Invader number two and Los Pastores. Invader number two, being the original Invader number two, was Roberto Soto. I don't know if it's the same one here in 1997, but uh, yeah, Invader three coming back out of nowhere for a, a spell. Now, none of the wrestlers have been paid in five weeks as of this weekend before the last. Uh, several of the wrestlers that came in for the anniversary weekend are going to be gone, including Ram Man, Tom Brandy, and the Youngbloods. Let them hold the tag titles. The wrestlers were scheduled to be paid at the TV taping on August 27th. Okay, a few things here. One, I guess Tom Brandy is not under a full-time WWF contract, because I kind of doubt this is being booked through uh, outside bookings, right? Possible. Um, who knows? Victor may have a hand in it. Well, if Victor's still there, I guess. Is he still well, there? He is still, yeah, I just read, talked about that, where he pulled okay. his guy. Oh, yeah, you're They're right. on the outs. They're on the outs, but still. Still a little weird, though. Um, Well, wait, was he working as Tom Brandy or South and Sear? It doesn't say. Ram Man is Rastamon, right? Yeah. And he would come back to, to, well, to Puerto Rico for IWA. And honestly, seeing the Romeros on here is kind of the most interesting one because of all the guys to not pay, you're going to pay the guys who probably had the most weight on their shoulders about coming back after Brody and did and probably worked there the most of anyone who was in the locker room that night after. Well, the baby locker room, at least. But they're the tag champions. That's even more. Well, that too, but still, like. They're the tag champions. They're in dire straits at this time. So when when were they reincorporated? I don't know. I forget. I forget how all that drama plays out. I'm sure. I'm sure one of our friends will let us know. But ugh. so when do things turn around for them? Not until after IWA blows up. Pretty much. Yeah. During kind of the that last boom period where both promotions were strong. Mm-hmm. But yep. So dark days for WC. Oh, I remember the one other thing I was going to ask, and since I don't think I asked this before, why were they the pastors of New Zealand? What kind of name is that? Los pastores. Yeah. Is there like a colloquial significance I'm missing here? Um, 
I'm not positive on that. I really, I mean, I guess. It, well, a shepherd. That's right. Past it's not it, 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 the shepherd. So, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a shepherd. So it's, I mean, it's a synonym thing. Because you think a pastor, but in that meaning, shepherd is part of it too. That makes sense. Yeah. There you go. All right, let's go back to the United States, and we have an interesting story about Tank Abbott to talk about. Tank Abbott's being stopped by police after allegedly punching on a nightclub patron after midnight on August 24th. According to the Huntington Beach Police Department, Lieutenant Dan Johnson, Matthew Franco and his cousin were watching Abbott kicking cars in the parking lot of the Majestic Dance Club in Huntington Beach. When Abbott turned around to Franco and allegedly said, Why are you looking at me? You want something? He allegedly, without provocation, punched and kicked Franco in the head, leaving Franco with a concussion. Abbott claimed he was 25 yards away from the parking lot fight. When it happened, he had 10 witnesses who would say he actually broke the fight up and said the police had not even contacted him by any charges in the incident. Abbott had signed a letter of intent to fight on the October 11th Tokyo Dome show underneath Hicks on Grace and Novika Takata in the main event because that show is six days before the next UFC. There's thought USC will attempt to pay Abbott not to fight on that show. So he'd be fresh for the UFC tournament. Here's talking rematch of probably the most exciting fight in USC's history. Abbott versus Ola Tatar off in the first round of the tournament on October 17th. What do you think about this, Vix? I don't even know. Um, like I don't think this thing ever was a thing, so to speak. Um, You're saying your recollection is that Tank is telling the truth here? Yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't remember anything coming out of this as far as a legal thing, though. So, I guess Tank was telling the truth. I mean, I'm Googling it real quick. Hank Abbott and Matthew Franco. Uh, and nothing's coming up. Yeah, so. Yep. Tank ends up... Um, he didn't fight Tartaroff again. Who does he fight in the first round of... Oh, wait, is there an Ultimate Ultimate in 97? There's not. He, he, fought, he loses to Mari Smith. He doesn't go to Japan. That's when he lost. That's <laughs> one of my favorite fights ever. That's when he fights Mario Smith, and Mario Smith just kicks him in the leg throughout the whole fucking thing, and Tank's like, "God damn it, I quit." Yeah. USC fifteen. <laughs> what a show that was! Collision course. That's uh, Randy Couture, uh, Vitor Belfort, when Randy ended Vitor. Uh, that was Mark Kerr. Uh, completely ending Greg Stott. <laughs> Greg what a Ranger sh- Stott. Yeah, what a fucking um, show. Now, do you remember what uh, Greg Stott's alleged martial arts d- discipline was? No, I do not. That would be the Ranger Intensive Program, or <laughs> R.I.P. God, I miss you, old days of MMA. <laughs> when you had these guys with their uh, personalized deals. Of course, the best of all time is Eve Edwards Jitsu. But yeah. uh Also yeah. we have Harry Moskowitz in an alternate bout on that card, and I believe he's the first Jewish fighter in UFC history. Yeah, so, probably so. Because I think his name has come up in trivia questions before. But anyway. Yeah, I think so. Which of all course right, well, in, of course I've gotten into is Mark Coleman Jewish debates with people before. Well, speaking of uh, Jews involved in combat sports, let's go to Extreme Championship Wrestling. There were no shows over the past week, so the major news was Perry Saturn signing with WCW. 
<laughs> all, kinds, all kinds of stories have come out from this, including that WCW was making a major raid of ECW talent and blaming all kinds of different parties for that. From all accounts, numerous wrestlers are contacted by WCW, and it's all free enterprise and stuff. But the money WCW offered to guys is way over what one would logically believe their market value to be, considering what guys with similar or a lot more talent that are already over at WCW are earning. You can read whatever you want to in that statement, although Saturn isn't, does, actually doesn't fall into that category, so the figure banned about that he was offered 100 grand per year. John Cronus won't be following, as Saturn apparently has been wanting to break up the team and go on as a singles wrestler for more than a year, and they even began a breakup angle last year, but Paul Heyman convinced the two to stay together since he marked them as the best tag team in the world. Okay, do we want to talk about Saturn and Cronus before we move on to Wade's side of this? Well, Wade's going to talk about the whole bigger picture, but yeah, let's talk about Saturn and Cronus first. Okay. The fact that Saturn basically had to also be his caretaker, regardless of anything that John Cronus did, and none of this was probably his actual fault, but... Of course that's going to grade on you after three years. Yeah. You're not getting paid extra for it. You know? Like, Saturn shouldn't have been so stubborn and just kind of ghosted the guy and made him sad, but from Saturn's point of view, I get why he got fed up. Because for those who don't know... Cronus was mentally disabled to the point he was on disability and that Saturn basically had to conduct all of the business for them and fill out all their forms and visa forms and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, consider how much being a caretaker or anything like that is stressful for someone who's a family member getting paid or anything. And that's, and he had to make that just kind of an unpaid part of his job. So, I get it. From that perspective, I totally get it. Yeah. It's a tough situation. Yeah. You know, I understand. Um, but I understand where, I mean, I understand this also Saturn wants to be a singles wrestler because, I mean, shit, he was a hell of a talent. So, I can understand why he wanted to break free. All right, so let's get into the grand picture here. And the Pro Wrestling Torch. The attempt and raid by WCW of ECW talent may not be over, although several key wrestlers have already said no to casual former offers for WCW. Tommy Dreamer told people that Scott Levy, Raven at WCW, called him to feel him out regarding his interest in being part of a major exodus of ECW talent at WCW. Dreamer turned him down and immediately alerted Paul Heyman to the offer. Snitch. Among the others said to be contacted by joining WCW were Sam Mann, Shane Douglas, and the Dudleys, all of whom have apparently turned down the offers. In the case of Sandman, he had to turn them down because in the contract VCW or because WCW didn't offer him enough money. The former probably was the case. The Dudleys were offered and immediately signed contracts VCW at the rumor surface they had been contacted about joining WCW. Dreamer, Taz, Douglas, and Candido, along with the Dudleys, are considered to be closer to Heyman and more loyal to ECW than any other big names on the roster, and thus are not expected to even consider jumping. I wonder why that is. Yeah, uh, Oh, gee, I wonder why that is. Why aren't you putting it in here that they work in the office? All of them. Yes. All six of them. Yes. In fact, it surprised me WCW even bothered to approach Dreamer. Though if his WCW decided to go to Dreamer because they heard of growing unrest in ECW's locker room, even among those considered most loyal to ECW and Heyman. Douglas apparently would not be willing to accept any offer from WCW that was for less money than Scott Hall and Ric Flair bake. 
because without equal pay, he wouldn't have equal power over the direction of his character, and believes personal issues would get in the way of receiving the push he deserves. Given his position in ECW, his sour experience in WF, he's likely to stay in ECW for the time being. Yeah. All right. We're a week ahead of the mole. That whole thing being revealed. You mean a week after? Oh, no, 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 a week, week ahead. Because the Todd Gordon yep. role gets revealed the following week. Gotcha. Which we did before on the show. Yes, like I talked about earlier on uh, 216, whichever number it was. So that's not out there yet. So right now it's just looking like that Raven is doing some recruiting for WCW. And maybe, you know, the other people involved too. But interesting to see how this is being portrayed at this point in time compared to what's about to happen, isn't it? Yeah, and again, it's also very weird that no one's mentioning that the people who are closest to Heyman all work in the office. <laughs> like, what the hell? And you would think that's got to be known. Yes. You know, that's not a secret to Wade Keller, Jason Powell. I'm pretty sure it's publicly known that Douglas is promoting the Pittsburgh shows by this point. Yeah. Also, it's all the people who have known Paul the longest. Mm-hmm. You got your Johnny Rods guys. You got Shane, who he's known probably, I mean, since at well, he's a Danucci guy, but they were in UW, they were in Continental together. He probably knew him through Eddie before that. Um, he's, he's a Danucci guy, and you also have your Monster Factory guys. I mean, you have your Rod, Rods and Monster Factory guys too, and they work in the office. Yes, <laughs> but they're they're not Todd Gordon guys. Well, don't they also way. have the school by this point? They're so Taz is obviously office. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they are not the Todd Gordon guys. They're Paul Heyman guys. Where have I heard that before? But they're all part of the New York clique. All of them are from the the, the, the area, the tri, the, the you know, the New, York, New Jersey area. Yeah, but Shane's who Shane one of Shane's oil dearest friends in the wrestling business, McFoley. Mm-hmm. So there's that too. So, if you want to hear us talk about that, then go to uh, show two sixteen, whichever number it was, to uh, hear us talk about the mole situation. That was uh, quite the interesting show. Yes, and and, ter- have- and Terry Taylor's involvement in that. Oh, of course. So now we have. <laughs> so is this Wade or Jason? By the way, this is what this is. Uh, whoever. So this is about Saturn. There, okay. the torches uh, added part about Saturn. Saturn left ECW in part because he legitimately did not get along with his preliminary tag team partner, John Cronus. He wanted the team to be broken up day back last year. But because the team filled the important ditch for ECW filled the number one tag team slot vacated by Public Enemy, Heyman pushed for them to stay together. So sources ECW said that Saturn is among the group of formerly ultra-loyal ECW wrestlers who had lost their faith in the promotion in Heyman in recent months for a variety of reasons. The most recent reason being disappointed with the pay-per-view payoffs. Saturn is sitting out with a major knee injury, although its recovery is said to be going quicker than expected. When it's a three-year deal worth around $100,000 per year, Saturn would be guaranteed to make at least what would have been a best-case scenario had he stayed with ECW, plus WCW has a potentially lighter schedule than ECW. If not the number of dates, at least in the wear and tear of the style. Cronus is not expected to uh, follow Saturn and be among the other ECW wrestlers who jump WCW. He could end up teaming with New Jet permanently if Mustafa doesn't return to ECW anytime soon. Which is what happens. So. Gangstonators. 
Yeah, I mean, Saturn fucking got this big contract while he has his major knee injury. That's the other thing, too. When he's been at ECW shows lately, he's on crutches doing interference spots and stuff. Which he shouldn't have been doing with his help, but... Didn't he even do the elbow? Off the ladder! Or some shit. Yes! I was thinking scaffold, but the sca- but the well, wait. The Brian Lee scaffold match is no, that's ninety six. No, it was on it was off a ladder or some shit. Cage, maybe he did off. A, no, not a, I don't think he did off a cage. It was a ladder, I think. But still, he climbed the ladder with his fucked up knee, and then did an elbow. Yes, I don't know if he landed on that side or the other one, but still, not a good idea. No, and then he comes back and he's in and then he comes in WCW. He's doing springboard spots from the beginning. <laughs> he has a big knee brace on, but Taz said he believes now that Dudley, Sandman, Sabu, Van Damme, and Douglas are Mundos in the contract, but preferred not to reveal the details of his contract stats with ECW. If WCW contacted wrestlers who were under the contract with ECW, that could potentially have validity to Vincent Man's major claim in his lawsuit against WCW by establishing a pattern of behavior by WCW. <laughs> Also, wait a second. We can find out what Saturn made. Why are we not looking this up? You have it. I'm I'm pulling it up now. It took me a second to remember. So, let's see. Do you have any guesses as to whether or not this is accurate? 900 grand a year? Yeah. I'm going to say it's close. It may be off a little bit, but I'm going to say it's close. No less than 75, no more than, than one, one and a quarter. Okay, I may actually want to look at this memo instead of the actual pay data, because they increase... Okay, no, it's put in a total with other contracts they negotiated increases on. Okay, so based on what we have for him on... Yeah, we don't actually have any actual contract information for him based on when he leaves, but based on payroll... Okay, so 97, when does he make... So he makes his debut when? Beginning of September? Mm Mm-hmm. So... No, okay, so for four months, he makes 53781 so at a minimum, he's on a $150,000 contract. Wow. Yeah. Then 98, he makes Good over... Good for him. Over, 98, he makes over one hundred sixty-five grand. 99, he makes over two hundred seventy-three grand. And for the month he's there in 2000, or less than a month, he makes t- over 29000 Hmm. Good for him. So yeah, but at a minimum here, he's making he's making 150 grand on this contract. It looks like. What a fucked up knee. Yeah, good for him. I love this line by Dave here. Expect some major internal changes in ECW very soon. <laughs> it makes you wonder how much was known, or how much. And I'm gonna say maybe known, but how much. How much was out there that the Todd Gordon thing was was going on that people might have known something about but didn't know for sure? Well, also, how much ECW business was done out of the pawn shop after he sold to Paul? I would think none. But wasn't Gabe's main job until the mole thing working for Todd? He may have been Paul's mole. Don't you think? I mean, don't you don't you think that Paul Heyman w- would have somebody placed inside the pawn shop to keep track of Todd Gordon, to keep tabs on him? It's strange how I, little we hear Gabe talk about Todd, isn't it? It is. 
Wonder why. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should ask Kabashi one on Twitter. <laughs> the, Do you want to? Uh... It's not Gabe. It's a, an account people thought was Gabe, but now the account's gone. So. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I, I I can't. I don't know who who's what and who who's this, who's that. Who I don't know who's got burner accounts. I don't know. Don't care. So it don't matter to me. Password research. Password reset trick. And the last two digits of the phone number did not match Gabe's phone number. So if it's him, he's using a burner phone number, but you don't really need to do that because you can't use that trick to try to match up a sock account or alt account or whatever you want to call it with an email or phone number if they have two-factor authentication on. So I would think if he knew about that, he'd just do the two-factor authentication. So I don't think it's good. There you go, folks. Bix did the investigating. And All just right. in general, everyone, turn on two-factor authentication, please, for your own security. Steve Carroll of ECW claims that Hardcore Heaven will end up doing this as a 40,000 buys. In the first show, also did a little over 40,000 buys. So there really won't be much of a difference in number of buys between the two shows. The house show itself, Fort Lauderdale, would be inaccurate. They've been reported this here as papered. While we don't have exact figures, they're about sixteen fifty paid in the $60,000 gate. The free tickets were about 200 media comps and 101 tickets from those who purchased Bob Ryder's travel package from Philadelphia, in which ringside tickets were thrown in. The show wasn't technically a sellout, as reported here either, as there were about 70 tickets shy. They expect the November 30th pay-per-view to be moved to 7 p.m. Eastern, which should benefit the replay number since it won't start at midnight Eastern time. So this is request saying, okay, you're not that bad. You don't have to start at 9 o'clock. Yes, pretty much. I'm curious how much the buys shift from that point on, though. I would think it probably got higher. Lance Wright has turned into a heel announcer acting like... He- since he's been in WF, that's all he's too good for w- ECW. At the preview show, Wright was first given notice, but then asked to try the heel gimmick at the Queen's TV taping, and Heyman is now going to keep him in the new role. Yes, the leader of the uh, WF faction, Lance Wright. And, Let's save our speak- for that after we watch the TV, I guess. Yeah, speaking of, at that Queen's TV taping, we have a major angle here. Uh, the unthinkable happens. And an ECW ring. So let's go to the clip from TV. The worst possible desecration of the spirit of extreme that could possibly happen. Mm hmm. Uh, do we have to? Yes. Bueller's gonna take the chair! And we should just get, set the scene here because we didn't want to play all of this. Uh, RVD and Dreamer, Sabu and Fonzie run in, they beat. A dreamer, and then Beulah comes in to try to stop things, and that's where we pick up. Mm-hmm. For Tommy, oh my God! Alfonso has Beulah. Jesus! He made her watch that chair right to the face. Okay, that was not a chair to the face. That was RVD having Dreamer in the. What do you call it? The La Tipitia, but where you rock forward. I don't even know if it has its own name. But, you know, to set the thing he'd do in tag matches with Sabu, to set up a Sabu spot. Sabu comes off the top rope, holding a chair, and in midair just launches it at Dreamer's head. And Sabu is also wearing a suit here. And that dress. It's cor- corporate Sabu. Because he's part of the World Wrestling Federation. As we're about to find out. Beat it! What the hell is that? 
Kieran. Yes, I'm up on. A lot of them are. Everyone that was on camera was Kieran. Oh, my God. Mr. Monday Night, Rob Van Dam and Sabu have... They've buried Tommy Dreamer under the banner of... of the World Wrestling Federation. And Hula is crying. This is Dreamer's worst nightmare. Boy, that definitely was a Jim Ross selling the Russian flag angle. <laughs> oh my God, he, he put the flag on, on Dreamer. Very subdued, Joey Styles there. You would think that'd be like the ultimate insult. <laughs> He's serious, Joey Styles. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> Oh, the beginning of this angle. Oh, my God. Should we also watch Lance Wright has his old job back? I guess. Might as well. Well, because it's not going to be a full Hype Central if that's what it is anyway, because yeah. it's the network. They don't have all that stuff on there. Yeah. So, all right, go ahead. assuming this deals with the whole Team WWF thing. Okay. Ooh. Yay. Go to the cards. Hype. Lance, comb your hair, the gel going, the look, the do, shave your face, the tan, hype, hype, remember? Hype Central, hype, go to the shows, hype, hype, hype. Lance, got your old job back. Oh, Joe, you got me my old job back. I suppose Joe Gertner's too big to do Hype Central now that he's with the Dudleys. I suppose you want me to go up in a helicopter so I can follow the Sandman around and maybe I can do Hype Central from up there in the helicopter. You know, I could have co-hosted WrestleMania. I could have made the jump to Nitro, but my agent said, hey, babe, Mr. Wright, let's go back to ECW. It's young, it's hip, it's irreverent. And I said, okay, I'll give it another whirl. You know, they could use a talent like me. But no, this is the only gig you're going to give me. Hype Central. I've been there. I've done that. You know what, Joey? Why don't you hype it up? Why don't you get me something a little more high profile? It's over. Joey, I love you. You're beautiful. Don't ever change. And if you do, hey, babe, call Collect. Whatever happened to Lance Ryan? Uh, that's a very good question. But he just faded away. Like his he has he been around wrestling at all since like nineteen ninety eight? No. Yeah, and what happened? I don't know. He was coming off of a run as a ring announcer on the B shows on the World Wrestling Federation. I like Lance Wright. That's yeah. one thing about this. I mean, he he could talk. Yeah, charisma. He could have been a, a you know a heel color commentator. He could have been a, even a heel manager, you know, in, in a promotion of the ECW. And he just, like I said, after this angle gets dropped, he just fades away. Very strange. It is very strange. Yes. Maybe uh, somebody else. Okay, so Team WWF angle though. Oh boy, yeah. I think the worst part is it's never explained why Sabu's partaking in any of this. Yeah. Well, he had worked, he had done some WWF stuff. He had done like one appearance, well, or maybe two. Oh no, he did two because he had the Scorpio match too. But uh, 
like RVD made some sense. Alfonso is RVD's manager and had, you know, been brought into the company with the idea that he had a WWF reputation or whatever. But Sabu, Sabu just doesn't fit, and then the whole thing just keeps getting worse and worse. Like, why are we supposed to care about this? Why are we even supposed to associate these people with the World Wrestling Federation? All right, so John Lister, uh, I found, found an old post by John Lister about the background on Lance Rye okay. uh, from an interview he did in 1997, around this time. He said he got in the business because he was a lifelong fan. A friend's brother-in-law was an executive producer at WF, got him an internship there in 93. His main job was research towns WF was running so that Gene Oakland could make local references during live event news. That's fantastic. They led to a full-time job as production assistant in 1994, working mainly on superstars. He was later laid off as part of cutbacks. He'd been going to each of the arena shows as an old friend of Joey Styles, which led to the Hype Central gig. In fact, they apparently went to high school together. Okay. So there you go. But yeah, there's nothing that says anything about him. What he, what happened afterwards? So who knows? Okay, I see, like, if I search for ECW Lance Wright, the first hit is a Reddit thread from six years ago, whatever happened There's to him. There. There's nothing There's in nothing. There. I've already read it. No pun intended. So, who knows? Maybe somebody will let us know. Alright, expect Aldo Montoya and Bobby Duncan Jr. to get a bigger push. Oh, I'll say about Aldo Montoya getting a bigger push. Too big the, a push. The biggest push. Like I said before, though, PJ Polacco, very good wrestler, mm-hmm. just should never have gotten that push. No, too, too too big of a spot for him. He just wasn't the guy. He is a nope. Like he's a tremendous Some ta- utility wrestler. Exactly. Some talent aren't main eventers. Some talent aren't meant to be mid card guys. That's okay. Or it's like I say about Mike Bennett and Matt Taven. Individually. They're pretty good. As a team, they're at their best. They're fantastic as a team. They are meant to be a tag team. Yes. There are plenty of tag teams. There's wrong with that. Yes. They're meant to be a tag team. There's tag teams that are better. So. Look at all the wrestlers who are just much better as tag team wrestlers. Like, you know, Billy Gunn, Bart Gunn. Yeah. Bob Holly. Just some guys are better in certain roles. You know, wouldn't it, as much as you want a main event WrestleMania and be the big star, in a way that wouldn't you rather be the best at something? It's something mm-hmm. you know you can be the best at, I guess I should say. Yeah. Nothing is definite in regards to being part of the ECW taking part of the September 22nd Raw from Square Garden, and in some form is expected to take, to take happen, whatever that means. Thanks, Dave. To take happen. <laughs> take place. I don't know what that what Dave's trying to say here. I have no idea. I guess we did not have Derek Sabato yet in 1997. No. Uh, to the torch. ECW contact said Vish is about coming in. Discuss contacting Hacksaw Jim Duggan as possible surprises for the Dreamer Lawler Lights Out game in the pay-per-view. Sid turned down the offer. Jim Duggan? They were in... They were in Florida, so it wasn't like they were in Louisiana. Has he lived in Louisiana basically since, like, continuously since 1983 or whatever? Yeah, pretty much. He is. Yeah. He, he never stayed, moved back to there. New York or anything? No. Okay. <sighs> Duggan. 
in ECW. Could you imagine that? Fans would ate it up, though. Mm. Um, and on the TV commercial for the Barely Legal Pay-Per-View posters, one sales pitch Paulie uses is that the lighting on the poster is better than the pay-per-view. <laughs> on the 900 line commercial, Paulie told viewers, spend it all 99 a minute, and we'll spend it getting decent lighting director in this pay-per-view show. That was a horribly lit show. Which, by the way, he's talking about Hardcore Heaven. Were, were they selling Hardcore Heaven posters, or were they still selling the Barely Legal posters? Yeah, they're selling Barely Legal posters. Which clearly they made way too many of based on how long that commercial aired for. Yes. But, yes, the uh, Hardcore Heaven pay-per-view was not well lit. Woof, my God. But it wasn't badly lit in the way a lot of wrestling shows are badly lit. The ring was lit fine. And it wasn't like you couldn't see the crowd at all. It was just... It wasn't good, Bix. It just wasn't... Do you get what I'm saying, though? Like It wasn't good. I'm not it saying it was good. good, but I'm saying it was better than a lot of other people's bad lighting. Yeah, it was not good. <laughs> though, I think the thing you could say the most for it, though, it was not recognizable as the Fort Lauderdale War Memorial. No. All right, um... Let's go to WWA in New Jersey. Wildwood, New Jersey, on August 28th. We have Wild Bill over Alley-oop, oop, oop, oop. Jim McPherson over Angel. No longer Jungle Jim McPherson? Not here. Chuck Sloan over Rob Lee. Patch over Chris Candido by disqualification. Balls Mahoney over King Kong Bundy by disqualification. And the Bushwhackers over the Himalayan players in your main event. Oh, gee, I wonder why Balls Mahoney, Chris Candido, and King Kong Bundy are working here. <laughs> because this is like yeah. a sharp Monster Factory promotion. Mm-hmm. Yes. Where it gets confusing is that when he and Dennis Corluzzo were working together, it was still called WWA. Mm-hmm. So yep. you have WWA shows through, like, end of 92 that mostly look like what would become NWA New Jersey shows. Mm-hmm. And then from that point on, it's just Monster Factory, guys. Yeah. All right. Southern States Wrestling. Bo James promotion. Ran to Samson Center at Fall Branch, Tennessee on September the 1st. Samson Center have... is his main venue for many years. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Denny Cooley beat the Brute. Roger Anderson over Brooklyn Bad Boy number one by DQ. The Living Legends, Bo James and Brian Logan with Dr. Mike Cooper in their corner. Beat Blade Boudreaux and Derek King. Very young Derek King. Mm-hmm. SSW Tag Titles match, Death and Destruction. Frank Parker and Roger Anderson retained, defeating the Brooklyn Bad Boys. And uh, retained the titles. So this state's Appalachian title, Danny Christian retained over the War Machine with the Duke of New York. Al Getz. And uh, one of the fall wins the title, Southern State's heavyweight title match, decision match. Jimmy Valiant and Johnny Thunder defeated Major De Beers and Otto Schwantz with Count Grog when Thunder pinned Otto to win the title. I don't think I realized that Otto worked for, uh, for Bo. Mm-hmm. But he was more of a Count Grog guy than an Omega guy, so... Yeah. I guess that's part of the hookup, because I don't think the Hardys or Jason Arndt or any of those ever worked for Bo, did they? Oh, I don't know. They could have. All right, IW Mid-South. They ran on August 28th in Louisville. We have Blaze over Cash Flow. And the way it Trace. is in the Observer, it's spelled F-L-O-W, not well, the actual yeah. Christian name of Cash, F-L-O. It's also 1997. Uh, Tracy Smellers over Rolling Hard. 
Then some others beat Ian Rotten. Sean Casey and Chris Michaels beat Sharp Boy and American Kickboxer. Man Man Pondo over Tom Burton. Sharon Martell over Debbie Combs. And Ian Rotten and Pitbull 2 over Ox Harley and Man Man Pondo in your main event. The funny thing about IWA shows in this era is that they're basically just any other Louisville area indie show at this time, plus they're a few other guys. Promotion? Say that again? They're NWA promotion. They have the NWA. Oh, oh no, no. They, well, they're doing the feud with Dennis. Yeah, but they're not NWA members or anything. That's what. He, uh, no, but I think they, they, that the Sherry Debbie match was. I think was probably for the NWA ladies title. Probably was. Yes. That's uh, I don't know. But anyway, and yeah. Sherry, of course, would work for IWA on and off for the next several years. The um, early days, IWA itself. Yes. Yeah. So this is probably at the Kmart building, right? Uh, yeah. Either or the Teen Stream Teen Club or whatever it was called. Teen Club, yeah. All right, USWA. The final live television show on WMC TV took place on August 30th after a 21 year run. Actually, more than 30 years since the show was on WHBQ in Memphis Live on Saturday mornings for many years before going to Channel 5. The show is moving to one hour. It had been 90 minutes, taped version, which were at midnight on Saturdays and be replaced on Sunday afternoons. Tony Friedman and Bill Barons were the announcers, since Michael St. John wasn't there. Lance Russell did a television interview late in the show, thanking fans for their cards and flowers, and it sounded great, and said that he hoped he could return to the show at some point. This is when Lance is recovering from his, uh, what was it, quadruple bypass, I think? Yes. They also did a video montage showing clips of, among others, Luke Thess, Tommy Gilbert, Eddie Gilbert, Jeff Jarrett, Miss Texas, Andy Coffin, Bill Dundee, and Jimmy Hart. The show went off the air. Um, well, Dundee returned as a referee with Dutch Mantel and Tommy Dreamer the next day in Memphis, so there's that, which we'll get into that in a minute. But uh, they dropped balloons from the ceiling and the show went off the air. Now, before they did that, the the last match of a live Saturday morning show for this on USWA was Jerry Lawler against Doomsday, Glenn Jacobs. So let's go to the end of that match, and then we'll have the uh, final segment of the show where uh, the balloons are hanging around. So let's go to the clip. Wait, why is Mayor Glenn wearing Carrying Cross's new gear? <laughs> we're running low on our time, so we don't know how much of this match we're going to be able to bring you. I'll jack up the volume. Ball or to the expiration of our time, Doomsday with Lawler rams his head into that top turnbuckle. Now, if I were Jerry Lawler, I'd just be trying to survive right here against this big man. There's not much time left. Oh, my God, the Bill's an answer, Although, you never know with the king. Oh, caught in the corner with a big, big forearm. Who's this Jerry, the guy? King Lawler has made his home Tony Freak. Out of beating guys that, that are bigger than him. They come in here. Who knows? I don't know. Jerry Lawler doesn't have a lot of size on him. I'm a lot bigger than him. I'm going to take him down. But Jerry, the King Lawler, has made a career out of beating bigger men. Well, you could hear that last shot all the way across this area. This, it, this is already getting out of hand. Lawler really hasn't had Someone's a chance to get going. And quite honestly, he's been involved in it so many times today. I have to think he's tired going into this. And Doomsday's a fresh man coming right out of the back. We have just under two minutes of time remaining in this expiration of time match. Two minutes remaining. Doomsday now just laying in with those chops and then follows up with that big boot. All right. Lawler finally is able to get a, a blow in, and that strap is already pulled down, and Lawler's ready to take him to school. The King laying those fists in. Wait a minute, here comes Kramer and Beulah. Wait a minute, this is on call. Tommy Kramer and Beulah. And a DDT on Lawler. With an ECW flag? We need oh my God! What do we see here? 
Tommy Dreamer He's buried your ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Putting the ECW banner over the King Jerry Lawler. Could we get somebody from the back to get these guys out of the ring? Here comes the icon, Dutch Mantell. Mantell hits the ring, attacking Tommy Dreamer. There you go. And now Team Icon is taking it to Tommy Dreamer. About time somebody stood up for USWA. Uh, we're almost out of time. We have just a little bit of time here going to break. Uh, we have to jump in and take a quick break, fans. We will be back with more championship Hopefully wrestling. we can get this thing cleared up, Tony. Stay with us. Tony Friedman back on the USWA with Stacy and Bill Barons. Today is the final edition of Saturday Morning Wrestling. After 30 years, Saturday Morning Wrestling draws to a close today. However... The USWA he looks is like on Scott Saturdays at midnight right here on WMC And don't forget 5. that Sunday 3 p.m. time period. It looks like we got a little bit of a party going on here. Stacy, thank you. Oh, like... The confetti falls all down. over the cake. I'll tell you, we do have a party balloons. here. I'll tell you, but it's always a party in the USWA where we have more action <laughs> in any one, one program than any wrestling yes. program in the United States. You and we plan to continue job. that as we head into the next year and into the next decade. I tell you, this is uh, yes. this is exciting. We've got. Uh, I tell you, we had a big card here today. Obviously, we had uh, Tommy Rich appear for the first time on television over Mike Samples. We had over. the premiere of the Colorado Kid, who was victorious in his match. We tomorrow ended night, up... Bill. I want to jump in real quick. We're having a party here in the studio, but tomorrow night's going to be a party at the Big One Expo Center, right there at I-40 Hollywood Exit Number Five. And I want to invite everyone out in the Memphis and the Mid South area tomorrow night. It all kicks off at 7:30, but you're going to see that free match between Brian Christopher and Billy Joe Travis in the parking lot in a cage. That's going to kick off tomorrow. The King Dundee, Tommy Dreamer, Dutch Mantel. We've got them all out there. This is going to be amazing. There's never been anything like it at the Big One. Get down there early. Get those ringside seats. We will see you for championship wrestling this Saturday at midnight for the first ever midnight wrestling this Saturday at midnight for Bill Barron's Stacy. I'm Tony Friedman. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow night at the big one. Bye-bye, everyone. That cake looks delicious. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of USWA Championship Wrestling. Now she's trying to blow the confetti off the cake. Uh, how about that? The end of that, we get Mike, a thing with Lance Russell, Michael St. John's I mean, introducing the show. Which I'm, I would hope was on purpose as a little nod to Lance, but... I hope so. I'm not sure. Well, so what do you think about that ending of this show? The ending of all that, the, the, the last Saturday morning television show in Memphis. At least it's a power pro. Really? They should have hit someone with the cake. <laughs> Very anticlimactic. And again, boy, isn't that something? Tommy Dreamer, uh, the, uh, you know, pretty much on the same day got buried under a WF flag and then buried Jerry Lawler under a USWA flag. Da, 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 da. <laughs> In fairness, the few... It is supposed to be parallel. It's not supposed to... It's not a rip-off. It is his retaliation. Yeah. Even but if still. The, even if the feud... The ECW-USWA feud is acknowledged more, much more in USWA than in ECW. Well, of course. Amazing. Amazing how that works out. 
All right, so they had the August 31st show at the Big One Expo Center. It drew 850 fans, $7,000 gate, as ticket prices were raised. Dutch Mantel and Tommy Dreamer worked for the Unified Title. Start with Dreamer bringing in Beulah with a referee shirt, saying he wanted her to referee. She was escorted out, and Bill Dundee was made the referee. After Dundee was knocked out, Dreamer used DDT. Beulah counted the pin. Lawler at the ring with the storyline being that he didn't want Dreamer with the title. Because it would become an ECW title, so he piled drove Beulah, attacked Dreamer, and put Dutch on top and counted the pinfall. Yeah. Dundee got up, began yelling at Lawler, and wound up with a four-way brawl with Dundee, Mantel, Lawler, and Dreamer. Dreamer wound up getting about seventy percent cheers. Well, nothing is definite. They got to come back, depending upon the ECW schedule and date conflicts. With either a four-way match or a six-man tag with Lawler, Dutch, and Dundee against Dreamer and two other ECW wrestlers. It's that interesting that Dreamer was getting 70% cheers, supposedly, here. With all these Memphis legends. It's because he's hardcore. It's actually what ECW is doing, though. I mean, there are probably people at this show that weren't going to the normal Memphis shows, but were going to the shows where ECW guys were on it because of ECW guys. You know? That's got to be part of it. Yes, and also, granted, we're talking about Memphis, but... What's one of the most popular independent promotions in the territory? IWA Mid-South. What yeah, was the idea I mean, behind IWA Mid-South? Bringing ECW-style wrestling to the USWA territory. Yeah, but they, I mean, they ain't even, they've barely been around a full year at this point in time. So they're not what the IWA Mid-South, you know, everybody knows. Still very new. But, yeah, I mean, that's ECW, so, yeah. All right, um... The interesting gimmick was they held a barbed wire match outside in front of the building between Brian Chris and Billy Travis at 7 p.m. for free. It turned into a bloodbath using all the gimmicks with Travis filled with major welts by the time it was over with, ending with Travis DQ for Rob Price interfering. The idea was to get some people to come to the building for the free match, and since they were there, then they buy a ticket for the show. Since the show drew better than expected, it seemed to work. Well, how about that? That's a very interesting gimmick, Biggs. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've ever heard that before. Hey, independent wrestling promotions, that's not a bad idea for you to try out. Do a, you know, do some type of wild gimmick match before your regular show for free and see if you can't hook the people to come in the, for the regular show. Wouldn't, wouldn't hurt. So try and see. At the regular house show, PG-13 ended up beating both Rex King and Paul Diamond, after which Diamond turned on King and Stephen Dunn made the save for King to presumably start putting them back together as a tag team. And it's Stephen Dunn and Flash Flanagan to either win the U.S. win or retain USWA tag titles. Dunn and Flanagan were champs of television, but PG came to, to the first match with the belts and were announced as champions. And nobody can figure out what has happened. Those in promotion were under the impression that PG 13 won the belts from Dunn and Flanagan in the second match on that car. <laughs> Lawler beat Rob Price by DQ when Dreamer attacked Lawler and went up a three way for a while to a pricey Dreamer. Started ganging up on Lawler and Brian Christopher made to say with a baseball bat. Tommy Rich returned as a heel, but the Memphis Guard made a save for Doug Gilbert in his match against Doomsday. Color Rocket also returned, which signifies that Burt Purtis is back with his promotion, helping them promote the small towns. All right, 8.50 here. We had the barbed wire cage match. Rick Titan over Bulldog Reigns. Tommy Rich over Spellbinder. PG-13 over King and Diamond. Then they beat Danny Flanagan. Law over Rob Price by DQ. Doug Gilbert retained USW title over Doomsday by DQ. And Dutch Dreamer went to a no-contest unified title match. And Rick is there under his WWF deal, right? Yeah. It's a very interesting promotion at this time. Um, 
I wish that it was, you know, Lance was there all the time, or at least Dave and Core were still announcing. But you got, I mean, you got a lot of interesting names on this show. And they got the ECW angle going on. So it's something that really, I mean, it's an era USWA doesn't get really talked about because it's the, the an era that really is looked at as a dark time because of how close we are to the promotion closing its doors. Yes, and we should say, though, that if they don't sell to someone who just starts overspending with these expensive offices and stuff, the promotion probably would have stayed open. Well, let's continue that. You, you probably mentioned a point. There is some seriously discontent among members of the current ownership group since lots of the money is being spent on things like a new set, but no real money is coming in. None at this point has happened, but some sort of shakeup is expected, and many of the stockholders are tense. USWA survived for years in a Jerry Jarrett, basically by never spending any money when everyone else had business. Many of the wrestlers already believe there's an ownership change and the rumors flying around everywhere. So there you go. Well, there's more where that came from, though, that's in here. Well, yeah, yeah, there's talk of not running shows in Louisville no more. So there's that. And the Cleveland owners, this is from the Torch, the Cleveland ownership group that bought USWA just a few weeks ago sold the USWA once again to an individual in Texas. Which everyone listening to this show who has been for a while knows is not true. So I'm curious where this is going. The son new owner is running USWA and hired back Burt Prentice to put operations. The previous owners have fallen seven weeks behind on paying the national television station, so the writing was on the wall that they weren't going to last as owners. WF may end up as eventual owners once the money marks are used up, assuming WF wants to save USWA as a training grounds for talent. So what the hell do we think this story is? Because uh, the Selkers I don't didn't sell to anyone. I mean... I don't know. I mean, all right. So, you know, we did the whole thing um, the week after. So, okay. Here's, here's, we'll read this again. This is, we talked about this before, but we'll read it again. This is from the, the week after our week in the Observer. It continues to be all sorts of cast behind the scenes. Although it hasn't reported USWA has been sold to a Texas group. We're again told by people in the company that the same three-person ownership group from Cleveland is still in control. The only person from Texas in a management position is James Beard, who, along with Burt Prentice, is in charge of booking and promoting spot towns, and his hiring came the recommendation of Bruce Pritchard. There's infighting among the ownership group because very little money is coming after a lot of money was spent on cosmetic changes to get the promotion and television show a more modern look. And general manager Larry Burton was again talking about leaving this week. They believe they went eight days without running any house shows and they under a guaranteed contract except the people sitting there by WF. And the wrestlers haven't survived without their $40, $100 payoffs, depending on the wrestler, which doesn't add up much when you multiply 100 times zero. In addition, the company has limited debate face picking up extra money work on the gimmick table as they want to take over the concessions in a more professional manner. But as yet, that really hasn't started happening either. So there Taking you away the gimmick tables from the wrestlers in this territory is an aggressively shitty thing to do. Well, they wanted that money. They wanted to cut. Hmm. So, so there it Texas is. This thing is some confusion over James, James B. Roll. Okay. Yeah. Resume. Yes. All right. NWF, the National Wrestling Federation, they were in Canfield, Ohio on August 28th, front of 300 fans. And given the Biff, people on this show, this does appear to be Bob Raskin. Biff Beverly. And Jake Yogor beat the Executioners. Joel Strombo over Nikolai Volkov. Grant Valentine over Tony Atlas. Wendy Richter over Angel. 
Metal Maniac went about a royal, and the Iron Sheet beat the Metal Maniac. <laughs> no snucka. Yeah, but being that Jules Strongbow, aka Frank Hill, and Wendy Richter are on this show, I'm guessing this is actually Bob Raskin's UW, excuse me, NWF, just running many years after we thought he was. Yeah. Which is interesting to see, and Jake Hillgore was a long-time Ohio indie guy, right? Mm-hmm. Because I remember seeing that name before, but not necessarily this early. Wait a second. Is there any connection, if not relation, between Biff and Bobby Beverly? I don't know. Should I uh, text one John Thorne? I mean, it probably wouldn't make any difference if I'm recording. Probably not, but... Alright, so let's go to Dallas. Gary Hart's world-class next-generation promotion in the sportsroom has folded, and a new weekly Friday night attendant is Power Zone Wrestling in Oklahoma City, going under the name CWA. The most recent show drew 100 at most, so it's not exactly a wrestling hotbed, using guys like Terry Garvin, Sims, Ashley Jackson, Sam Houston, Iceman King Parsons, Wobbler, and Black Bart. The same guys have been around through all the different motions over the past 10 years. The results of the August 29th show, Al Jackson over Chuck Singer, Wobbler went over said man, Iceman over Black Bart, Sam Houston over Lord Humongous, and Ashley Jackson over Terry Garvin. That's the problem. You have all these new promotions that pop up and start running this town, and they use the same fucking guys, all of them. You know? And I, and I like these guys, but if these other promotions are fa- failing using these guys, what do you think you're going to do? Yep. So, Jesus. And also, this is presumably what's now Impact Zone Wrestling, right? Because aren't yes, they out of the so. Oklahoma City area? Uh, They're out, out of Tulsa, I think. Maybe they're affiliated, anyway. but still. Yeah. Possible. And just to give you an idea of how bad the shows must have been doing that Gary Hart gave up, his rent at the Sportatorium was a dollar a ticket sold. And he still couldn't make yeah. it work. Yeah. All right, all pro wrestling. After raving about the Michael Minus Aaron O'Grady match two weeks ago in Hayward, Dave had to mention the Robert Thompson Michael Modest match on August 29th was even better. Both were injured, but still with more than 20 minutes with good pacing and flawless execution. Modest will be out of action for a few weeks due to blowing his knee, blowing out his ankle doing a Pescado. Well, this show drew 104 fans at Hayward as they had Boom Boom Comedian American Wild Child beat Rick Turner and Samurai Dragon Yakuza. Okay, that's gotta Jason. be one of the Rev Pro guys. I just don't know who. Jason Clare or Jay Smooth. Tony Jones over Donovan Morgan. Steve Rizzono won a false game. We're trying to match over Vic Grimes and Aaron O'Grady. And Michael Bonas over Robert Thompson. Okay, real quick. Thorne did reply, LOL, no. Well, there you go. So no connection between Biff and Bobby. And I am not going to say what he thinks he went, Biff Beverly went to prison for without fact-checking it first. <laughs> All right. Uh, according to newspapers in Los Angeles, Hulk Hogan and after James Kahn... Delivered eulogies on August 27th at the funeral of Jeep Swenson. What a sentence. Ted DiBiase was asked, but was unable to do so due to having to work the August 26th TV tape in Augusta. British tabloids covered the Swenson death, attributed to steroids bigger than the U.S. media. His eternal organs failed one by one. First, his lungs, then liver, kidneys, and he suffered a massive heart attack that killed him. His death was the talk in the WCW locker room last week, because he appeared on the show as recently as one year earlier, and it's like most of the wrestlers in the business haven't at least tried steroids at least one time in their career. In fairness, uh, 
Keith Swenson did not destroy steroids just one time in his career. Mm-mm. No. Hogan and James Kahn. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So what movie did he work with James Kahn on? Uh, I wouldn't know. Uh, oh, he played James Kahn's bodyguard in um, Bulletproof. The uh, Damon Wayans Adam Sandler movie. And of course, folks, yes. James Swenson was the original Bane. The original movie Bane. Yeah, movie Bane in Batman and Robin. He died on August 18th. Howard Tech at UCLA Medical Center. David West Smith also gave a eulogy at his funeral. He was what an avid user. Boy have met him. He was an avid user of steroids. Well, there you go. Started to use them in his early 20s. or probably could not take a shower properly. Put on a shirt or walk upstairs. From injuries or because of the muscular development? He was so fucking big. Jesus. He was so big. His death reportedly shot George Clooney, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Ruma Thurman, who were in the Batman Robin film with him. And you, and you will, people may not remember this, but the whole Hogan hookup. Donald's part. The Grinch Perkins. That's right. That's right. So, which by the Mr. way. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, everyone, if you haven't listened to the Patreon show about No Holds Barred, because that's where we get into the nitty gritty of how, like, there's a bunch of stuff talked about in the newsletters about that's being shot with wrestlers that's not in the movie, and how, if any of that's accurate, it seems pretty clear that there's a ton of shit shot for No Holds Barred that didn't make it into the movie, and that the plot got changed completely. Yeah, pretty much. And Portland Wrestling, August 28th, drew 300 fans. Buddy Wayne over, and Buddy Wayne in the Butcher, C.W. Bergstrom, over Tony Cozina and Sumito. Cozina then won a battle royal. Colonel the Bears beat Raptor. The Grappler Lynn Denton beat Matt Bourne in the main event. So there you go. Does Tony Cozina just have like the longest career in the history of wrestling? I don't think I realized <laughs> he was working this early. He's been around a while, hasn't he? All right, so let's... I mean, it makes sense, because he was already such a polished worker by the time we started seeing him, but I am curious what the earliest recorded match of his is. Okay. So, he's 50 now. So, and he was born October 23rd, 70, so he's 26 years. He's not super-duper young. Wikipedia has his first match as January 26, 1997. Um... Going by both his cage match profile and his profile on the EC, excuse me, the old ECCW website. Yeah. So he's been wrestling for almost twenty five years. Mm-hmm. And look, boy, did that does that dude have a chip on his shoulder and not the best attitude? But boy, can he work. Yeah. Very good. Absolutely. All right. Let's close that with the World Wrestling Federation and. Uh, yeah, we only have one Raw show to talk about because of the U.S. Open going on during this time period, and it was on a Friday. Friday night's main event. Yeah, it wasn't on called a- Raw. It wasn't called Friday Raw Friday or anything. Well, they did two of these, I thought, didn't they? In 97? I'm pretty sure it's both U.S. Open weeks. Um, well, they took time... I, I, I think it was... They, they took some time off. All right, they had... Um, they did the the 18th, then the, the 8th. So they went from the 18th to the 8th of Raw, of Monday Night Raw. 
Yeah, August 29th and September 5th. There you go. So there you go. So, so it's bad to bad weeks. But anyway, August 29th, the special started about 45 minutes late because Pete Sampras' match went long. Wait, 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 wait. So the show that was put there to deal with U.S. Open preemptions was almost done in was by pre- U.S. Open preemption? Yes. USA <laughs> Network, everybody. <laughs> And they're drawing a 1.6 rating and a 5.3 share, which is about what was figuring going in. Besides the Takamichinoku Jerry Lynn match, which everyone raved about, the only other highlight was the announcing by Jim Ross and Jim Cornette, who spent two hours and never ignored anyone's re- finishing moves, blew off anyone's credentials or ability, ignored a match in the ring, or all the things we expect from wrestling announcers today. All the running DQs weren't as bad as we see half the show one week and the other half next week. But it must have been a murder on the fans there live. And of course, on the building we got, we're all negative on the show. Well, that's not good. All right. So, of course, with a situation like this, Dave is not giving a detailed report. So let's go to The Torch in Wake Keller. Program up with an intro montage that thrown together and didn't have much kick. Since when did Jim Cornette go from a goofy manager to a spokesperson and announcer for WF? These character changes sometimes come out of nowhere without explanation. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, how he did, he made that transition with really nothing there to, you know, be the base for it, you know? Yeah, he's Jim he, Cornette. He had only done, like, occasional one-match guest announcing before this point, right? This is when mm-hmm. he suddenly becomes a, on TV at least, pretty much just a sometimes color commentator who leans heelish but is not outright a heel. Yeah. It was weird. Well, yeah. Also, when did he last manage anyone? He tried to manage The Rock with Rocky Maivia. Well, no, that, because the Headhunters one night thing would have been after that. So was it that were they the last ones? I Maybe. Was he still managing Vader up until a certain point in time? He, oh, that's right, because he has mini Vader at the beginning of the year. So yeah, when does he stop managing Vader? When does Bearer take over for Vader? It's very early in the year, because Bearer's managing Vader and Mad Guy. Um, hmm. Also, wait, Cornette, yeah, Cornette's been hosting... Yeah, he's no, a, he was he's hosting Shotgun at one point, but... Yeah, yeah. Okay. he was offered the Blackjacks. That, yeah, the Blackjacks, he tried to sign them in March. Uh, then he tried to... He scouted the Can-Ams as yeah. well. So he was doing this type of stuff. Um, and that he brought the squat team out. That's a, that's right before this. That's in June. Okay. Yeah, Corn. That was Cornette's uh, return to a managing after six months. But also, I'm looking like he he's been and that's on it. Shotgun. That's it. Yeah, that's it. No, big. That's it. Yeah, the squat team's the last thing. But he's been on Shotgun plenty though. This isn't entirely yeah. Yeah, but I'm talking about return to managing. No, no, no. I'm talking about what Wade's talking about. Oh, well, who knows? All right, Shawn Michaels made his way to the ring carrying a chair with him. He's becoming the Paul's Mahoney of WF. Who would have seen that comparison coming? Ross interviewed Michaels mid-ring. Michaels said a lot of wrestlers of WF have certain personality traits that are stressed, but said he is the real ticking time bomb. Huh. He's the first. Uh, Scotty Wren uh, stole his, uh, his gimmick, I guess. The real reactionary. He said, Dave kept pushing him, backing him into a corner as he held up the dented chair and said, 
WF guy reacts for pushing him so hard. Michael says, since he's the only guy with a set of balls around here in WF, he takes, he'll take what's coming to him. Michael said, the Undertaker may want to bring him down, but when he goes down, he goes down the blaze of fire. Which got the fans to chant, Sean is gay. Michael's response was bleeped. He predicted he would be dancing on Undertaker's corpse after their match at Ground Zero. Not his best, maybe a bit long, but still very, very good. Great intensity and effective at getting across the issue in the match. Okay, this promo does exist on Daily Motion, but we weren't going to bother digging through it just to find the one moment to try to hit his lips. But what would get bleed? Like, it's 1997 Shawn Michaels, so it could be anything. Like, is this him saying, oh, you think I'm gay? Or just telling them it's a tape show dick tell it it's a tape it's a tape show no i know it's a tape show but he probably said something that he that he knew he could get bleeped on and it wouldn't be a big deal because it's a tape show true yes um there is that but when when was why don't you ask your mama how gay sean is would that have been before or after this oh who knows i don't remember what it's in it's in this era yeah it's in this era i just don't remember when in time it happens yeah all right next we get bret hart against vader bret wins by dq in 714 before the match bret said i don't know how a big tub the goog like you can walk in and get a title shot just like that but i'm gonna kick your ass i'm gonna kick your fat ass <laughs> oh god uh vader close line bret start a match he then brought the canadian flag step over his knee but because the majority of the announcement was done in the studio days after the event was taped it was interesting watching WF meticulously avoid showing the empty announce table, even when the brawling went near the tables. The rest also had to stay away from the table as not to force the cameras to show the empty chairs where Ross and Cornette were supposed to be. At the commercial break, Vader went on offense. When Vader grabbed the chair, Owen ran to the ring for the DQ. Bulldog followed. Brett put the people around the ring post on Vader. Patriot ran the ringside tap Brett. Cornette said the Patriot was on Brett like a cheap suit. It didn't take him long to sneak in that signature line. Ross interviewed the Patriot and asked him what his relationship is with Vader. He said he doesn't have one, but he wanted to send a message to Brett. Well, they loved calling Vader fat in this era, didn't they? They They were sending him a message. They were sending him a message. Isn't the message you'd want to send, though, more to call him smelly? (laughs) Fat and smelly? (laughs) Because it seems like from the people who actually had issues working with him, when it wasn't the caters it was the never washing his gear yeah he was one of the ones that did that him andre others yeah they uh notorious for that and how do i put this apparently i don't remember if this was bruce pritchard or whoever that said this if it was, if it was bruce pritchard i don't know if it stick would stick with me this much I forget who said it, but that the reason that he'd sometimes show up with his singlet from his gear inside out, or the singlet top or whatever it was inside out or backwards is because it was his way of getting around washing it. That may also be a Twitter joke I elevated, but it is probably the reason. Let's be realistic. Uh, yeah, possibly. All right. Um, Sonny paraded the ringside and sat at the announcer's table. Ross asked Sonny what she thought of Brian Pillman's statements on Raw last week. Does this mean that she sat by herself? No, it means they shot. They had them come out to sit there for whatever, whenever they shot this. Oh, okay. 
Ross asked Sonny what she thought of Brian Pillman's statements on Raw last week regarding fathering Marlena's child. Sonny said Pillman shouldn't have said in the presence of a three-year-old, but otherwise she might have applauded him for it. Then they replayed the footage, which showed that Dakota Runnels was nowhere in sight, which led to Goldust with Marlena beating Salvatore Sinceri, Tom Brandy, that jobber, in 336. Goldust's belly looks like he's been eating a lot of five hot dog pre-match meals lately, Wade said. Okay. That's, that's the problem with wrestlers wearing full body suits. It creates an excuse to hide their physiques as they let their training habits slide. Then again, to be fair to Dusty, he doesn't exactly have genetics on his side. Ross says this here is one of the most underrated wrestlers of WWF, and maybe he just needs a manager. Hey, maybe he needs to do some gimmick and name. As Goldust and Marlena celebrate their victory, Pillman taunted them over a house mic standing up for deck. Pillman asks, how's my little daughter Dakota, my love child? Goldust didn't chase after Pillman, but ran through the crowd. Hey, at least Pillman got Goldust to run some stairs. It was a good start. Wow! <laughs> uh, wow. What got into oh. Wade? I mean, I'll make sure this is Wade and not Jason Powell. Yeah. Get the Let's see. Back. Let's see here. Do you think Jason was doing some TV reviews around this time? Uh, Raw for a minute event. Wade Keller. Debbie so K at the end. So are we also supposed to think that Tammy might not be in the best condition to be on commentary, that she invented that Dakota Runnels thing out of midair? Out of thin air, excuse me. Oh, I don't know, but... Because this is the era where her issues get bad, right? Yeah. So. That Wade's, uh... Wade's all over old Dustin. The, 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 the Dustin... The Dustin Rhodes, uh... Newsletter issues continue here in 1997. Of all things. Interesting. Yeah. Which... By the way, I'll just mention it here. What... There, there was no way around it, but... So remember... Uh, when we were having the audio syncing issues that required me to do multiple fixes on multiple episodes after publication from the recorder yeah. I was using at the time. Yeah. I thought I noticed and fixed all this when it happened, or maybe I'm thinking of something else, but, oh, it was maybe that we didn't have file, alternate files for all of it. Unfortunately, part of the Dustin show is out of sync, which I hate. But what can you do, I eh. guess? Because it won't ever happen again, I don't think, but... It yeah, is what it is. It's frustrating, but yeah, the the Dustin stuff. It's why, like, it, why? I know, I know. All right, uh, the Stunkel Steve Austin hotel in room interview re-aired. Ross said next Friday they would have news on Austin's future in the ring. This segment was just compelling the second time around. There was some real emotion behind Austin's words. So there's that. Dude love beat Rockabilly with a gun. Dude won with, a, with sweet shin music followed by a DDT. The shin music gimmick is pretty clever. Dude stomps up the mat a la Michaels then kicks the pump in the shin to set up his DDT finisher. Ross interviewed Dude at ringside. Dude said Austin is like cheap toilet paper. He don't cra take crap off nobody. He said he would stand by Austin no matter what his physical status. Sonny didn't interview Brett and Owen in the locker Wait a room. Second. That's not the concern anyone has with cheap toilet paper. <laughs> well, it's, it's dude love. Uh, so Sonny's in Brett and Owen's in the lo in locker room when Brett said, Hey, no women in the locker room. <laughs> I guess he wasn't having one of his sunny days. 
Before Sonny left, Owen told her to tell Sergeant Slaughter he was eager to wrestle Austin again. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Austin, if you don't take him mid-ring. Undertaker said Michaels uh, should have known he would get up in the chair shot. He said when he gets up, he takes a soul with him. He said next Friday he would set an example out of Hunter. He said at Ground Zero that Michaels would pay the ultimate price. Sable came out next, modeling an Austin 316 shirt as Doc Hendricks did his annoying, grinding voice, plugging it. Oh, good old Doc. Oh, you mean Sable! <laughs> yes. <laughs> Other than uh, ACDC's Highway to Hell, I think the thing that we heard way too many times during this era was Michael Hayes saying, Sable! <laughs> he, he had to do his job, Bix. All right, Road Warrior Haunt. Road Warrior Haunt with Animal. Beat the British Bulldog with Owen Hart by the cue. Hawk attacked Bulldog and Owen as they made their way to the ring. Hawk then dragged Bulldog into the ring and stomped away at him. When Bulldog went on offense, he soon resorted to that terrible chin lock of his where he showed so much light, it's got to be embarrassing for his opponents not to just slip their heads out of that huge gap. <laughs> I never noticed that before until he said that. I'm about to look, look for that from now on. Godwin's walked into the aisles and watched the match. At three and a half minutes, Owen stomped Hawk at ringside. Cornette pointed out that LOD had been wrestling for 14 years and only taking to hold the AWA, NWA, and WF tag titles. They cut the commercial, and imagine this. Bulldog had Hawk in a chin lock when they returned from the commercial. <laughs> in the end, Owen nailed Hawk with a tag title about the prompt DQ. A lot of DQ finishes here. LOD cleared the ring of Owen and Bulldog after the match. Godwin still returned to the locker room. A rudimentary match by today's standards, but Hawk showed good fire. Bulldog selling for Hawk was really solid, and now it's made it seem much better than what it was. Bix, have you ever noticed the Bulldog chin lock being so, uh, so loose, so to speak? I haven't. First time I've heard of it. I can picture it if I think about it, um, but I never noticed it before, no. Um, also, are we sure Wade Keller wrote this and not Rob Bahari? <laughs> Way's extra salty. I know that this evening. This evening is that late Friday night, I guess. Because I do anyway. feel like you know, normally, if we're hearing ranting about uh, WWE and chin locks, it's Rob. Sunny <laughs> then interviewed Los Bariquas in the locker room. Savia gave a good, inspired rant in English and Spanish. Sunny made some cracks about burritos and margaritas, but without Vincent Mann capping up the joke afterwards, it just didn't seem funny. <laughs> God damn, it doesn't matter if they're Puerto Rican or Mexican. <laughs> I don't like tacos. Why would anyone else? Here, <laughs> d here, give me that steak wrapped in that thing again. Burrito? <laughs> no, God damn it, it's not a burrito. <laughs> you know that story, by the way, right? Yeah. That he had no idea what a burrito was, and then someone pointed out that he eats one every single day of his life. <laughs> It's Vince. Ooh. I miss the saying guy that, uh, you know, asked you new day, uh, you, you ever heard of Flip Wilson? <laughs> I mean, come on. It's Vince. Technically, wasn't it, I remember Flip Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing how Kofi Kingston didn't uh, don a wig and become Geraldine, but that's, that's a whole other story. 
All right, Rocky Maivia and Farouk went to a WDQ with Crush and Chains in 410. And then when everyone ran into the ring and brawling from all three factions, Brequels is part of that. It's faction nice bit warfare. Of, yeah, nice bit of chaos at the end. Slaughter Slaughter came out to restore order after WF suit Dave Hedner was knocked over. Rocky showed good charisma in the match. Overall, not as bad as you'd expect. Rocky's starting to find himself in this era here. He's starting, he's starting to get it to look at a little bit. Takamichi Noku pinned Jerry Lynn at 524. Cornette ran down Lynn's background. So he's a nine-year veteran from Minneapolis who was trained by Eddie Sharkey. He said Lynn last wrestled regularly in the U.S. in 1990, but since then he's been a star in Mexico and Japan. Huh? <laughs> Lynn, most often under the Mr. J.L. Mask, sometimes himself, has been all over WCW television in the last few years. Oh, well. Ross said Lynn at 214 came in just one pound under the weight limit. In 90 seconds, Lynn overshot Taco with a somersault plancha. Taco whipped Lynn into the railing at ringside. Taco dropped Kit Lynn who was sitting on the mat in the back in the front of his head. Taco then gave Lynn a hurricanrata off the top rope for a two-count. Taco had a weak-looking cover. At 320, Taco hit Lynn with a springboard plancha. Graceful. Lynn returned to the ring and leg whipped Taco to the mat, went for a leg lock submission. Taco punched his way out of it. Missed the moonsault. Lynn then gave Taka the Liger Bomb for near fall. Taka came back, hit Lynn with a top rope drop kick, followed with the Michinoku driver. Really good match. Lynn showed a lot. You'd think these two had wrestled each other around the circuit based on their fluidity against each other. The downside was the transitions were a bit rushed. Had they ever wrestled each other in yeah. Japan? Hey, uh, well, I mean, Jerry Lynn had been a Michinoku pro. He did at least two tours, right? Yeah, they, I'm sure they had to wrestle each other. So... Yeah, and it's a good match. And Jerry Lynn looked very good and didn't appear again in the WWF for over three and a half years. It was off the ECW, yes. <laughs> Pretty much. Yes, and also, with the size he would put on within the next few months, I don't think he could make that 215-pound limit anymore. And Cornette wasn't going to mention Jerry Lynn at WCW. Well, he probably he probably well, would have. No, but I get I get Wade's point though, which is why did they make up this kind of fake backstory? Yeah, to talk about WCW. I mean, he doesn't have to mention him by name, but he did compete in the United States. Although the JL thing, I mean, it's a that's a gimmick. I understand that deal, but he did work on WCW TV as Jerry Lynn. Yes, although with JL, like. Literally every, anyone who knew who Jerry Lynn was knew he was Mr. J.L. And Cornette got the timeline wrong. He was last on US TV regularly in Global in 92. So that's a whole nother story. Yes, and his <laughs> I mean, his Japanese work, I don't think he even started till 92. I don't think his first Universal mm -hmm. tour was before 92. Yeah. Sonny interviewed the Truth Commission next. The Commandant ordered his men to get away from Sonny because he didn't want them distracted by pleasures of the flesh. <laughs> Smart man! There is a terrible joke I can make about this segment that I will not. <laughs> Very smart man. If only more wrestlers uh, had taken that heat. Oh my god. Yeah, be, be more like the Commandant Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart. <laughs> yes. Recon is Sniper with the Commandant and the Interrogator. Recon is Sniper, of course, Bix being. That would be Barry Buchanan and Luke Poirier with Commandant and Kurgan. They beat the headbangers in 702 when Ross said he was dating himself by his comments. Cornette said, that must be quite a strange dating situation if you're dating yourself. 
At 6.05, Thrasher hot tagged Mosh. Mosh gave recon and an instigator, but Sniper ran in to stop the pen attempt. As the headbanger set their finisher interrogator, not Thrash off the top rope, Recon then rolled up Thrasher, held the tights for leverage to gain a three count. Cornette and Ross preview next week's show. A music video recap of the program closed out on the show. Just like Saturday's main event in the 80s. The format was similar all around to Saturday main events with the bigger matches that started the show. Is it me? Or is it kind of interesting seeing with Jim Cornette on commentary, knowing how he'd critique something like this now, the big bruiser heels are doing just bullshit cheating to beat the headbangers? <laughs> yeah. Does that make logic? Um, it's something people complain about now, yeah, like you said, but... What is he? Isn't he on creative at this point in time? Yes. Well, there you go. <laughs> he probably booked this finish. Well, he probably booked, he probably booked a lot of these finishes. He claims that the beginning of the end was Halifax, but he was still booking some after, right? Yeah. When does he say that he was completely done with the creative team? Probably right before Survivor Series, I would think. Okay. No, because he's in the meeting. Well, no, there'd be 98 then. Or at the end, at the, right at the Survivor Series. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget. It. I guess that's whenever the, the the other thing with Russo happens. The DQ, SHMEQ argument, I think, is what leads to that. <laughs> but I, I, I may be wrong. Yeah. But anyway. Um, so, I mean, this wasn't even structured like a Raw. I mean... It, like like they, like way saying here, we had the video recaps at the beginning and the end. You got the for, way it's formatted. That it, it is interesting, isn't it? It is. Although before the two hour Raw's War format, Raw front loaded main events a lot too. You're right. And this yeah, is the, only an hour show. Yeah, you're right. That's right. A two hour show. Oh, it is two hour no. show. So they did. So they booked. So they did two two hour shows in one night. Of course, yes. Kind of con of them. <laughs> All right. Uh, Bret Hart suffered a mild concussion in his match with Vader, although he didn't miss any shots. Okay, you know why this is interesting, right? Go ahead. Bret has always maintained that he never had any concussions before the Goldberg kick. Mm-hmm. Which I know is not true. Is this the only one that's reported? There's another, there's, well, yeah, reported is the word, but there, there, there was, I, I forget, I think there was a, at least one Hart Foundation Bulldogs match that supposedly he got a concussion in. You mean where he got, like, legit knocked out and it was talked about or something? Yeah, something like that, yes. Okay. It was a, not a TV match, it was like a house show match. And it was in an old newsletter, like, oh, and Bret Hart. No, got, no. I've heard this in, I forgot where I read it or heard it, but it wasn't a newsletter thing, per se. Hmm. I don't know if it was a shoot interview or something like that. It was something. I remember hearing that, but it was, it happened during the Hearts Bulldog, ser Bulldog series in 86, 87-ish. Hmm. But at the end of the day, he ended up getting eventually the money from Lloyds of London, right? Yeah. 
I'm curious if this was in Discovery at all, the, the this Observer report. You know? Yeah. Was, because, so for those who don't know, the deal with Brendan Lloyds of London was that whenever he last re-upped before the career-ending series of concussions and post-concussion syndrome, it was supposed to be, you know, not, or whenever he first got signed up, whatever it was. It was no pre-existing injuries, and they even specifically carved out that his wrist and his bad, his bad wrist and his bad knee would not be included if those were the cause of him being permanently unable to wrestle. Lloyd's insisted, well, at one point they were trying to insist early on that he, um, that he was faking. And then eventually, I think at another point, it turned into, oh, well, he must have gotten a concussion before. Let me, okay. I thought I had my computer. I had to grab the, re-download the book. Uh, so if I search for concussion, let's see. Take a second here. As Apple Books or whatever it's called indexes the book. All right. Uh, yeah, I mean, the word concussion does not come up before the Goldberg chapter, for starters, but obviously... Even if he did have one, he would know not to do that. But yeah, there's there's a there's one in here that's something like there's a quote in here that's like the honest truth is that as far as I know, I never had a concussion from uh, excuse me before Goldberg or something like that. Um. Oh yeah, here here it is. I found it. Okay, so he's talking about how. Uh, okay, here it is. I I flew to Edmonton September tenth, two thousand three for two days of neuropsychological testing with Dr. Michael Keegan. I believe that surely Dr. Keegan would concur with my doctors and tell Lloyds to pay me. An assistant administered the first half day of concentration memory tests, and then, after a short lunch break, I sat down with Dr. Keegan in his office. He made a point of telling me that wrestlers are con men, professional liars, and that I wasn't going to get away with lying to him because I, excuse me, because he was too smart to fall for such crap. He let me know that by the time he was through with me, he exposed me for faking my injury and filing a false claim. I had nothing to hide, so I was direct and honest with him. I pointed out that there would be no logical reason for me to give up three years of great money at a time when I was WCW World Champion for an insurance payout that would be far less. He still said I was full of it. He claimed that I was derelict for not reporting a substantial number of previous concussions being based on being quote-unquote hit with baseball bats, chairs, and cage doors, all of which I'd quote-unquote reported in my Calgary Sun columns. The doctor wanted it both ways. Wrestling was all fake, but the worst injuries were all real. My Lloyd's case was becoming less about my career-ending concussion and more about what's real and what's not in pro wrestling. The truth was that, before Goldberg's kid, kick, excuse me, I'd never been diagnosed with a concussion in my life. I realized Dr. Keegan was simply trying to provoke me. When he referred to Stu as a coward and a bully who picked on anybody who was smaller than him, my hands walled up into fists. I wondered if I'd get man enough to tip him and his desk over and snatch him by the throat, but I kept my cool. I drove to the Edmonton airport, excuse me, as I drove to the Edmonton airport, uh, I was steaming over how he treated me and his ignorant comments about my dad, which struck me as even more reprehensible because he knew Stu was ailing in the hospital with pneumonia. He told me he read about it in the newspaper. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's a okay. lot there. But as far as the core issue here... Yeah, I don't even want to get into the stew stuff. But given that... the phrasing, isn't it just possible that he was never diagnosed with a concussion 
But, no, it's very possible. No, no, no. But someone could tell he got his bell rung and reported and told Dave about it, and it was still true. Again, I don't remember if it was a newsletter thing. I, I, I can't remember what it was. I don't, I don't think it was a newsletter thing. I no, think I'm somebody... talking about the one we're talking about here in 97. Not... Oh, I don't know. I mean, who knows? It's possible. Well, who's in charge of talent relations? Jim Ross. Who's dear friends with Dave Meltzer? Yeah, Jim Ross. So... How f- how far ahead from this week did you do? Like, there was no correction or follow-up on this, right? No. Okay. So, that, do you get what I'm saying, though? It feels he, like did. He, didn't miss thing... any, he didn't miss any shots. But also, it feels like the type of thing that JR or someone would tell him to correct if it wasn't true, right? And, and again, this is a different era, Big, so not, they're not harping on concussions. No, 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 I know. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying just if this wasn't true. It feels like the type of thing someone would have told Dave about and that he would have corrected, right? Nobody cared about concussions like that then. You don't so think it doesn't really if, matter. No, 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 no. You don't think if it was Bret Hart got hurt during or hurt his knee during X, X and it wasn't true? Knee's different. Knee's a different thing. I'm just again, naming something. I know, but, you're, you're, yeah, but you're, yeah, yeah, but again, concussions are treated as serious back then like they are that they are now. They're not. I'm saying even if it's he said he sprained his toe. He didn't miss any time. Your point is, he, is, that it, it, is that even if it wasn't true, it's less likely to be addressed because he's not missing any dates. Yes. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. All right. They didn't go backstage with DOA and Sarder Slaughter and won the bikes got away and ran Slaughter over and he suffered some burns, but he's okay. Wow. <laughs> That's a mistake. Damn. Even though the U.S. Open only did a 1.3 rating in the Raw Time slot the previous two Mondays. All right, get ready for this, folks. This is something I've been preaching on this show for years. So get ready for this. So even though the U.S. Open only did a 1.3 rating in the Raw Time slot the previous two Mondays, that isn't as bad as it looks in comparison to Raw and Nitro's ratings. The bottom line isn't ratings. It's the money those ratings bring in from the advertisers. Tennis events are believed, and rightly so, to appeal to a higher spending demographic. So you could sell the commercials for a premium event like U.S. Open for more money than wrestling, even though wrestling delivers a bigger audience. That's why USA preempts the higher rate of Raw with tennis every year at this time. It would surprise Dave if the U.S. Open spots sell for more money than Nitro spots. So in a sense, USA would be winning, though the numbers act like they're getting killed. It's not about the ratings. About the ad money. Which is also why it's about the demo these days. Yeah, but it, it, it's all about the perception of the business, though. No, I know. I mean, yeah, you could, you could have the demo rating. They were getting the demo rating back then. No, I'm just <laughs> saying the reason the reason that the demo is emphasized above everything else these days is yeah, because... Yeah, but still, if you're not selling ads, if you're not... If you're not no, sure, if you're of, not, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, that's why that whole thing with Domino's Pizza was such a big deal, which yeah. we haven't heard nothing about that since. But that's, had there have been no Domino's ads back, though, on Dynamite or Rampage. Oh, really? Have there? I'm asking. I don't know. I don't watch. Okay. <laughs> so, you know of. No, I haven't heard anybody say anything about it, but that is, that's an interesting thing. I mean, if that's the case, I, I don't know. I don't watch... Like I said, I don't watch it. I just I watch whatever videos I need to watch online. They did start having Papsteads though. After Pap said they take it over. Well, I mean, they said got PBR, but uh, PBR and Domino's is totally different. You know, Domino's is a big time. Oh, I know, I know. Deal. But um, 
So what was I was saying though, and for the, for those who don't understand why the eighteen to forty nine demo is supposed to be more coveted, it's because generally market research shows that people who are fifty or older are less likely to be enticed by commercials into supporting new brands and the like. They have much stronger entrenched brand loyalty. Which you know what I think that's probably false. These days. Maybe back in the old days. You mean because but, whether it's politics or something else, it seems like old people are very suggestible these days? No, because people don't age anymore like they used to. Well, the people that are in their people aged well, mental, mentally, the people that are, that are in their fifties and even sixties, they act, they don't act like people in their fifties and sixties did when I was a kid. Sure, they just don't. Good Lord, and they, 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 everybody ages differently now. It's, it's not the same, you know. It's like I heard a guy the other day talk about when the parents quit being parents, because he was talking about how parents, or a lot of parents these days, you know, want to be, you know, they want to be their cool kids' friend. Kids. Yeah, yeah, kids' friend. They're cool at their kids. I, I knew, I, I know around here there are mothers that will go partying with the daughters. I knew a mother and daughter are pregnant at the same time by guys the same age. I mean, Were the they in got the a... crowd as regulars at Wild Tide? <laughs> no, um, but I mean, I, I know that stuff that goes on. You know, I mean, it's a lot of a lot of crazy stuff like that. Lot, I mean, a lot of the the, the wildest women are, that I know of, you know, in my area, they're in their forties. Yeah, are you saying thing. we need to get a Cougar Life uh, sponsorship? <laughs> I'm just saying. But so, um, I, I would be curious to hear when the last big study into that was, though. Yeah, I would be too. I mean, it's interesting because, like I said, people—it's that it's the generation that grew up with heavy pop culture, which is people now that down their fifties and stuff. The people that were born past nineteen sixty, let's just say that. Yeah. The people that grew up in the seventies and the and they came of age in the eighties, they're heavy pop culture. Still to this day, you know, mm-hmm. I'd say I'd say from 1959 and earlier that cha- that changes, you know, mm-hmm. it's generation it's generation X. It starts with generation X. OK, you know, so times have changed. All right. Weekend ratings for Livewire on August 30th was a 1.3 and Superstars 1.9. House shows Tacoma on August 28 drew 5341, 92020. Gate, Victoria, British Columbia on the 29th drew 5341, 8400. Regina, Saskatchewan drew 3328 and 7576 on the 30th. Saskatchewan on the 31st drew 4203 and 95534. And Thunder Bay on September 1st drew 3180 and 62472. Merchandise for the week was 15189 or $7.10 per head. Now, the Thunder Bay show, in particular, we have a report on. 3180, 62472. Merchandise in 25,210 is $7.93 a head. Good night for them. We have Rockabilly over Bracus in the opener. Patriot and came out and said he would kick Bret Hart's butt on Canadian soil and then gave the Canadian crowd the finger. The Gamas beat the Headbangers, all comedy. British Bulldog beat Mankind by DQ. Vader beat Flash Funk in a match that was all stalling. Gold does beat Brian Pillman in two minutes. Owen Hart beat Ken Shamrock thanks to outside interference from the Bulldog. Shamrock was said to look really good in this match. Bret Hart beat the Patriot. It's almost a dusty false title change finish because Patriots pinned Brent after a ref bump. 
And the second referee made a three count. The original ref, though, came to, came to in order to match continue, and Brett scored the pin. The entire show lasted only two hours and five minutes. <laughs> wow. Indie shows, take note. This can't happen. You can't make this work. We don't have to have four and five hour shows. Are you saying that Matt Griffin needs to do a seminar on timing out shows? <laughs> well, whoever timed this, who, who would be the time? Would it be Rene Goulet? Somebody needs to follow Rene Goulet's uh, lead here from 1997. I don't know and, how strictly house shows were timed out, though. I think they would probably were. But anyway, regarding Shamrock, he did his first pinfall job since coming to WF at these shows for Owen Hart with Bulldog interfering. And it's not clean, at least. I expect that Owen, Bulldog, and Brett were teal style, were chilled wild every night. Reports were that Shamrock and Owens stole the show of the shows. In Tacoma, Shamrock was put over. So he, he won on American soil. The tour was scheduled with Brett versus Austin on top, but Austin out and Undertaker gave him the week off to use Patriot on top. In the U.S., Patriot won by DQ. In Canada, the Patriot did his heel interview like we talked about a while ago. Then the Patriot cheated to win after the ref bump, but then they had the restart match, blah, blah, blah. So what about that loop, though? You got you start in Tacoma on the 28th, and then four days later you're in Thunder Bay, Ontario. This sounds like them not wanting to go through customs more than they need to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah are you right that's it, that, yeah. like, I don't understand why you'd even do that otherwise especially in this era where they're otherwise doing normal routing yeah absolutely I expect the tournament for the IC title to be announced on the September 8th Raw show Steve also going to be booked on road shows in October but not as a wrestler he may wrestle on television by late October early November and his first major match will be at Survivor Series in Montreal I think we talked about this before, but, you know, who knows how different Austin is if he doesn't get hurt at SummerSlam. How his trajectory is here. It's so strange, though, because as a personality, it helped him. That's what I'm saying. If he doesn't get hurt, I mean, what does that, how does that change things, I wonder? Do they still do what they do and, you know, all that stuff with Vince, giving Vince a stunner and all that stuff? Do we still get that? Or, I mean... I wonder what happens, what the original plans were. I really do. Well, when do you think they decided they were going with him as champion in Mania in the first place? Pro probably when Brett uh, said he was leaving WC for WCW. Or when Vince tried to get him to go to WCW and he left. So, you, so it would have been with Austin being hurt already. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Well, because also, I get wanting to make him whole again from the injury, but if they knew by Survivor Series, would he really be winning the title from Owen? The IC title? Hmm. Who knows? Right? I would, say, I, would say by the, I would say by the December pay-per-view and the Raw after they knew, because they have him just get rid of the Intercontinental title and forfeit it to Raw. Although there was other politics there that wasn't the original booking decision. So still, he was playing. He was supposed to drop the belt that night either way. So I got to think it's by then, maybe between Survivor Series and then. Yeah. And Torch said, though, if it's acknowledging that Foster turns to the ring in two months, it could be with a more limited schedule. Which it really wasn't. So there's that. The betting also torch. The betting line seems to be that there will be a Michaels Bret Hart match at WrestleMania. After all, 
It's far from a done deal, though, and a lot could happen between now and then. Boy, I'll say. But people seem to think both Brett and Michaels are on a pathway to being able to work out a match. The finish of the match would be a big sticking point, so it's not to seem at this point to do a job for the other one. And Brett may not be willing to wrestle to a non-conclusion, as he would probably only do the match if he got the win to even a score. Funny to read about all this stuff, considering what's going to happen. Yes, especially given the whole, hey, Sean, look, I just wanted to tell you that you have should have no problems trusting me in the ring. I will always be a professional in the ring, and I'm happy to put you over. And then Sean and turning around and saying, well, thanks, but I wouldn't do the same for you and leaving. <laughs> oh, man. You know, Brett was willing to put him over until that happened. Yeah. All right, Mark Merrill and Ahmed Johnson are back on the booking sheets as of September 19th. Talk about guys who couldn't catch breaks uh, health-wise in this era. Especially since doesn't Ahmed get hurt again, like, within a week? Yes. Because they start using the modern-style announcer desks at some point in September, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's one one of the first one or two shows where he his hand gets impaled by a nail that was mistakenly sticking mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Martin Henry's headed to Calgary to train on the Bret Hart and Leo Burke. Dove is trying one last prayer to see if they'll get ever get anything out of their multi-million dollar guarantee contract they gave Henry before the Olympics. One last prayer, huh? <laughs> yes, one last prayer. Speaking of Olympians, Macafari, who won the silver medal super for super heavyweight at the U.S. in the nineteen ninety six Olympics in Greco Roman wrestling, is getting a trial in Connecticut this week to see what kind of money offer WF will make it. Gafari negotiated with both WF and WCW after the Olympics, but his asking price was so high, neither side bit. Dude doesn't get the pro wrestling until 2002. His asking price must have gone down. Well, then again, uh, Dream Stage Entertainment was involved with that's what I'm one, saying. so maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows what they paid him? Yeah, exactly. But yet, both WF and WCW were, 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 were trying to get Matt Gafari. Absolutely. Just like Kurt Angle. WCW put him on TV in the crowd at least once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, but, you know, we ended up seeing how he was as a pro wrestler. That probably wouldn't have worked out very well in the U.S. Didn't he also Japan, put on weight, though, before then? Yeah, but Japan knew kind of how to use him in the way. It wouldn't have worked here, let's put it that way. And then he had the belly-bumping shooters tag team with Dan Bobish. That's right. Tor said WF interviewed Patriot Del Wilkes in his home as part of Vincent Man's new concept of making his wrestlers come across as real people. Wilkes was interviewed without his mask and with his family members. Okay. I know a lot of people don't like this. I always thought this worked really well. Especially with how society's changing and stuff. I think the idea of making him this Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods type who wears the... who, like... Yes, I'm a masked wrestler, but I'm wearing it because of what it means to me. And helping get over Dill Wilkes the person, I thought it worked really well. We, yeah, if, if the gimmick is that, absolutely. And that's absolutely. how they—that's how they put it over. That was pretty much idea. yeah, pretty much. So I I liked it. Plus, also, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they had this in mind at that point, but. Vince calls him Del Wilkes in his first appearance anyway. Yes. But I was the Patriot, Del Wilkes. So, 
But especially just to have a masked, baby-faced, non-luchador, not like a reformed horror character like Kane, I think this actually made a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Although it was mostly on the B-shows anyway, wasn't it? I think it was on Raw. Okay. At least one of them. Anyway. So, Dave, now Sonny's now doing the old Missy Hyatt dressed-up woman in the boys' locker room gimmick. It's entertaining to see how many different euphemisms for the word tramp we can hear in a given two-hour show. <laughs> wow. Jerry Lynn wasn't offered a contract because he has so many people under contract and don't have enough full-time work for those already under contract. But we'll likely get a lot of TV bookings based on his performance in Chicago. Instead, he goes to ECW where he feuds with someone who's under WWF contract. And isn't that funny to read that because <laughs> this is a company that's running a house show schedule that's, uh, you know, yeah, they only have one TV show, but, but they got, you know, they're doing their syndicated shows. It's funny reading that considering what, how AEW is now with all their people on the contract. It's still signing more people. Yes, but AEW is clearly working with the idea of constantly having fresh matches and all that. Yeah, but it's just, as I say, it's just funny reading this when we have what's going on now. Well, also, I was thinking, too, in terms of before, you know, the Nick Khan era and the pandemic and everything, WWE hoarding so many people, too. Well, exactly. Yeah. Jacques Rougeau has left for work and may get some bookings in Canada part-time or be involved in some way helping promote the Survivor Series in Montreal. Instead, we get the Quebecers returning, but in their amazing French-Canadians gear and... Boy, if you were to base what you thought of how, uh... PCO had progressed based on this run, you would have thought he was shot. Yeah. Which, when in reality, it's probably that Jacques was and just dragging the team down badly. Well, he was older. And he wasn't the same guy. But anyway. Alright, um... There are no plans right now regarding great Sasuke returning. Aww. Sasuke won the trade even up an appearance on the Major WS show in exchange for Undertaker appearing on his October 10th show. But WF wasn't going for it, believing Undertaker in Japan is worth far more than Sasuke is in the United States. Paul Heyman asked Vince McMahon if he could use Sasuke and his talent on his November 30th pay review, and McMahon gave him the impression that they didn't want anything to do with him and to be his guest. <laughs> you take him. God, I had enough of it. Okay, this guy. I mean, look at this fucking guy. <laughs> You know, the last 97 show we did was the one where Sasuke was bitching about the, um, was bitching about his uh, treatment by WBF. <laughs> mm. Oh, man. Oh, and speaking of the light heavyweight division. Scott Pusky signed a contract. Why they signed Scott Pusky? They could sign Jerry Landbix. I was going to say, unfortunately for him, I guess his knee was not signed. <laughs> Which that's interesting to read. We can't sign Jerry Lynn because we're too full, but we got Scott Putsky. Noted light heavyweight attraction. Well, noted son of Ivan Putsky. I'm sure that's, I'm sure that had a lot to do with it, you know? And we'll look at Scott Putsky in 1997. Too. Yeah. Good God. He's, he's shining. Yeah, watch him in that match with Brian Christopher at Ground Zero and just the way he looks. Good God. Got that long hair. Man, 
It's also even a WWF ring, so it's easily the shortest he ever looked. And then he fucked his knee up. Yes. Regard up. Hey, we got Jim Cornette manager stuff. Regarding all the rumors of Jim Cornette as a manager, Cornette has so much office work, which includes writing the television shows and announcing on Shotgun, and perhaps on Raw for the new season, he doesn't have time to go on the road. So he can't get involved in any kind of major program, so that's been holding up his going back to managing. So Dave answers Wade there, Fix. And he's still writing television shows, so that answers your question. Yes. Well, like we said, he had to be... I don't know. Why does he bring up that Halifax example so much, though? When it's, by his own admission, I know, but when by his own admission, it's not. It's Jim. Who, yeah. His memory may be screwing on some things. All right, uh, we stay with the torch here to end it. As part of his deal when he turned WF at his IH a couple months back, Michaels agreed to be drug tested regularly. Part of the reason Brett and Michaels are cordial to each other lately is relating to Michaels passing off his drug test. The man didn't want Michaels back and was willing to cut his losses unless Michaels agreed to be tested and agreed to face severe penalties if he failed any drug test. So Wade's putting out there that McMahon didn't want Michaels back and was willing to cut his losses. Well, Vince playing the jilted lover here. But uh, Michaels agreed to his rules, and how do he pass these drug tests? I mean, you look at Michaels in this era on some of these shows, and it's like... Uh, Are we talking muscles or condition to perform? We're talking condition to perform. It'll get worse. Unless, unless, they, unless they weren't testing for that. Well, haven't we established that there's almost no chance they were testing for Soma? Yeah, they were they, they were probably just testing for, like, recreational drugs. Not... Stuff that would be on a normal, just generic drug testing panel. Painkillers, marijuana, Heroin. coke. Yeah. Um, hmm. And speaking of... But it seems like he's been more easygoing since he's been passing well, his drug tests. Yeah, well, speaking of... So there's something have... he's not taking that is making him easier well, to get along with. Yeah, but speaking of what we're what you talk about, there's peer pressure within the locker room right now on wrestlers to stay clean or keep their recreational prescription drug use under control and on their own time. Vincent Mann met with several locker room leaders, quote-unquote, recently to tell them that the drug policy would begin to, to be strictly enforced and the degree to which, depending on how much the wrestlers could police themselves. Some wrestlers have been showing up in arenas and going through airports obviously loaded. The wrestlers who enjoy recreational drug use are on their own time don't let it affect their work and don't go out in public in that condition. They're getting upset that they will lose their privilege if testing were to get especially strict again. It's your fucking job. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ. There really should need to be a meeting with the locker room leaders about this. And the thing is, is that, well, they're the ones, some of them are on the drugs. Um, it's your part of your fucking job. If, if, I mean, if they want, if they want to drug test you and it's within their rules, then yes. Sorry. Also, how many people are showing up loaded on shows at this time? Are at shows? Oh. Uh, oh no, God. but I'm saying that this is something they have to deal with. Oh, I'm sure a lot of them. It's 97. Sean Pillman. There's two. Hawk. Dustin would not be surprising. Uh, you mentioned Pillman, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah, who knows, man? Who knows? I'm not gonna, you know, speculate. Right, I'm not right. No, I'm just saying people who we know have been open about their problems and where they roughly coincided with this era. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, 
There it is. All right. Next week on Between the Sheets, we'll fast forward one calendar year. Oh, no. And we go to 1998. And we will be uh, joined by our friend Al Getz making his return to the show. Al Getz from 98. Al Getz is actually a source on one on, in this show, credited as a source. Oh. So what? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, in the WWF, we'll talk about... Uh, well, I, I don't think Al Getz was credited as a source. I'm guessing that the Duke of <laughs> New York, Alan Barry, was credited as a source. Well, yes. Uh, we have another week of U.S. Open. So there is a Raw Saturday night tapings to talk about mm-hmm. and the show itself including uh, Jim Ross having a very interesting interview with Al Snow and Jerry Lawler making an unfortunate comment about one of his friends. That's all I'll say on that subject. One of Snow's friends? No, Jerry Lawler's friends. Okay. Uh, We'll have also... Oh, no! Oh, no, I know what this is. Don't say it. Let me Uh, No, I'm not going to say it. Is this something that I thought happened on a different show? Don't say it. Okay. All right. So then we have uh, why did Abu get dumped for Babu? We'll have news on that, and uh, also more news on Jerry Lawler, a potential movie he's going to be starring in. So there's that. Mm-hmm. We have uh, all Japan pro wrestling. We'll talk about some stuff going on there as Monica Mossman starting to uh, get get looked at a little bit. We got the Road Warriors. Showing up for or potentially, well, not potentially, we're going to announce for Battle Arts for the so B we'll Cup. That, yeah, we got the Great Kabuki's retirement ceremony in IWA Japan to talk about, and all sorts of Joshi for Bix. Then we got Duro and Directo involvement in AAA to talk about. <laughs> we got a uh, boxy lucha reporter getting uh, roughed up by a referee from CMLL. Oh, of course. We got uh, ECW in Atlanta television news. Always fun. Plus uh, ECW running in the uh, Louisiana area. Talk about that. We got all kinds of independent wrestling, including Music City Wrestling, where Alan Barry is working at. <laughs> so I'll get. And we got Power Pro Wrestling, and Dave Brown is disgusted at what's going on with Power Pro Wrestling. So we'll have that. And then WCW, we got news on Ric Flair as we're one week ahead of before Greenville. So we got that. A wild episode of Monday Nitro. Jim Neidhart being arrested after Nitro. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Ultimo Dragon at a crossroads in their career. Bill Goldberg spotlighting in the New Yorker. And uh, Frank DeFord gives, has a commentary on professional wrestling and much, much more. Next week on Between the Sheets. All right. Well, I thank Vera for requesting this show. Always a pleasure. Bix, won't thank you as always. You're the rock of the show. This is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia.
Wayne Deshees Patreon Special Edition, episode number 59. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan. And basically, we're going to talk about a topic that we touched on here and there on the Between the Sheets shows, but definitely not like this. And this is the perfect type of concept, this Patreon series, to do a show like this, as this is a... Goes through quite a few years here. This this uh in, this subject in particular. Yeah, pretty much. Let me look at the data. Last thing we have here. Yeah, over four years. Just over four <laughs> years. The show is uncom- encompassing. Yes, and probably could have went longer, but actually, yeah, I'm looking been... at it now. It's about four and a half from when it actually yeah, starts. But... Four four year, a little over four years from. No, excuse me. Five, uh, yeah, four. No, I'm doing it wrong. A little over three from what we used as the anniversary to peg it to over four and a half from when the notes start. Yeah, so uh, long drawn out stuff here, but uh, a very interesting subject as we're going to talk about Superstar Billy Graham versus the World Wrestling Federation, which seemed like it's been going on and off for 30 years. (laughs) <laughs> but we're only going to focus on these years in particular. Yes, and the reason we're going with August August is the anniversary to peg it to is that that's when he announces his lawsuit against the World Wrestling Federation. But we'll get to that later because he doesn't exactly file it right away. Yeah, but it starts back further than that. All right, now, week of July 15th, Arsenio Hall Show. July 16th, Hulk Hogan, during his uh, legendary interview with Arsenio Hall, talked about superstar Billy Graham and Bruno San Martino and uh, all the hubbub they've been drumming up about steroid usage. And uh, yeah, he's got some stuff to get off his chest. So let's go to the holster. Have you ever heard of this? I, I saw a guy on a program named Billy Graham, not the Reverend, but mm-hmm. a wrestler. What's up with him? Well, superstar Billy Graham, apparently, um, in the 70s, was one of the top wrestlers, one of the top draws. I was a big fan of his. And he just came out during all these drug trials and admitted steroid use and abuse. And basically, he's saying that these are all the reasons his body's falling apart. But basically, um, Basically. there have been several other wrestlers like Bruno San Martino, who didn't have any problem working with Billy Graham at the time. He's on steroids and putting all the money in his pocket that have completely turned into hypocrites and knocked Hulk Hogan and said Hulk Hogan's never seen the inside of a church, and I doubt if he even says his prayers. And there was, there's been all kind of allegations, but Billy Graham was a top draw during the 70s, and, and he apparently was a heavy-duty steroid abuser. Yeah. Um, before we say goodbye, um, I know you called me, and you wanted to come and and uh, straighten this thing out yes, and, 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 I and tell the you truth. Come out here. Yeah, would you like to say anything else to your hulkamaniacs? Well, I'll tell you, you know, um, steroids, like cocaine and a lot of other hard drugs, or class three drugs, if that's what you want to call them, the federal government calls them, is a dead-end street. And basically, basically. Um, as far as kids trying to get into athletics, and this is the 90s, the era of the fitness, stay away from those type of drugs because basically they're all kind of side effects and adverse reactions. And 
From what I can tell you, I've got a wife and two kids, and I don't want to miss one second or do anything that's going to take one second away from my life to be with my wife and kids. And as far as these kids go, if you work hard, if you train 20 years like I do and start as soon as you can, I mean, you can get what you want out of your body. It just, it's a little more intense. You've got to be a little more uh, dedicated. And be a leader. Don't be a follower because that's what this whole thing's all about. And that's what we're trying to bring to the, the front of the WWF and Hulk Hogan. We're a bunch of leaders, not a bunch of followers. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, one more. Hey, hey, hey. Um, uh, no, very quickly, and I have to ask you this question. Um, I was so... Okay, we don't need this. This is when Hogan gets flustered when he asks him what should happen to the doctor. But we don't need to go further than that. Um, what an asshole. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's, the, it's Hogan. We, I mean, this is what it was, and... People ate it, you know, ate it all. You know, they they didn't get any blowback from this from most people. So, you know, yeah, it's what it what, but it's what caused uh, Graham to go nuclear on Hogan, though. Well, yeah, um, but how many times do you think he said basically there? <laughs> uh, basically, about six, seven times, maybe. Basically, according to Steve Beverly, in the entire interview, he used it. 22 times. Yeah. His go-to word, I guess. At John Rezzi's wrestling fans convention in New York over this past weekend, Graham was scheduled to donate his wrestling boots and a custom-made tie-dye tuxedo to an auction. He also donated a frame 11 by 14-inch personal autograph photo of Hulk Hogan himself, which he claimed was one of his prized possessions up until recently. Putting up for auction shows my real disdain for Hulk's appearance on the Arsenio Hall show. So on that photo was me... Was me doing a symbolic way of showing that I'm washing my hands of him. When I saw the performance in me, was like a piercing stab in the back. I can't get over that shit. How in the hell did Theodore Densmore think that that was going to, you know, because it's the world wrestling federation, Chris, but shit, fucking, uh, Eugene Densmore would have probably been better attorney in that case. Well, he is a wrestling savant. (laughs) It, well, luckily, they didn't have to worry about this. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Let's keep going. And, poor, and and you could tell that Billy was, you know, crushed by Hogan doing that thing on Arsenio. But what did you expect? I mean, really, what did you fucking expect? Yeah. You expect that to go out there and, you know... Put it all out there for everybody. Yeah, I, I'm I, Billy's right. Yeah. So, what we have next now is the separate Inside Edition story. Um, for a second, I got confused with the other one, but it is a separate one, which and airs sometime in October. I could not pin this down at all, but thankfully, there's nothing directly surrounding it that we have here anyway. So let's move on to that now. And this in part addresses Graham's upsetness with the Arsenio interview. So we start with this clip here, which is. So I look at how I have a time this a little under two minutes. The undisputed king of the ring is Hulk Hogan. Hero to thousands of Hulkamaniacs, as his young fans are called. The Hulkster preaches clean living, 
prayer and vitamins as the keys to success. I'm the last great American hero since John Wayne died. Forget the baseball players. Forget the football players. Hulkamania is what tears Madison Square Garden in every major arena down around the country. But some of his former colleagues say that the gospel, according to Hulk Hogan, is not quite kosher. The kids are believing that if they take their vitamins and say their prayers, that they're going to grow up to be some super athlete. Well, I got news for you. You can take your vitamins and you can say your prayers, but you're never going to grow up to be 300 pounds with 24-inch arms unless you take steroids. Dave Schultz is a former professional wrestler with the World Wrestling Federation. So is superstar Billy Graham. They both watched the Arsenio Hall show last July when their old wrestling friend Hulk Hogan appeared and made this statement. But I've trained, I've trained 20 years, two hours a day to look like I do. But the things that I am not is I'm not a steroid abuser and I do not use steroids. But Hulk Hogan's former teammates have a very different story to tell about his past abuse of steroids. I myself personally have injected Hulk Hogan with anabolic steroids. I brought him into my home. I let him sleep in the house. I gave him food. And in return, he gave me steroids. He showed me how to use steroids. Any thoughts on what we just watched? Here's the thing about this stuff is no matter how much of this is probably correct and true, a lot of people would see these two guys as as malcontents and they have an agenda and they're bitter. And that's why it, it, it needed somebody to be in this that didn't have something that had already happened that they come out and say, this is what's going on. Somebody who would have been perceived as someone who had maybe more credibility. You know, Schultz, you know, God knows, been all over the media forever. It says Stossel. And Graham, you know, Graham is Graham. But if there had been somebody else who they could, could have come out and they could have pointed to them and said, you know, this this person right here, they're not like that. They're no, they don't have an axe to grind against the World Wrestling Federation or whatever. I think that's what this whole controversy needed to mm-hmm. to get it to that next to that next level of public consciousness, you know. Yeah, I feel like it hurts Schultz at the time more than it does Graham. You know, I mean, it's it's just it's the same old song and dance, you know, the same old malcontent. So these guys, they're bitter because they can't get they can't get work. But they're also them. not going to say anything until they know they have no chance of getting a job anymore. How it always yeah. works. So That's wrestling. Yes. Well, let's go to the part where Graham and the Schultz 2 come back up, and that goes through the end of the segment, and then we'll talk about this more. Billy Graham, World Wrestling Federation champion of 1977, is retired now. He suffers from devastating physical problems caused, he believes, by his years of steroid abuse. He wants people to see the price he paid for his moment in the wrestling spotlight. Billy, what is it that you want from all this? What is it that you want the Hulk to do? I want him to be honest. I want him to tell the American public 
because of the overwhelming evidence of testimonies like people like myself and the common knowledge of all wrestlers who know him for years. He's taken steroids from the late 70s through the whole decade of the 80s. You know, I want him to come clean. He owes it to his fans. You see, he owes it to the children of this country. And as you heard, superstar Billy Graham told us he wants to spread the word about the dangers of steroids. Is that He's now Glass? making appearances in schools so kids oh, can see for themselves um, how he has suffered because of his unhealthy pursuit. Nancy of Odell? No, 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 no. That's Nancy Odell's on was Entertainment Tonight. But she was, on, she I think she was on Inside Edition too. I, I before. know what you're talking about. That's though, Nancy. Yeah. That's, I think that's Nancy Glass. Let me look, make okay. sure. Nancy Glass. Yes, Nancy Glass. Wow, that's a blast in the past. But uh, here's the thing, yeah. especially at the end. Graham's right, in large part because someone who we thought was his friend used his name to lie and shit on him. Mm-hmm. Like, in terms of everything like he said about Hogan so far, and the later stuff is a little dirtier, but I, if it was honest, and I do believe it was, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Like... Up to this point, though, he really isn't—he really isn't shooting that many daggers, you know. Uh, well, Ho he wasn't until Hogan did Arsenio. And not the Hogan point, He's not going that far yet. Yeah, no, not really. Schultz point, is. <laughs> Schultz is, but still, but but Graham, Graham just seems sad. Yeah, exactly. You know, and understandably so. To hear this entire show. Support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.